The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. What happened? (laughs) (laughs) First of all, gentlemen, welcome. I've been enjoying your show, so it's nice to see you in real life and talk to you in person. It's cool. It's really great of you to have us, man. It's such a pleasure uh, to meet you uh, because, you know, uh, all of us are inspired by what you started. You know, we all look up to you, so um, it's amazing being here. Oh, thank you. Well, it's nice to meet you guys, too. I I enjoy your your conversations. I really think that uh, people like you that are reasonable and intelligent and have legitimate opinions grounded in facts, it's like, it's very important. Oh, it's tremendously important. Hold on a second. One microphone's not on. See, this is another way. This I'm is getting, why I do most of how, the talking on our yeah, show, man. Yeah, this is how I'm getting fucking silenced. <laughs> <laughs> it's the goddamn government. <laughs> yes, we'll figure out what's up with it. Yeah, we were just shit talking about Joe Biden before we started, so yeah. that's probably what's happened there, man. Yeah, but why would it only cancel yours? Yeah, <laughs> that Francis fellow's got to go. Yeah, <laughs> get rid of him. There it is. There it is. There we go. Okay. The dulcet yeah. tones of Francis Foster. Now, now we're yeah. up and running. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, what is it like uh, doing? Pod- I mean, th- uh, how many podcasts are over in the UK? Is it a, a popular thing? It it is a popular thing, but like everything, it really started to get motoring during COVID, particularly in our space with comedians when everything shut down. And then, but then comedians realized, hang on a second, we were just doing the comedy circuit and then wanting to be on TV. And then that moment was a really eye-opening moment where they realized ratings on TV are collapsing. Nobody's watching TV in, in, for ways that we'll get into through the podcast. Yeah. So what else are you going to do? And everybody started to get onto YouTube and podcasting. Because the thing is, Joe, like whatever happens in America, in the UK... We do it four or five years down the line. Yeah. yeah. But not just that. Good and bad. Yeah. Good and bad. We get your best stuff. We get all your shit as well, man. What's yeah. the shit that you guys are getting? Well, this cultural uh, yeah. thing that we always talk about, you know, we, we import straight from you. And that's why we have conversations. Like uh, during BLM, we had uh, these protests in the center of London with these protesters going, hands up, don't shoot in front of cops who don't have guns. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much of it. So just we just signaling. download your shit yeah. and they're just just put it out as if it's our own you know it's you know, so odd it's so funny man like that when trump came in 2016 i think it was or 2017 only 2017 there were mass protests but when like the crown prince of saudi arabia came over fresh from like you know chopping up a journalist no one protested everyone no. was cool that's strange isn't it <laughs> yeah it's, it's the power so of american culture man that's why everyone talks about it because it affects everyone well it's just it's not balanced the outrage is not balanced you know uh, even the outrage about things you should be outraged about like Jeffrey Epstein mm. that, that outrage was balanced right sort of right but what about the Catholic Church mm. like why why isn't everybody really freaking out about I was just in Italy mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things that's nuts is the Vatican is a country yeah, yeah. it's a country filled with pedophiles <laughs> yeah it's a country yeah. filled with pedophiles and stolen art it's a small like hundred yard like what is it a hundred acres I think yeah it's a hundred acre rather um, country mm. inside of a city filled with pedophiles yeah absolutely this <laughs> is why I love America man because in the UK we have libel laws so yeah. if you say something like that and you then have to be able to prove it otherwise you can get sued well you can kind of prove that <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one yeah. I mean I read the other day that, that I think it was until five six years ago the age of consent in the Vatican City was 12 years old 
Wow. Is that is true? That yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And oh, I was just like, pull wow. that up. Jamie's yeah. going to fact check yeah, you. Yeah, I just, hope that's not true. Yeah. Man. What year did that change? I think it was about 10 years ago, something they like bump that. bump it up to 13? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it respectable. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, my God. It's Holy true. shit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh. The Vatican City's equal age of consent being raised from 12 to 18 following the announcement of an overhaul of the Catholic Church criminal code by Pope Francis. Francis is like the most progressive guy, right? right? In, in terms of popes. Yeah, yeah, he is. I mean, that's not really saying a lot. Do you know what I mean? Well, no. he, the Benedict guy, he was wanted in other countries for crimes against humanity. I mean, like what he was doing was really evil. He was moving offenders to other places. And one of them, he moved a guy that went on to molest 100 deaf kids. It's it's absolutely insane. A hundred? Mm. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's it's insanity. I mean, this guy was already molesting. And then they say, well, let's just, instead of trying him and removing him from the church, we'll just move him to a place where people can't hear. <laughs> I mean, it, it's amazing how people cover this stuff up. Like, I don't know if you followed the grooming gang stories from the UK, but basically we had a situation for decades where uh, young girls were being abused um, in, in, the, in the thousands. Uh, potentially half a million and it was covered up because well, I'm not aware of this at all well right so what happened was it was basically people from uh, a certain background it was what we call it in the UK South Asian so Bangladeshi and Pakistani mostly and they were abusing Sikh and, and uh, local British white girls uh, in the hundreds of thousands we had one of the victims on our show um, El Dr. Ella Hill very brave woman and it was covered up for decades because, and we've just had a report come out to try and find out why it was covered up, why it wasn't investigated, because these people went to the police and they were told there's nothing we can do for you. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it, was in, it, was, it wasn't investigated and wasn't reported on properly because of, quote, sensitivities about race. Right. So this, all this stuff gets covered up for all kinds of reasons. It's, it's mind blowing, man, what people get away with. Uh, yeah. on this sort of thing because the politicians who should have been exposing it the people who should have been talking about it the police who should have been investigated were worried about being labeled racist mm. in fact one famous tweet from a labor mp told some of these people to shut up for the sake of diversity she retweeted a tweet that sorry said that, re yeah. retweeted it my apologies <sighs> shut up for the sake, sake of, of diversity. diversity these are rape victims joe and some yeah. of them were murdered oh yeah my God. and not just rape victims as well kids kids underage kids yeah <laughs> Uh, and you haven't heard about it because... At all. Right. It's massively taboo. Yeah. Even to talk about uh, in, in polite society gets, you know, people feel very uncomfortable talking about this because it comes from communities like, you know, what you would say like Asian communities and white, particularly white working class girls and Sikh girls. So people feel very uncomfortable about this. Mm. They're far more comfortable talking about Epstein because in their heads it's punching up. Right. Whilst if you talk about this crime, it's seen you know, as punching down, that yeah. it's racist, and it's far easier for them to silence it. But the problem is, Joe, is when you do that, what happens is that nefarious people can then get mm -hmm. involved in this and they say these words, they're not representing you. Look what's going on. If the powers that be aren't going to represent you, I will. And that's when things start to take an ugly turn. Yeah. We need to be able to talk about these subjects. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable they are. It doesn't matter how difficult they are. It doesn't matter how awkward they make us feel. Because we had a great guest on the show called Ed West, and he made one of the most profound points I've ever heard on our show, which is 
if you are not prepared to talk about a subject honestly, then you are never going to find a solution to that subject. To that or the, problem. Or to that right. problem. And, and what happened was when we got the, one of the victims on our show, uh, Dr. Ella Hill, uh, I remember uh, because we were trying to get the member of parliament who was one of the women that started to expose this. She wrote an article in one of the newspapers and she got so much hate that she didn't want to talk about it anymore. So when we called her up and we said, do you want to come on the show and tell us about this? She said, I, I just I just can't do it. And that's when I remember sitting in the car talking to Francis on the phone and I went, we've got to a point where a member of parliament whose job it is to protect these children is getting so much hate for speaking out about it, she doesn't want to talk about it anymore. A member of parliament. So this woman who's the doctor, yeah. she mm. was uh, presumably molested when she was young? Yes. 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 So how long has this been going on? Uh, decades. This has been decades. It's been going on since the 90s. Yeah. So a lot of these people now are, in, are like my age in their 40s, and it's yeah. still going on. And still... How do they have access to these girls? Like, what is... Uh, they would... They would... Basically, prey on vulnerable girls. Maybe they didn't have a parent, or maybe yeah. they, you know, something like that. Uh. They ply them with alcohol, drugs, get them addicted. And uh, when when some of the families tried to go and take their kids back, uh, the police—I uh, can't remember the exact details—but in several cases, it was like, "Oh, the, she's just a prostitute." Mm. And and the father would get arrested for trying to get his daughter out of that situation. Jesus Christ! Yeah, man. For the sake of diversity. Yeah. That's what. That's what some people look. Let, let, not everybody was doing that. I think yeah. most people were just afraid because the, of the racial component. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but and this is this is why. Sorry, Francis. Yeah. This is why this this identity politics is such a problem because when you stop treating people as individuals who right. be, behave correctly or incorrectly, lawfully or unlawfully. You start to go, well, these people can't commit a crime anymore, right? right and right. these people commit a crime by just being whatever. That's a problem. <laughs> we got to get back to the MLK idea of everybody being judged by the content of their character. Were we ever there? I don't know. We, we when were you trying to get back to it, uh, get I, back to I, the idea. You're right. It's a good point that you picked me up on it. What I mean is, we got to get back to trying to get there. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's what we got to get back to. The idea that that's what we, that's the dream. Right. And we'll probably never get there because we're human beings. We're not perfect, right? That's one of the most disturbing aspects of like this hardcore left progressivism is that they are willing to ignore reality for the sake of this narrative mm. that they have. And mm. also they're willing to lump, make these mass generalizations and lump everyone like yeah. in like... Like particularly if they're hard to defend, like straight white men, like that's mm. a great one. That's an awesome scapegoat. Mm. You can toss that into there. Wealthy people, mm. you know, upper class people, people with money. Mm. It's just a very bizarre thing that's going on where people are unwilling to look at people as individuals because it just doesn't fit this narrative that they're trying to push. Yeah, and that's so true. I remember when Brexit happened in 2016, I started to notice more and more when people were talking, the term old white man became an insult. Yeah. And suddenly, if you're an old white man, that meant that you were racist, particularly if you voted for Brexit. And that really angered me. So, and, and for, the, for the reason my dad, uh, he grew up in a very poor part of the north of England, which is Wigan. Uh, the, Orwell actually wrote a book about it, The Road to Wigan Pier, talking about the deprivation of that, of that particular part of the world. And my dad voted for Brexit. My dad voted for Brexit because he said that he wanted the UK to be independent of Europe. He loves Europe, but he didn't believe that the, the EU should be making rules for the UK. 
And my dad married my mother, who is Latin American, a woman of color, and I fucking hate that term. <laughs> <laughs> she's Latinx, mate. Yeah, she's Latinx. <laughs> I asked my mum well, if, she was, if she was Latinx. She went, ¿Qué coño es eso? What the fuck <laughs> is that, this? basically? Latinx is one of my favorite faux pas. It's yeah. such a huge mistake because the Latino people are not willing to embrace that at all. <laughs> you literally, you void out half of their language. Yeah. Like, their language has gender built into it. Right. And, you know, a lot of Latino people, particularly Venezuela, Wellens and Cubans, they don't like the left wing, man. Yeah, they've no, se- they've particularly seen. Cubans. Yeah. yeah, well, like us, they've seen what, what that yeah. ideology does, right? Yeah. Well, particularly people that have, where their families have come from communist countries. Yeah, well, like me yes. and Francis, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And so, like, my dad married my mom, like, back in the 70s, where we lived, which was a predominantly working class area. And, you know, there was a lot of, you know, there was racism. The, the pub down the road from where I grew up was a pub which had a, links to the BMP, which was the British National Party, which was a far right organization. Mm. And some of those guys operating out of that pub had assaulted Asian people in my area. And my dad married my mum. And but as a result of that, my mum wanted to call me Francisco Jaime and take in the Latino tradition her last name as well, which was Balis. My dad was worried about racism, so he called me Francis, gave me the name of a middle-class white woman, which I'm very grateful <laughs> for. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's how I live my life, and that's how I was brought up. My dad is one of the nicest, sweetest, most generous, mm. honorable people I've ever met. And to then have him be called racist and stupid and ignorant, it just enraged me. Yeah. It's just bizarre that <clears throat> some generalizations, like generalizations have always been a thing that mm. you, it's looked down upon. Like you, can, you can't generalize. Mm. I mean, you can make generalizations with caveats. You can, you can say in general, you know, uh, democratic run cities are this or that. You know, you can, mm. but when you do it with human beings and you just decide to dismiss someone based on some immutable characteristics mm. that they have zero control over, like being born white. Well, we have a word for that, Joe. Racism. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't, but you can't be racist because race is power plus... Prejudice plus yeah, some bollocks like, oh, that they came yeah. up with. Fucking nonsense. What a, a cute way to dismiss generalizing yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, and this is you know one of the things I talk about in, in the book because this is why I'm so grateful to be in the West. This is one of the few places that actually aspires to that idea. Yeah. I'm not saying we're perfect. No. We're not perfect. And you know this and everybody knows this. Mm. But the aspiration to everybody being judged on who they are as an individual, it's quite a unique thing, man. It's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. And it, that should be promoted at the forefront of whatever ideology that we, we accept. And then everything else, all the other things that we have to worry about and deal with, that should kind of fall into place secondarily. But it should be that even people that you would like to or that you have a license to dismiss like older white men mm. it's a, you have a license to dismiss them don't do that because it's not right it's mm. not it's mm. it's 100 percent out of their control to be who they are just characterize them and judge them based on who they are as an individual mm. and to judge people based on their their individual merits their character their personality what they do that's what we should all be aspiring right. to. And that's why we started our show. That's why we started Trigonometry. To protect we... white men, John. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, you know, we both voted Remain in that referendum. So that's kind of like the equivalent of voting for Hillary Clinton versus mm-hmm. Trump in mm-hmm. 16. And 
suddenly there was this narrative like what Francis is talking about, all you know, old white people, all this. And for me, I'm a first generation dark skinned Jewish immigrant from Russia into the UK. And suddenly all these people were like saying, oh, yeah, we've got this country is really racist. And I was what? I've lived in Britain almost my whole life since I was 13. That is not true. Half the country isn't racist. And I was like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Let's work out what's actually going on, right? And that's right. why we two Remainers started interviewing people who voted for Brexit, particularly from the left, because the narrative was only right-wing people voted for Brexit. Completely untrue, as it turns out. And we were trying to understand where they were coming from. That's kind of the genesis of our show, trying to understand people who have a different opinion to us. Well, there's a lot of right-wing people that don't want to vote for Trump based entirely on his personality, but mm. there's a lot of left-wing people that voted for Trump just because they didn't like Hillary and they mm. didn't like the policies of the Democratic Party and mm -hmm. and all the stuff that she she stood for this ancient form of corruption that's mm. been running America for a long time. It's it, it's a weird world that we're living in right now because we're like inundated with information. We have more information than ever before, mm -hmm. but we also have like these very clear boxes that you can shove people into that make it convenient because there's so much information, because there's so much to sort out, because nuance is difficult, to, because like looking at things for what they really are is mm. complicated. It's mm. complex. It's much easier to pick a team, man. Yeah. It's so much easier. It is. And so many people are doing it now and they pick a team and they march and a lot of dull minds who have uh, accepted these narratives of, you know, being just something that you just you if you're a good person this is how you think and behave but you know and i'd love to talk to you about this joe because i think we're from the same place politically Anybody want coffee oh uh, sure yeah coffee'd be great um uh, so i was a teacher for 12 years and i consider myself to be from the left i was a teacher in really poor working class backgrounds in london and other fair. places as well and, and I wanted to get into that because I just got, this is something that I wanted to do. I wanted to help the next generation. I wanted to work with these kids. And then slowly but surely, I've seen my side go completely tonto. They've yeah. gone nuts. When did it happen? When did it start happening over there? I th look, Brexit played a big part. We Constantine and I always use these, this phrase, broke people's brains. COVID mm. yeah. broke people's yeah. brains. But Brexit, Trump broke people's brains. Yeah, but brain. man, you tell me all the stories about working in the school way before then when you were being told, well, you can't pe teach people of this race. Well, t tell no, them that. So, for instance, in school, I remember attending this one workshop, and this had my blood boiling. So I used to work in a place called, uh, in, in East London, right, in a place called Newham, in this wonderful school. And I remember the, we got this one guy coming to, to teach us, right, to do a bit of teacher training. And he was teaching us how to train how to teach boys and i'm like okay in particular english now i'm a boy obviously or a man and i loved and i loved reading when i was a kid reading was my escape particularly being an only child and he was saying to us right you've got to have different expectation with boys than you have with girls and suddenly my ears picked up i was like i was thinking where are you going with this and he was like you can't expect them to sit down and write like a girl could because they're different. Boys, you know, you, you've just got to expect that they're going to make, they're going to write a little less. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to be as engaged and you need to have extra stimuluses for them as a result and all this. And I'm thinking, this is the bigotry of low expectation. What I've got in my classroom are working class boys from desperately poor backgrounds, many of whom have grown up without a dad. And we all know the stats about, about what that entails. Mm -hmm. For most of those kids, the only way out of the poverty that they have grown up in is education. 
that is it. And you want me to go into my classroom and say to these boys who have already got enough challenges as it is, and you know, and that at 10 and 11, the gangs are starting to circle and they, you know, start and they're starting to stray into that world. You want me to say to them that they are not as capable for their writing as girls. Well, why don't we just scrap it and just let them run free? It absolutely infuriated me. To me, the worst thing about this progressive movement is the bigotry of low expectations and mm. saying to people, you know what? you need our help or you're not going to be as good at us as us. And to me, that's disgusting because you're dooming people to not have the life that they could have if you have high expectations for them. Because I'm telling you something, if you go into these schools or these places of learning and you have high expectations to, for these kids, the vast majority will meet it. Mm. So with boys in particular, like what is the difference from your personal experience of uh, teaching boys? So my personal experience of teaching boys is they're more rambunctious. You know, they've got more energy. You they know, like to break shit. They yeah. like to break shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, you know, they're not as mature as girls. You've right. got, you've just got to accept that as well. And but here's the thing that but there's a joy that boys bring to a classroom. Like girls tend to be more obedient, but with boys you can tend to have a little bit more fun. You can have a little bit more back and forth or banter, as we call it in London or in the UK. So boys are different like that. But the thing is with boys is they respond to a challenge. If you say to them, I want by the end of this lesson, Tony, I want four paragraphs and I want capital letter, full stop. I want you to have all your apostrophes and I want you to get that done by half pass. Prove to me you can do it. A boy will be like, yes, because that's how we respond as men. We respond to challenges. We respond to people saying to us, come on, meet this expectation. But if you say to somebody, you're never going to do it, most people will agree. I mean, there'll be the odd kid who will just want to prove you wrong. But the vast majority will never do that. Mm. So do you think when they're dealing with boys and girls in classrooms, it's just complicated to deal with all the variables that the boys bring and the girls bring? So instead of handling that, they just lower the expectations for boys. I think not all teachers. I think a lot of teachers push back on that. But I think there were certainly some teachers who would, just, who would take on board what this person was saying. And look, let's be fair to teachers, particularly in the type of schools that I worked in. You had 30 kids in the class. I had everything from a kid who potentially had the ability to go to Oxford or Cambridge. He was that intelligent, that smart, or she was, right the way through to a non-verbal autistic kid. So you had to make sure that all the resources were prepared in a way that all the children could meet. And not only just those two extremes, you also had all the ones in the middle and upper and lower and all the rest of it. So teachers have an incredibly difficult job. And are teachers in the UK as underpaid as they are here in America and underappreciated? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they are. Mm. Uh, that uh, seems uh, universal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How fucking bizarre is that? that yeah. is weird, it's man. one of the most important jobs that anyone can have. You're literally educating the future generation. And for whatever reason, we dismiss it as being this very low-paid, low-expectation, low-praise occupation. It's very strange. It's very strange that that's not addressed. And when it is addressed, it's just, it's just lip service and nothing really gets done, not much. But, you know, in particularly in countries like China, Korea, all mm -hmm. around that part of the world, they have a saying, father, mo father mother, teacher. Mm. 
Yeah. You know, and we just don't have that. And particularly in the UK, we don't appreciate teachers. You know, there's a, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said, those who can do, those who can't teach. Yeah. Right, that old saying, which is ironic because he was a crap playwright, but... <laughs> There's a little dig there. Still angry about it a hundred yeah, years he, later. He's just an old white man, mate. It's fine. But, well, it's a generalization. Yeah. yeah. But here's the thing. Um, we all remember a teacher who changed our life. Yeah. Yep. We all remember that yep. special teacher who, for whatever reason, took an interest, not necessarily just in the classroom, but maybe outside, maybe we're having a tough time, who took the time out from their day to help us or inspire us or actually give us a fight a fire and a passion like one of my old teachers i remember like i was in sixth form which was 16 to 18 in the uk and i hated shakespeare i could never get into it and i remember he sat us down and he taught us hamlet and i don't know how he did it but he just unlocked it for us and we were kids from south london you know from all different backgrounds whatever else and we just learned the magic of shakespeare and it doesn't matter what happens Mr. Potter, if you're listening, big shout out. Um, <laughs> he, he gave me a gift that I will treasure right the way through to the end of my days. Mm, that's beautiful. Mm. The, that, that term, those who can't teach, is so silly. Yeah. Especially from my background, I come from martial arts, mm. and the best instructors were all great martial artists, mm. all of them. Mm-hmm. All of them. You cannot be. I mean, there's certain boxing instructors that weren't great boxers that turned out to be great coaches. But most of the great martial arts instructors were, in fact, great martial artists. Mm. You know, they just had a passion for it. They had a passion for learning it, and then they had a passion for explaining all the various, like, very nuanced details. Like, all the great jiu-jitsu instructors are all world champions. Almost yeah. all of them, or, or champions in some way, shape, or form. Because to truly understand the subject, in order to be, you, in order to be able to teach it, you need to be able to understand yeah. every part of the process. Like right. if I'm teaching you, I don't know, like equations, and I don't fully understand it, I'm not going to be able to teach it because you're going to go to me, Francis, but how did you get from this point to this point? And if I can't explain it, right. I, I'm not going to be able to help you. Right. Mm. Yeah, especially with complex things that require you actually doing it. So many things require you actually being able to do it in order to be able to explain how it's done. Like, mm. you can't just teach it. No, you can't. You no. need to be able to take people step by step through something. And here's the thing, and you, because you used to teach martial arts as well, didn't you, Joe? Yeah. You will find that as you teach people, mm. your understanding of a subject just gets deeper. Oh, yes. You start sure. to refine that your thinking around the subject. So I remember towards the end of, of uh, just like I, I taught stand up because, like, you know, as a supplementary income and because I'm a stand up geek. And a lot of it, I used to do like joke writing with like my students and going and put up different jokes from Joan Rivers, Chris Rock, all these people. And, fi- and I started to realize that. There's such a beauty to joke writing. Mm. It really is. It's almost like maths. Mm. You know, there's a logic behind it. Yeah. And if it, if the logic isn't there, the joke doesn't work. It, the, the thread is broken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I never would have realized if I didn't teach or if I didn't teach maths. You know, I think we should all teach genuinely because you get an appreciation of actually what it means to be a good teacher. Absolutely. What, what it means to take someone on a journey. Mm. And it does make you better at whatever you're teaching. You yeah. know, I was yeah. much better at martial arts after I started teaching it, and uh, I recognize that in a lot of my friends that had regular jobs and went on to start teaching jujitsu. They all got way better at it, way mm. better at it. 
And it's just because your understanding of it is ingrained like deeply in your mind, like of all the various positions and transitions to different mm. positions and the, the hazards and what you have to do to avoid, you know, and how to defend and all that stuff is, it's complex. And to be able to explain it to another person and watch their mind light up with these mm. infinite possibilities, mm. it really does stimulate your own growth. Mm, for it, sure. It does. And one of the things that teaching gives you that is a real understanding of discipline and how important discipline is. And without yeah. discipline, without understanding that the most important thing is turning up and doing your best. Mm -hmm. yeah. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. It doesn't matter all of these things. If you're not going to turn up every day and do your best, you're not going to make it. No. It's, it's really interesting to see. Yeah. Like the kids frequently who did the best, the they were the kids who worked. They were the kids who focused. Mm -hmm. They were the kids who understood that in order to be good at something, you need to turn up. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I had to cultivate in myself because I didn't have anyone explain that to me when I was a kid. Mm. I don't know if you did, but like uh, I was smart, but I didn't work hard at school. Because mm, uh, it was easier for Because it was easier, right. Yeah, that's uh, a... And it was only when I became an adult and I realized that I want to do things in the world that I realized actually you have got to work so hard to create anything. And that's when I started cultivating this in myself. But I saw this at school. You know, there was a guy that I went to school with, wasn't as smart as me, wasn't as this and that, but he was way more successful. And then I met his dad. And I remember his dad telling me this. Um, we were on the sidelines watching a rugby game. And another kid said to him, oh, the, lo, lo, yesterday there was this situation in a, in a game where someone was taking a, a penalty kick to win the game. Imagine how scary that must be. And my friend's dad, the, the friend who was successful, his dad, uh, he went, no, think about it like this. How many people want to be in that position? And when you score, how many people are just so with you and delighted? Yeah. And that little reframe. Yeah, that's all it takes sometimes just a little uh, understanding how to build confidence in yourself or how to work hard and not enough kids get that man and I, I just I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity as an adult to develop that because you can't do anything without that it doesn't matter how smart you are there's an expression in America hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard right yeah it's a great expression right it's so yeah. important but what you're talking about is also framing things yes looking at things in a beneficial way yeah. in, as opposed to like a way that's going to increase your anxiety. Yeah. You know, if you think, oh, I don't want to fuck this up, you'll fuck this up. Yeah. Like, yeah. The best piece of advice I ever got was plan to fail. Mm. Because if you expect to fail, it doesn't surprise you. Right. You know, like you get on a diet and the diet isn't work. Uh, you know, you, the diet's working and everything's going great. And then one time you fuck up and you have a binge. And most people, they get off the bandwagon at that point. Because mm -hmm. I fucked up, oh, I'm this, I'm that. Mm. But if you expect that to happen, then you wake up in the morning and you go, all right, yeah. it's time to get back in the saddle. Learning how to think is a very difficult task that most people have to kind of figure out on their own. They figure out mm. through self-help books mm. and yep. Instagram videos. <laughs> they, don't, <laughs> they don't necessarily yeah. figure it out from formal education. No, but I spent my, that's why I had to, I had to spend my twenties doing a shit ton of personal development because mm. I wanted to be efficient, effective. I wanted to get places. I wanted to create things. Most of all, I wanted to create things. And if you want to create things, you've got to, 
you've got to have these skills that otherwise, you know, you're going to struggle with that, whether that's working with other people. Yeah. You know, stand-ups struggle with this because everyone's so individually minded. Yes. But we've built an incredible team, not just me and Francis, but you met Anton, our producer, and mm -hmm. a bunch of other people. You know, that's an interesting part of our life now is we've got a team of people to manage. And, you know, you've got to run that. You've got to look after them. You've got to make sure they're growing. They're getting what they need, you know. Yeah. It's an exciting challenge uh, to be in the position that we're in. Yeah, I face the same challenges. It's a co it's complicated. You know, mm. stand-ups are in kind of lone wolves. Mm. Yeah. But one of the things that we did at the Comedy Store and then we're doing also here in Austin is cultivating a legitimate community. Mm. And we have a very, very supportive community of comics, and it's, it's a different world now. Mm. Comics used to think of other comics as being the competition, that somehow or another if someone did well, it takes away from you. But now, instead, they, they look at it as when someone's doing well, that you can do well, too. Also, that you're a part of this same community, so when someone does well, it sort of legitimizes the community. Yeah, it's awesome that you have that here because in the UK, we're still in the crabs in a bucket mentality. <laughs> they, back you can there, get right? out of it. They can yeah. get out of it. You just need the the top dogs to accept this new way of thinking yeah. of things and try to help the young guys coming up and, and encourage this different kind of thinking. Mm. I, think, I think that's sorry to interrupt. I think that's so important, Joe. It is. I, yeah. I really do. Because here's the thing, you know. That that way of thinking of like, oh my, I've got to get this, and if someone comes here, they're gonna, you're gonna be miserable. Yeah. You're gonna be miserable. You're gonna be filled with anxiety. Even if you're doing well, yeah. you're always gonna have your your head over mm. the shoulder, looking, thinking, who's coming up behind me? Who's gonna take my stuff? It's famine mentality. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. not it's not good. It's not yeah. good for art. It's yeah. the worst thing for art because. When someone does really well, that weird green envy that comes up, you gotta fi you gotta figure out how to turn that into motivation. Instead yes. of looking at it like "fuck that guy," why did he get this? Instead, going "wow, look at him, he's killing it." And what did he do? He worked hard. His jokes are well crafted. He's really likable. Mm. I gotta work harder. I gotta yeah. work harder. My jokes should be better. I have to do more stage time. Get looser. I have to like re revamp my act. Mm. And if you could just look at it that way, all those people around you that are killing it, those people are all fuel. They're all motivation. Stand-ups, great stand-ups in particular, don't exist in a vacuum. And this is one of the things that I drill into these young guys' heads out here, and young girls and non-binary folks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to drill into people's heads like, we need each other. We, we are not individuals. We are this one biological superorganism. And that's that's what a community is. That's mm. what a civilization is, Agreed. and that's what a, a group of comedians are. That you you're it's an organization, but everyone together is like feeding off of the inspiration of each individual member. And when people are doing really well, especially like young people, I love when up and comers are really starting to make it, mm -hmm. and they're starting to make money, and they can afford a nice apartment, they get a car. I get excited. I love <laughs> it. I love it. Because it's, it could also inspire all these other people that might have been on the cusp of quitting. They might have been on the cusp, and they might turn out to be great comics. Because hmm. so many of us in the beginning in particular, it's just such a touch-and-go business. You just wonder whether or not you're ever going to make it. Wonder is, are you wasting your time? Hmm. Am I going to be that 45-year-old guy at open mic nights who can't get a laugh? You know? Those guys are terrifying. That is terrifying. And not just that. We all know the comics. Like we all played the clubs in, in the U. Well, well, we played the clubs in the UK. You played the clubs in America. You know, there's that comic, that, that headliner who's just burnt out, who just sits in the corner of the green room, who looks like he's got some form of PTSD. He's not engaging. Well, he does. He has got PTSD. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. not yeah. engaging with people, and he no. just goes out and does the same act. Yeah. And he can kill. 
Yeah. And he, even when he kills, he comes off looking more dead than he did before. Yeah, yeah. but he's because he's still scared. He's killing with that old act. Mm. And one of the beautiful things about doing a special is you have to write new material afterwards. You mm. release that special. And it's not like the Rolling Stones can go tour <laughs> and you know and uh, do fucking Gimme Shelter over and over and over again, and everybody cheers. Mm. You have to have new shit. Right. You know, you can't have thirty-year-old right. jokes. Mm. You, you have to have new shit. And some guys just get scared by that. It's a very daunting, terrifying feeling to abandon all of your material and start from scratch, mm, you know, mm. but you have to do that. Yeah. It's one of the beautiful things about stand-up is you become a beginner every time you write a new joke. Yeah, mm. that is true. And do you yeah. know what? Do you know, I don't love it at the time, but looking back, it is good. You know when you've got you're gigging with all these people and they're all doing their best stuff and you do like your 10 minutes of new yeah. and you suck a dick. <laughs> yeah, and they're killing it with old yeah. stuff. Mm. Yeah. And then you walk off and they're like, yeah. he was shit. Yeah, that's, that's how it is. <laughs> well, I tell you the story, man. I, I remember when I was starting out, uh, I the club that uh, Francis used to help run and I used to gig there a lot. What's uh, that club? Uh, Angel Comedy yeah. in London. We actually used to film the show there. Mm. Uh, uh, they used to lend us the space when we were starting out. And... Um, I saw a guy there who came on, he did 10 minutes. I, did, I didn't know much about, was it new? Was, and he ate shit for 10 minutes straight. It was just, there, there was no laughter. It was bad. And I, and, and I was there, this new guy with my amazing five minutes go. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I went and smashed it. Anyway, I forgot all about it. Who the hell is this guy? And then I was doing a pro night somewhere else because this was a new act, new material night. And I saw this guy in the green room. I was like, what the fuck is he doing here? <laughs> and he went on and he closed it and he absolutely fucking destroyed. Hmm. And that's when, I, that's when I realized, like, you got to be prepared to go on and do 10 minutes of new and not give a shit that you die in front of all the people yeah. that you want to respect yeah. you. you know? It's the only way it's ever going to get good. It's yeah. got to get legs. Yeah. You yeah. got to walk yeah, it yeah. around. That's why, you know, we were talking earlier about our show to, uh, on YouTube. Like about someone said, are you going to delete your early stuff because it looks awful? We look awful. The lighting's terrible. We ask stupid questions. Like the whole thing's terrible. <laughs> Have you seen my haircut? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Go, go watch my old ones. <laughs> your haircut and your waistline, bro. Yeah, You've done true. really well. Since. My old ones, we had snowflakes falling. I've <laughs> seen them. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we're not. I'm never going to delete that shit. Fuck that. That that's the past that made you who you are. Yes. Yeah. The, you know? Embrace it. Those are great. I tell everybody if you're starting out and you know, oh, how do I do a podcast? Go watch mine. They're fucking terrible. Mm. <laughs> Go watch mine. Start out and just just do it and get better. Yeah. And don't be scared that you suck in the beginning. Everything you do when you start out, you suck at. There's yeah. no way to be amazing from the jump, especially at something complex. And if you you are amazing at it, you're the rarest of the rare and just work even harder mm. because you just have a, a very unusual gift and you should be very fortunate, feel very fortunate. You know and what? still work hard at it, as we talked yes. about. You've got to work your ass off, man. If you uh, enjoy it. If absolutely. Enjoy it. I used to tell my kids this story. I uh, when before when you know this, when I used to teach some of the smart ones and they get all cocky, I'd say, who's the most gifted footballer in the UK at the moment? like English football, and they reel off all these names, Harry Kane, blah, blah, blah. I said, no. It's a guy called Ravel Morrison. Have you ever heard of him? They all look blank at me. Ravel Morrison is a fascinating study, and I would recommend anyone to read about him. This was a kid who, when he was at Manchester United, the, one of the biggest clubs in the land, was known as the most talented boy of his generation. They were saying, like, he was the biggest talent they'd ever seen in the last 30 years since a guy called Paul Gascoigne. He was that naturally talented. But because... He went down the wrong path because he had trouble focusing, because he wasn't the most disciplined, because he wasn't the best mentally. 
He now, I don't think Ravel Morrison has a club. He play, He used to play at, at last season at the worst club in the second division. And this was a kid who ability-wise could have done anything. Mm. If you're not prepared to work, even if you've got this insane talent, yeah. it ain't going to matter. No, mm. it's not going to matter. Mm. But, but when you were teaching stand-up, this is one thing about America that's mm. unusual, is that there's no really good comics that teach comedy. <laughs> It's real weird. Mm. Yeah. You know, we kind of teach it to each other in green rooms. Mm. Mm. You know, we teach it to each other, uh, you know, on airplanes, on the road, mm. and, and hanging out in hotels and having lunch together. We talk about comedy. We, mm. ex- you know, we go over our processes. Sometimes we, I think more education has been sort of distributed from ab- about stand-up comedy from podcasts, mm. from conversations about podcasts that really ever in the history of comedy, like having great comics sit around and talk about their process and talk about what they did when they first started and what, what they realized they were doing wrong or you know how they improved. How did you get into doing that? Well, I was working at this club, uh, Angel, and you know it's tough to make money at comedy. I was, I was doing all the weekends at clubs, uh, but one of the reasons I, I was doing it is because my mom's disabled, so I need to give, get money back to my dad and my mom in order to support them to pay for cleaners and stuff like that. So I needed more money. And they said, very kindly said to me, why don't you run a stand-up course? When I qualified as a teacher for six years, I was a drama teacher. That's how I ri- originally started, and then I went into primary. And then I thought about it, and I, I saw the way that other people were teaching, and I thought... I've actually got the opportunity here as someone who trained as a teacher who's got 10 years or nine years experience at the time. I can actually teach it like a proper lesson. So I created lesson plans. So the first time we started off, we started off with improv for them getting to know each other, various improv games. And then the second lesson, we went into joke writing. So I did the structure, set up, punchline. And then what we did is we looked at joke structure from people like uh carlin um who else mitch hedberg all these different people and what i would do is i would put six jokes on the board from these people but i wouldn't put their names and one of them two jokes were written by the same person i got them into pairs i got right analyze the jokes which one was written by the same person and why so what that would do is because in teaching if i'm just there being didactic and talking at you Eventually, you're going to switch off because that's how the brain works. But if you say to them, right, analyze it, discuss it amongst yourselves. So that was one of the exercises that really worked because then they looked at it. And from that, they looked at tone. They looked at language. They looked at who's, who is the butt of this joke. They looked at style. They looked at does gender influence jokes, which, of course, it does. And we then started to look at it, pick it apart. And then they could work out who it was and why. So that's we then started off. I then gave them a generic setup. Sorry, just headbutted the mic, and got them to write a punchline for a generic setup. I can't remember what the setup was. Mm. Um, I took Grandad out the other day. That was the setup. And then they had to run punchlines for it. I also looked at pivot words. So an example of a pivot word is I'm trying to remember this now. So I had a joke from. Uh, Emo Phillips, who said, uh, I caught my wife in bed with another man. I was crushed. I said, get off me, you two. Right? Great joke. The pivot word in that is crushed. Mm. Right? And it's a pivot word because it's got a duality of meaning. And that's why the English language is magical when it comes to joke writing. It's got these two, it's got this duality of meaning. So about 
2016, I opened for Eddie Izzard, but I was uh, I did comedy in Spanish, and it was actually a lot more difficult because Spanish it doesn't have those words which are du- which have those dual meanings that you can pivot on. Mm. So by understanding that with these words which you can pivot on, which you can twist, you can make the punch even stronger. Mm. Great joke writing is like writing a thriller. It needs to make sense. It needs to be logical. But they can't predict where the twist is going to come. Right. Because if you predict where the twist is going to come, it's like watching a thriller and go, okay, I get it. He's a killer. She really fancies him. They're going to go out on a date. Then it's going to be a twist. And you're going to get bored. If the twist doesn't make sense with your jokes, you're going to be like, this is a stupid Mm. plot. Right. But if the twist makes sense, is it has a logic, if it has a consistent worldview, then you're going to be hooked into the thriller and you're going to be hanging on every single twist and turn. Mm. And that is the art of great joke writing. So we do three hours on joke writing. And I used to love it. And then when they, they would say out their jokes about, you know, I took granddad out the other day and they gave the punchline. If the joke was la- if they laughed, I'd analyze it and we'd go, why did that work? But here's the thing. This is when people really started to learn. If it didn't work, I'd, I'd ask everyone to stop. I'd say, look, we're just going to use your joke as an example. And I just want you to know I write hundreds of jokes, the vast majority of which will never work. And we'll put it up on the board and we'll go, why doesn't it work, this joke? And together, we would work out why it was. And most of the time, it was logic. And then I took it back to them. I go, can we make this joke work? And then they'd go off and then they'd write. And a lot of the time, we'd make a joke that would actually work. So it's by doing that consistently all the time. I used to do things like worlds colliding where I used to take, I don't know, this was in 2018, take a topic like Trump, take a topic like supermarkets. I go, right, we're going to create a a joke about Trump and the supermarket, you know, target, whatever it is. Think about everything you can think of Trump. Think about a spider diagram, everything you can think about the supermarket, a particular supermarket, whatever it be. Okay, now trying to find links between the two. And then we would write jokes with Trump and the supermarket. And a lot of the time they wrote good stuff that you would never ever have heard a comedian do before. Because I said to them, it's not about first thought, second thought, third thought. Because here's the thing. If the audience can predict your punchline, throw the joke away because it means that your joke isn't good. You, they can't predict the punch. That is the most important thing. So we just went over it. And then, and then one of the things that I said to them was, you need to tell a story. I want you to tell a story. I don't care about interesting. I don't care about funny. I don't care about any of that. I want a story that you would tell your bodies round the table in the pub. And they would get up and tell the story. And then I would ask them about their lives, who they are, where they're from. And here's the thing. We've all got stuff that's interesting about us. This is why this woke crap is so toxic. Because I used to hear people say more and more, oh, I'm just a white guy. I'm just, I'm just like, fuck off. It doesn't matter. Where are you from? Oh, I'm blah, 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 blah. What about your mum? Oh, my mum passed when I was eight, and then I did this, and I mm. did that. I said, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. Talk about what it's like to grow up as an only kid in a school where you were bullied, you didn't have a mum, but you did this. That's interesting. Mm. And by the end, most of it, even if they weren't the funniest comedians in the world, they would come out and they would be interesting, 
you felt like you actually understood mm. who they were. And that's the most important thing because most comedy courses were like cookie cutter. Yep. And I never wanted to create that. I wanted to create somebody or help somebody get to be authentic. Because it's like David Mamet said, words that come from the heart go to the heart. And when you did this, was there an element of this course that involved them getting on stage? Yes. And, and had got, any of these people never been on stage before? Some of them had never been on stage. Most Every, of them, I think. Yeah, most of them. So mm. the first half would be on theory, and we'd look at things like joke writing, you know, all the rest of it. And the second half would be them being on stage, doing their thing on stage, and then I would give them feedback, and I'd be like, this is great. This is really interesting. Don't, you can do better than this. But really focus on this because this is really interesting. That great joke you did there, maybe you can talk about this here and that mm. and this. And gradually they got to have a really lovely five minutes. Mm. So by the end of it, I think like I did it for about two years. Uh, one, uh, one, a lot of the guys that I taught, they got to the finals of competitions, national competitions. And they started to come through and a lot of them are still doing it and I see them on the circuit and it's great, man. Because wow. they kill and then I go, I wrote that joke. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you do this for? I did it for a couple of years, man. Yeah. I did it for a couple of years and, and I loved it because it meant that I could cut down on teaching because the thing is with school teaching, it's just draining, particularly when the schools that I was working in, it meant that it freed up a little more time. And look, I'm a comedy geek. I just love, I love being around comedians. I love teaching comedy. I love the art of comedy. To me, writing a great joke is like alchemy. Mm. You take words that individually they don't have no connection, but you put them together in a particular order with a particular rhythm, and you yeah. create something that's so beautiful. What is your writing process like? Do you do you uh, wait for inspiration? Do you sit in front of a computer or a notebook? Like, how do you do it? I I, th I think I I remember like a lot of the times when comedians were in a club. And they would say, like, oh, are you going to talk about your stuff about this? And I'm not going to do my stuff about that. I never wanted that. I always wanted my set, what I wrote about, to be completely original, authentic, and also honest. So the way that I would do it is I go, what do I really think about something? Like, honestly, Francis, what do you really think about this particular thing? So I remember, like, when everybody was doing jokes about Brexit, and they were saying, well, people vote Brexit, whatever. And I remember thinking, oh, man, this isn't, this, there's something here. And then my, my mom voted Brexit, a first generation Latin American immigrant to the UK. And I remember thinking there's something in that. And I played around with it and it took me a long time to actually figure it out. And then finally I went like, my mom is a first generation who came here uh, from the UK 40 years ago, unable to speak the language. Boom, boom, boom set it up so you've got an image of this woman in as, as few words as possible uh and i said and two years ago she voted brexit first laugh right and then i i said uh i said and when i asked her why right she said francie is because there are too many foreigners in this country <laughs> <laughs> right so you get yeah so you get the accent in there as well which right. pops it up and then i did and then i was like that's funny and then you play on stage with it and you tried certain things and i remember I, and then it got to a point where i was like it's like she got to the uk got to the border turned around and went no no you're not coming <laughs> door locked britain full goodbye right yeah and i used to get a big laugh but i knew it was good when i would meet people whose parents were from a different country and they'd come up to me and go my mum's like that. 
I remember like a black guy came up to me after a gig and went, my mum's Jamaican. She does the exact same thing. And that's when you know a joke is good. Yeah. When everybody does surface shit, but you mm. do something that's actually deep. Yeah. Why'd you stop doing it? I still do stand up, but no teaching. Oh, so why did I stop teaching? What, as in teaching in a classroom? Yeah, or t- or teaching te- comedy. Te- why did I stop teaching comedy? Because trigonometry took off, and yeah. I—it's more fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And- it's a long and complicated story as well, because one of the things that happened when we started doing the show uh, is we became evil and right wing and and whatever. So we we ended up leaving that. I'll say leaving that club eventually. Mm. They, they, so they accused you of being right wing. No, no. They found an excuse to to get rid of us. Real, so yeah. you were fine before that. Yeah. Oh no, Francis used to help run the club, yeah. Yeah. and they decided. That no, man, were... I don't want to shout on the club. They no, no, no. no they... But it's okay. But but just in terms of like the attitude of whatever community, like someone had decided that you guys were problematic. Like what was it? Other comedians. When we signed to uh, to an agent uh, about a year and a half ago, there was a bunch of comedians who tried to get our agent to drop us. That's how it was. Based on what? Based on the fact that we talk to people who are not just on the left. The the platforming, that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. conversation, yeah. that is a bizarre accusation. Yeah. Platforming, yeah, yeah. Well, know? we were just interested in having conversations with different people, but what we found very quickly is certainly in the comedy world that we were coming from. Yeah, this is you don't do this, you don't do this. It was made very but clear. But those to comics us. have to be shit comics. There's no way they're good. It uh, it's different in the UK because it's a small industry. Yeah, and it's uh, the gatekeepers in terms of getting on television and whatever is like five people. And uh, in 2018, uh, the woman who runs the Edinburgh Festival, which is how in in the UK, that's how you get anywhere, right? right. You you do the clubs, then you take a, your own show, like a special to the Edinburgh Festival. You get seen by people, you get plucked, and then you go on TV, and that's how you make a career. That's how it works. The woman who runs the Edinburgh Festival, a woman called Nika Burns, she said, I look forward to the era of woke comedians deciding what isn't isn't acceptable. This is the person who controls the industry. She was being serious? What do you mean? She was just being serious. <laughs> Look forward to the woke people deciding what is and isn't acceptable, yeah. and that's how she yeah. judges comedy? Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it's the funniest thing about the entire thing, because what he's produced ain't funny, but carry yeah. on, man. So, so what happened to us when we started the show was we, we found ourselves on our own uh, and gradually pushed out and out and out, which has been great for us which has been brilliant for us because now we have our own thing. I actually stopped doing stand-up after the pandemic because uh, I realized it was just killing me physically, the, the driving around, all of that. Uh, and now I just wake up every day. I, I love my life. I can't wait to do the thing I'm about to do. Um, and I've got a new baby now as well. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was difficult. So what happened is we gradually kind of got pushed out uh, and um, ended up doing... Well, and now trigonometry takes up so much of our time, we barely have time to do anything else. Mm. Now, what year did you start trigonometry? Uh, tw- it was April 2018. Mm. And um, when you started it, what was the idea? Would you just want to do it for fun? Did you say, hey, I think we could do a good show? Like, what was... Yeah, well, this is why I said we're so glad to be here with you, because we looked at people like you, and we went, like, he's having interesting conversations with fascinating people. That's what I want to do. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing was we were trying to understand some of the things that we've talked about already. Why why is it suddenly people claiming half the country is racist? Why is France's dad supposed to be this evil monster? Why 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 are we seeing increasingly comics going on stage because you're standing backstage and you're listening all the time, right? When you're on the circuit. Yeah. And you and you it started just you started hearing people like suddenly one after another, well I'm a straight white man so this and I'm this and I'm like people just started just regurgitating all this stuff and we couldn't work out what was happening. Uh, and also there was a lot of censorship going on, self-censorship. Like I remember I was always political with my comedy, satirical. That's what inspired me because I grew up in Russia where we didn't have this. And then when there was a bit of an opening up in the early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, there was this guy called Viktor Shandorovich who wrote uh, a, a TV show which was based on spitting image, these puppets uh, of politicians talking, uh, and, and it was hilarious. It was incredible. And you've got to understand, to people who've never seen their leaders made fun of, that was revolutionary, right? So I was always someone who was interested in politics anyway, and I wanted to write comedy about it. And I remember coming off stage at a brilliant comedy club in London called Top, Top Secret, Love them to bits. Uh, and I just come off, I did, you know, whatever my political material did really well. And then this guy came up to me, another comedian, and he said, man, I love that. I love that you can do can do politics. And I went, well, why don't you? And he went, oh, I'm a straight white guy. I'd get crushed. You know. So is it worse over there? It, it is A hundred percent. Yeah? In terms of the censorship, yeah, because you can't go anywhere. Yeah. You can't go anywhere. It's a tiny industry. If you If you become a bad person, where are you going to go? And also as well, you, going back to that point that Constantine made, the people who decide whether you get spots on TV, the only way you can do that is through the Edinburgh Festival. And the only way you're going to get noticed is if you adhere to the company line. Because then it's TV, radio producers, and then you get your run at, you know, at a West End theatre. That's the only way to do it. Now, things are changing, and the, mm. this way of changing is brilliant. But that was how it always was. Yeah. So people were terrified. And the, as you know yourself, the worst form of censorship is self-censorship. Yeah. Yeah. When you're sitting down with your pad and paper like, and go, you know, like I, I wrote a joke, which I, I didn't have the courage to do until recently about, like, you know, because I was saying, like, my voice, I've got a racist voice because in, in South London... This in is, London, he, the, <laughs> I, I was banging on at him for years to do that bit of material yeah. because his voice <laughs> is associated with someone yeah. who is, you know, intolerant yeah. in the UK. You know, and, I, and then... His I, accent. Yeah, exactly. And then I would say, but, you know, here's the thing. All my all my girlfriends have I've been black, mixed race, all Latin American, so my voice is racist, but my dick is woke, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, and I was terrified to do that because... I'm openly mocking them. Right. I'm openly, and mm. I would say, oh, I could never do this. And he would always say to me, mate, you've got to do that. It's funny. That's funny. That's funny. And I never felt I could do yeah. it. And that is replicated right the way through our industry. We got on David Baddiel, uh comedian, very famous comedian, brilliant comedian, lefty, liberal, all the rest of it. And he made this point that he felt that way. Now, if imagine if a lefty, liberal and these, I don't use words in a derogatory sense at all with David. Mm-hmm. I very much admire him. What about the rest of us? Right, right, right. right. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, but look, man, we're sitting here sounding like a bunch of losers complaining. No, 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 no. no you're Our not. life is no, great. You're not. No, you're not. You're explaining what your experience is. Our life is brilliant, and we love what we do, and it's fantastic. But the truth is, uh, you know, and there's a lot of other components. So, for example, the Edinburgh Festival, right? In 2019, I went up and I did my first hour. I sold 97% of my tickets. I crushed it. And if it hadn't been for the fact that I lived in Edinburgh uh, and I had friends to stay with, I would have lost money. I sold 97% of my tickets for a month. How did you lose money? Because of the fees that you pay. It's a parasitic world, man. You have to pay for the venue. You have to pay for the PR. You have to pay for the promotion. And by the time you're done. And so what happens is... Where does the money from the ticket sales go? To pay for the venue, to pay for the PR, to pay for the posters, to pay for all of that. So right. it's normally a 60-40 split in favor yeah. in favor of the artist, but then PR is what a couple of grand? A few grand. Yeah. And the only way and the only way you're going to get into the magazines is if you pay for PR. Yeah. You then got to pay for, you know, a producer. A lot of the times yeah. people want to get a producer in to, you know, to help them get them noticed and so that they can say that they're with this particular person. Then you've got to pay for posters. The accommodation fees are through the roof. Like you can look at how much they're charging out the Edinburgh Festival yeah. just to stay there. And but- I was lucky, man, because what happened that year is I had I was for the first time in my life had a huge I was part of a huge news story that had happened. Uh, and so I had the PI. I was in the newspaper. What was the news story? So, at the very end of 2018, uh, I was d- doing a gig at Top Secret, a brilliant club. If you're ever in London, you should play it. Um, and this guy came up to me and said, oh, man, I loved your set. You absolutely crushed it. Will you come and help us raise money for charity at my college? I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Next, uh, forget all about it. And then in about three weeks, I got an email from them saying, please uh, come and help us uh, raise money for charity. Uh, and uh, in order to uh, perform, we have a contract that you need to sign. Okay. I opened the file and it said, we have a zero tolerance policy on racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, anti-religion, anti-atheism, and all jokes must be respectful and kind. Oh. So uh, no comedy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I turned it down, right? I tweet about it to like a thousand people at the time or whatever it was. And this thing goes super viral super viral i'm talking about this was the day the day that it went uh, it was the second most read story on the bbc news website which is the biggest news website in the uk on the day that the prime minister had nearly been removed from office by her own party so that's equivalent of the democrats impeaching joe biden and the second story on cnn and fox is no name comedian turns down unpaid gig from two-bit college That's how it was. That's how big it was, right? And was it big because they were criticizing you or were they realizing how crazy it was? Uh, it was a bit of both, I think. And that's when I realized, Joe, this is the thing. See, I thought that Francis and I and a couple of other, the rest of us, we were just like these weirdos who were campaigning about, you know, the stuff that was going on in comedy and generally. But when that story went that viral, I got thousands of messages and thousands of emails from ordinary people saying, I can't say what I think at work. I can't say what I think here. And that's when I realized we've got a genuine problem in society where everyone feels like they're walking around having signed that contract. Yeah. So to me, that was a sign that actually societally there's an issue going on. Um, Yeah. So that's why, you know, I had a lot of attention and I sold a lot of tickets and still uh, I didn't make any money. So I'd like to see some of that comedy. 
some of that comedy <laughs> where they abide by all those rules. Yeah. Right. I'd we like had to see that dance. Uh, listen to this, man. We have a comedy night in London where, um, first of all, you have to be triple vaccinated or whatever to get in. Uh, and the comedians have to submit their material in advance. Mm-hmm to get a proofread, mm-hmm. uh, but to get it approved. <laughs> and the audience get given stickers to decide whether you can talk to them or not. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's the direction, the, the industry. And, and they, they are the right people. They're the celebrated ones. We are always wondering why so many comedians who come out of England suck. <laughs> <laughs> I have no disrespect to the ones no, that are funny. No, they're shit. I, I agree yeah. with you. I it's, agree with you. We've always tried to figure out, like, what is it about America? that breeds the best comedians. Like, mm. what is it? Not, I mean, Eddie Izzard is fantastic. Uh, Ricky Gervais is fantastic. There's great, Jimmy Carr, there's great yeah, comics sure. that come from over there. But it seems like more hurdles. I'll tell you what it is. It's a couple of things. Number one, Joe, this is an American art form. It was created in America. Mm. It was. It started in America. You respect the art of stand-up more. In the UK, we don't really get it. We had musical at the very beginning, which was turn of the 20th century, which produced people like Chaplin, etc. But that was always kind of based in variety. Mm. You'd get a juggler, you'd get, you know, a music act. When uh, what we call alternative comedy started in the 80s, it went back to those roots. So on a night, you would get a juggler, you might get a mime artist, you'd get a magician, and you'd get a comedian. And that's how comedy, what we now know as modern stand-up comedy, started in the UK. And it came through from that. But what has happened is more and more and more, there's these kind of restrictions apply. So people, they can't be creative. Because the number one thing that you need to be creative is the ability to play. Yeah. That's why when you, and actors do a play. That's why it's called a play, because you've got to be playful. And if you feel restricted, if you feel that somehow if you say this, that you know you might cross an imaginary red line, you're not going to be playful. Right. Mm. And the best material, as far as I'm concerned, is where people take contentious issues, contentious subject matter, like a Bill Burr, for instance, and they're playful with it, mm-hmm. and it pops attention and we're all able to laugh yeah Mm. it's so important it's cathartic we need it for society but the moment you go oh you can't say this and here's a red line and if you do say that then we're going to come down on you on a ton of bricks yeah where's where's the where's the joy you get no content either you get bad content you get a bunch of people that exist sort of in an echo chamber and they preach to the choir and you you know you don't get good stuff And here's the thing I would say, and this is a quite a controversial point. It's also racist as well, because I really believe diverse. This is what diversity is. And I've said it many times and I've, people don't like it, but it's true. Diversity and these diversity quotas and whatever else in comedy is having different races, genders, sexualities, all saying the exact same thing. And if you stray from the party line, you ain't going to get a seat at the table. Mm. And it's racist because they want a black person on, but they want them to say what they think. Yeah. We have a friend who's uh, from Barbados in the UK, great comic, Nico Yearwood. And uh, he, he was tweeting something and another comedian, this is how fucked up the industry is, went, went to him, your, the optics of your tweets are really right wing. <laughs> 
Because right? he is a black dude, isn't allowed to say this. You know, he's not the supposed optics. The optics, yeah. and and that's the way it is. That's why I said it's crabs in a bucket because everybody's yeah. watching everybody. And you, the moment you stray, oh no, no, no. Now, what about the big comics? What about guys like Gervais uh, and? Yeah, the, look. Once you get to that level, you can say whatever the hell. But you do want. they support the up and comers? Do they? Are they involved in the community? I don't think Ricky is, but I don't think Ricky was ever... Did he do the circuit for a long time? Ricky never really did the circuit. Ricky used to do his character Derek on the circuit. See, Ricky started to do TV, I remember it, in uh, around about... I was in college at this point, so it was 99, and he used to do the 11 o'clock show. And before that, for a couple of years, he did his character Derek, which he then turned into a TV series on the circuit, but not really. But Ricky is actually very good. He does his night called Ricky Gervais and Friends, where he puts on comics mm. so ricky is supported yeah where does he do that he does that in little theaters around london mm -hmm. and you know and it will it's only 120 seater it will sell out and then you know he'll put on you know he, he these comedians but a lot of the time this is the interesting thing a lot of those comedians won't go public that they work with ricky because mm. they're oh. terrified of what will happen because yeah. he's a vicious evil transphobe <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. but you know there's a there's some good pushback happening as well like you know andrew doyle right yeah. Yeah. So he started. I love a, Andrew Doyle. We love. We're yeah. very good friends with Andrew. He's one of, Brit in my opinion, he's one of Britain's finest satirists that has produced yeah. in our lifetime. That he's, character is amazing. He's fantastic. <laughs> Titania McGrath. Titania yeah, is yeah. awesome. We're we're doing a show with him in in, in at the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. <laughs> How that's gonna go? I have yeah. no idea. But um, he created a comedy night called Comedy Unleashed in London, where like there's no culture of self censorship. And I, that was the best place to play. Not because people were being ridiculously offensive or whatever, just because you could breathe, man. Right, yeah. You could breathe. And, and the thing is, the audience is there, especially for me with more political stuff, they were so clued up. They were so switched on. It was just a joy. So, look, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And I always say this whenever we're complaining about censorship and whatever. Look at our heroes. My heroes were Carlin and Hicks and, you know, for Francis, it's Pryor as well. These people didn't have an easy life. Right. You know, they were getting pushed back on and that. Of course. So whenever you do anything like that, you're going to get people who hate on you and whatever. So that's been part of the journey for us, realizing that actually we need to stop whining and just get on with it, man. I like you know? to use the example of Lenny Bruce until I remember that they killed him. So <laughs> well, he killed himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, they did. A, they made their part. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Sure. I mean, it was a heroin overdose. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to say that they killed him. Yeah, but yeah. they they definitely tried him multiple yeah. times for obscenities. Mm. Yeah, you, got, you, you ever see the recordings of the later stages of his life where you go on stage with legal notes and just read off of the transcript of the trials? No, it was no. horrible. It was really sad, and people would go, "Come on, dirty Lenny, bring back dirty." They wanted to hear jokes. And yeah, there was no jokes. He was just talking about the nuances of the trial. Yeah, wow, it was not good. I mean, he was losing his mind towards the end, mm. but I mean, I would imagine the pressure of you know having essentially the entire legal system and a, a, a good part of society coming down on you mm. for the things you're saying and not being really recognized as what he is in terms of a, a true he's a tr the true godfather of american stand-up mm. that's the guy everyone before him was just doing jokes it was just jokes and he was talking about social issues he was talking about what society's like he's talking about hypocrisy he was talking about things that he thought mattered and you know using language that yeah. you, people would use outside of the stage mm. and you couldn't for some reason you couldn't right. use that on stage and he was pushing back against that and literally getting arrested yeah. yeah yeah and that's why i always think about it you know this progressive 
I, I think of it as a, as a cult or as a religion, right? Yeah. And that's what my heroes were. They were pushing back against the religion of their day, the, yep. the, the right-wing conservatives who were saying, you can't say this, can't do this, you can't say Jesus, you can't talk, you can't. They were pushing back against that. And now I feel there's a, a, a movement of people starting to push back against this new religion. Yeah. And I think eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn around. That I, I'm an opt- He's a pessimist. I'm an optimist. Are you a pessimist oh, about this? I'm a massive this? pessimist, Joe. Do you know, yeah. I, I've... Uh, I've started calling myself Fostradamus, mate, <laughs> because every one of my predictions comes true. In the last two years, yeah, it's true. When everything went to shit, I went, there'll be another lockdown. There was another lockdown. Yeah. People were going to me, it's only going to be two weeks. I'm going to go, mate, it lasts months. And I just yeah. sit there being really happy with myself. Well, that's why I moved to Texas. Yeah. yeah. I, know, I, I saw it coming. I, I moved out here. I mean, I started looking in May of 2020. Mm. It was a couple months after they locked everything down and we weren't back up again. I was like, oh, I see where this is going. Yeah. They enjoy this. They enjoy telling people what to do. You yeah. know, whether or not they honestly, earnestly think that they're protecting people, they are enjoying this power and control. Absolutely. And I don't like it. And the thing is, man, as I talk about in, in there, I've seen this before. Francis has seen this before, right? We come from countries. We've seen authoritarianism. And yeah. the truth is what scared me the most about COVID, it wasn't what the government was doing. It wasn't what the government was doing. It was how much people loved it. Yeah, they were embracing it. They fucking loved it. People were embracing the pharmaceutical companies, yeah. which was bizarre to me. The people that have been the most deceptive, that have caused irreparable damage to people and families because of lies, because of faking mm-hmm. studies, because yeah. of withholding data and information, mm-hmm. and they've been fined to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. And all of a sudden, people were putting all their eggs in that basket. And I was like, you guys are out of your fucking minds. Yeah. Like, you don't remember the past. You don't remember the, remember the history of what these people have done. And you don't they clearly don't understand how these studies work and how they get funded and how politicians get funded and how special interest groups are working behind the scenes to make sure that these things get mandated. Like, this is fucking spooky. That was the thing that bothered me about it, man. It's like, look, I'm not a medical expert. I don't, I don't know what the hell is going not? on. You're not? No. <laughs> Surprisingly. Oh, well, not. then you better not talk. Right. <laughs> However... <laughs> What I I do, what I did find very strange that we got to a position where you've got people who aren't medical experts telling doctors to take a vaccine that they don't want to take and they're forcing them. Like we had this in the UK, man. Uh, We had the, they were attempting to introduce vaccine mandates for medical staff and medical, there was this incident where a, a doctor is talking to the health minister and the health minister is forcing him, trying to force him to take it when he doesn't want to take it. Mm. Does that does that make sense to you? A non-medical expert forcing a medical expert to have a medical procedure? Does that make any fucking sense? It didn't seem like it makes sense, no. No, Do you right? Know? <laughs> yeah, you, you look, you're careful about yeah. this now, are you? No. No, yeah. no not really. No. Yeah. I, I've got a theory on the whole COVID thing about why we lost our mind. I think it's to do with the fact that most of us aren't religious anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the thing. Like, we're not religious anymore. We all now think that this is it, that you only have one life, right? That you only have one chance to live your life. That being the case, you are going to do everything that you can to control as much as you can in order to keep yourself safe. Because once you die, that's it. That's the end. There's nothing else after that. Right. Okay. So people and people have convinced themselves as well that we're in control of nature, that actually 
we've got nature, you know, we, you know, we, disease, we've got disease pretty much beaten. We're going to live these lives where we're, you know, going to be young till the end of our days. All of a sudden, this pandemic appears out of nowhere, like all pandemics. And all of a sudden, those illusions are shattered. And we realize that we're mortal, we're feeble, we're fragile, we're just human beings. And this thing can take us out. Like Boris Johnson in our country got really ill with it. Yeah. And I think people just freaked out because they realize they're mortal. And what they try to do, a lot of people, is just they try to control everything. If I can control every single possible variable, that yeah. will mean that we're going to be safe and I'm going to be safe. I think that's part of it. But the other part of it, and we know this from history, is people like controlling other people. People like power. Uh, and yeah. the, the, like I say, what scared me, in the UK, we had these polls come out and suddenly like 40% of the country wants us to ma wear masks forever. <laughs> It doesn't matter if there's COVID, <laughs> right? 20% want nightclubs permanently shut down. It doesn't matter if there's COVID. 20%. Yeah, yeah. And we're seeing this polling. That's why, you know, you huh. talk about moving to Texas. That's why it was so scary for us because in the UK... There's no Texas. What the fuck are we going to... Well, we're going to yeah. move to Belgium. Well, actually, <laughs> if Belgium has got the same shit anyway. Right. Well, Belgium has the worst health minister ever. Right. Yeah. yeah. See yeah. that lady? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild. Yeah. That's wild. So that's one of the things that like... And we were seriously talking about moving here, man. Yeah, you yeah. should. We, we probably will eventually. I, I, I don't know. It's... We've been traveling around and having such a great time, mm. but I always re I always remember that you know that old joke about immigration and tourism. No, a guy goes to heaven, dies goes to heaven, and uh, God meets him at the pearly gates. Says, "Please come in." You know, and it's beautiful. It's white. Everyone's wearing white robes. Everything is peaceful and tranquil. And after about a year, he gets bored of this, and he goes, "God, can I go and check out hell for a day?" Goes like, "Okay, go for it." Turns up to hell, the gates of hell open, and it's a casino. There's fucking booze over here, girls over here. Oh, amazing! He has a great day. Goes back to goes back to heaven. Goes, that was great. I'm, you know, I'm good. Uh, and after about another year, he gets bored again. So he says, oh, "Can I go back to hell for like a week?" Oh, no problem. Sure. Turns up at hell, same thing. Girls, booze, everything you want. Comes back refreshed. He goes, "God, listen, heaven's great, but I like hell a lot more. Can I move?" And God goes, "Yeah, no problem." Uh, you you can move, no problem. One condition, you can't come back. It's like, what the fuck would I want to come back here? This is incredible in hell. Okay, no problem. Turns up in hell, the gates of hell open, the fires, the brimstone, the devil grabs a pitchfork, sticks him in the pot of boiling tar, and as he's drowning and his face is melting off, he goes, what, what happened to the girls, the booze? And he goes, don't confuse tourism with immigration. Mm, <laughs> interesting. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's the other side of it too, yeah. right? Well, you're looking at it like tourists, like you're coming over here and you're seeing the freedom. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at it like an immigrant. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. The freedom's real. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it, they're, they're, especially in Texas, there is an ethos. There's like um, a way that this state has always prided itself in freedom. Mm. And that lends itself very much to comedy and that's like two of the greatest of all time came out of texas bill hicks and sam kennison mm. yeah and i think that's part of the reason why it, there's there's a wildness to this place mm. that is uh it has good and bad well that's what i mean everything has yeah. trade-offs so does freedom right yeah. now now people like us we want more freedom for yeah. sure for yeah. sure but you know what i love about you know one thing that really annoys me about the UK, particularly UK comedians, they will go on on the stage at the comedy club and they'll say, oh, Americans are stupid, right? And they'll be saying Americans are stupid whilst wearing a Converse jumper, Levi jeans, night trainers and drinking a Coke on stage, right? Yeah. And you go, 
Can you do you know? Can you understand yeah. what what's going on here? But the thing that I love about America is this is the place it happens, Joe. Mm. This is the place. Every time I come here, it doesn't matter if it's New York, if it's Texas, there's an energy about it. Yeah. You feel like people are energized. They want to do things. They want to achieve things. And in the UK, look, I love my England. I'm a Londoner. I love my country. It's, it's my home. But we have this strata, this class system. We're like, yeah. don't you dare get above your station. You're going to remain right where you belong. And in the US, it's... You don't have that. There's this openness and this desire and this drive. And as Constantine said, of course there are trade-offs. Of course there are negative things about it. And there's things about this, you know, America that, you know, I don't like as as well. But the energy here yeah, is incredible. Yeah, the energy is incredible, man. Like, we've spent the last nine days traveling around. And uh, it's amazing to us how many people, like, that we just had, like, internet connection with. They're, they're like... We, we went to the comedy cellar in New York and the guy who runs it knows us and like we had a great time. We, we just meet all these people and everybody wants to work together everybody, and everybody's happy for you to be doing well. Yeah. That is not the British way. <laughs> yeah. I'm friends with Steve Hilton. Do you know Steve Hilton? No. He's, he is now on Fox. He's like Oh, a, I know him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah, used yeah. to be he used to be involved in politics in yes. the UK. Didn't with, he used to work for the, David Cameron? Yes. 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 I remember him now. And th I actually met him and his family on a beach in Hawaii mm. ten years ago. Mm. Yeah. Our family became friends with his family and we've gone on vacations together and uh -huh. I knew him way before he became like this evil fox guy. Right. Which is very interesting. <laughs> right. He's a very nice guy. But um that was what he always said about coming from England to America, and that in England everybody wanted you to fail. Yeah, they wanted yeah. you to just keep your place. Yeah, keep your place. And yeah. look, I don't want to sit here and shit on Britain because I oh, came. Too late. I came too late. No, man. <laughs> but I came to Britain, and look, everything is un we say in Russian. Everything is understood in comparison. I came to Britain from Russia, and it's a brilliant place in comparison. But I think the stage that we are at now with our lives, we've we've built something, and we want to keep building. And like yeah. you're showing us around your gym and. I, I just think the opportunity to build amazing things, it's just so much easier here and people want to help you and people want to work with you. And it's, we've been really inspired by this trip, man. People want you to go for it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it, there's, there's no feeling like it because if you want to make something of your life, that's what you need. This yeah. is what I said to the guys from day one, man. We've got to surround ourselves with people who have the mindset that we want to have. Yeah. You know, and that that's one of the most difficult things is I've been pretty brutal in my life about making sure I'm not surrounded by toxic people who want to pull you down. And it can be a lonely place sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's got to be hard if that's the predominant mindset. Yeah. The yeah. predominant mindset is trying to limit your ability to express yourself and to get out there. But hey, and, look and, at us. We're here. Yeah, exactly. And it's also as well, you know, the UK is a small country. There's mm. less people. Yeah. And. But the thing that I find really inspiring about America is I look at the great comics, the people who I looked up to, the people... Like, I remember the first communal stand-up experience I ever had. Like, I was in, I was in college, and uh, most of my mates when I was hanging out, they were black guys. And I remember one of my mates going to me, Francis, you're, like, you're one of the funniest guys like, I know. Like, you must love Chris Rock. I went, well, but he's just that dude who stars in, like, crap films, isn't he? And they were like, no, no. And so they they took me to his like he took me to his bedroom. There was a, I was the only white guy in the room. There was about there was about five other people there, and they watched that that bit, the famous bit, black people versus the N word. Mm. And I looked around, and all these black guys were like creasing up, doubled up, laughing. And I was thinking to myself, 
Are you? Are you? Can you say this? Are you, are you allowed to say? <laughs> well, this? you can't. Yeah, oh, I, can't. <laughs> I don't want to see you yeah. doing that material, yeah. bro. Yeah, but <laughs> and then that that just made me like understand that you know America is where it's where stand up is created, but it's also where you know the best stand up is created, where the pushback occurs, where people like Burr and like yourself and all these people. You're changing the form. You're you're moving it forward. That doesn't happen in our country. Mm. We just imitate what you do. And there's wonderful things to Britain. Come on, man. There's exceptions to that. I mean, Eddie Izzard, who you open for, yeah. he, he's he's innovative. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a is. bunch of people. There's exceptions. There's exceptions. No, I ju- I'm just worried we're going to go back. And, and, and <laughs> Don't like, be scared, as, homie. as the guys who <laughs> shat on Britain having come yeah, to America. Yeah, I don't exactly. think it's that simple. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. just talking about your personal frustration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that to me... Yeah, we are frustrated. It's true. But that to me is the inspiring thing about America, is that when I look at this country... You're the one dictating. You're the one moving things mm. forward. You're the one who's pushing back. You're the one who's challenging. It's inspiring to be here, man. Yeah. It, it really is. is. Yeah. yeah, our trip so far has been insane. That's man. great. Uh, some comedians that are here need to hear that. Yeah. Because they, you know, people get complacent and they, they think that, you know, this isn't what it should be, that it should be better. They, they don't understand how hard it is to do stand up in other places. Mm. Yeah. You know, mm. and it's, you know, and, you know, we've only got a few outlets to go to. Yeah. Whereas here, how can you not be inspired to be, you know, gigging with the greats? Wait till you guys come tonight. Come to the Vulcan tonight. Oh, come. See what yeah. we got yeah. going on. Yeah. 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 It's Austin's wild. It's yeah. a wild scene right now. Yeah. And, you know, they have this show called Kill Tony. And mm. Kill Tony, every Monday night, aspiring comedians get to do one minute. And then they get <laughs> judged by yeah. a panel of professionals. Uh-huh. And uh, it's this incredible show, like the way they have it put it put together. And, and in one minute, you don't have any time to be woke. There's no room for mm-hmm. identity politics, mm-hmm. and the show rewards funny. funny. It's yeah. all just about yeah. funny. For yeah. what, go for it, no matter yeah. what. And because of that, it's become really the the cornerstone of the comedy community here. Because all the people coming up, they understand that there's a real point of access. There's a real way to make it. And many people have gone from that show and had successful stand-up careers and they tour around the country right now. It's mm. incredible. Yeah. Man. It's it's wild. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. And that's that is the American spirit, yeah. which is, you know what? I'm going to do it myself. Mm. I'm going to create my own thing. I'm yeah. going to go out there and do it. Whereas yeah. the thing is with the UK and please, I love the UK. We're always looking for approval from the up because that's the way the class system works. Yeah. So you're waiting for approval from the people above you to then go to the next level. Whereas here, it's like, well, no, I'm going to do my podcast. I'm going to go out. And we're starting to learn that now. But yeah. it's because of America that yeah. we're taking on that on board. You showed us the way. But with the internet now, all the cool, exciting stuff that's happening in the UK is people who are going around that machine that Francis is talking mm. about. And by the way, him and I, we both used to write for these TV shows and we watched them get shit as we were on them. Right. You, you see what I mean? Uh, but look, with the internet now, look at what we built. Look, at there's other people in the UK who are building cool stuff online because yeah. that's the way you do it now. Yeah. And what happens is now we've got to a point where some people build a thing online 
and then they get start getting asked back onto the mainstream thing because they've got the audience and because of what they're doing. So that happens here as well. Yeah, the mm. internet is incredible, man. What an opportunity! I, I'm just so grateful to be alive in this moment. I really am. Even the internet. I mean, the internet is a dangerous, <laughs> peril-filled environment as well. It's like it's everything has trade-offs, man. Yeah, there's a lot going on. It's there's a lot of uh, forces moving in one way or, or the other, and then there's also a bunch of people that again the crabs in the bucket thing yeah. and people that don't like the way you're doing it they want mm -hmm. everyone to do it their way or they think that if you succeed in your way somehow or another it diminishes their possibilities their opportunities mm. to do it their way you know and there's there's people that have been following you know the so-called rules their whole life and career and they don't like when people don't yeah yeah you know? because yeah. they've invested and they've bought yes. into a system yeah. and they have and when they see you doing something different they're going hang on a second but, yeah. but this, uh, my last 10 years, I've been following the rules. What, what, what do you mean you've become successful doing something else? I followed the rules. Yeah. And this is the beautiful moment about the time that we exist in. The rules are crumbling, man. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's now about going out and connecting. And whereas before, a gatekeeper would look at a particular comic and just go, nah, he's, you know, he's too on the edge or she's too yep. this mm -hmm. or they're too that and whatever else. Uh, mainstream audience isn't going to like them. That doesn't matter anymore, man, because yeah. you've got your people out there. Whatever you do, however yeah. you think, there are people who are going to think and are going to enjoy your stuff. So just go out there and do it. It's the, beautiful. On the other side of it, the flip side is that those gatekeepers are the ones who motivate people to find ways around. Yes. Mm. like Because the fact that you know that this one incompetent person with their shitty, narrow-minded ideology is trying to force their sensibilities on your art. You, you get frustrated and you try to figure out workarounds. Mm -hmm. If it was open and inclusive and easy, maybe people wouldn't expand as much. Yeah. Mm. Well, man, where we are now is like none of us is a person of faith, but we, we, we've started saying grace, like a secular version of grace mm. around the table at, at the studio when we're having food because we're just so grateful for those people that made our life difficult. And now we're in this position where we built something and we every day we just like wake up and pinch ourselves. That's yeah. awesome. I, I think, you know, gratitude is very real. It's yeah. very important and it's contagious. And, you know, that's what grace is about. Grace is saying gr it's about gratitude and mm. whether or not you have to have gratitude towards an invisible deity or just for the experience that you're currently engaging in. Mm. Like, mm. All, you know, there's still a lot of room for that positive energy and that positive thinking. And again, in that contagious mindset, it transfers to other people. And then as you watch them benefit from it, it inspires you more. Yeah, It's yeah. all good. And I would say this to anyone as, who is, you know, maybe listening to this and they're going through hard times and they can't see a way out. Just get a paper, piece of paper and write down all the things that you're grateful for and be honest. Yeah. Just yeah. be honest about the things that you, you are grateful for. And I guarantee you'll look at that list and you'll, you'll be inspired because yeah. that is a springboard to something. And look, we all went through tough times and there were moments where we were looking at our life and thinking, holy crap, how am I going to get out of this? Is this it? Is this all I've got? Is this all I have? Is this all I'm gonna, ever going to be? But I promise you, if you keep working, if you're honest, if you have integrity, if you push through and you keep pushing, things will change. Mm. It's yeah. really important. And especially, I, I worry, like, I'm, I'm 40 now. You're right, Joe, I don't look it. Thank you very much. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I worry about young men now, Joe. Do I do. Yeah. I do because I, I see young men and like, it seems to me like, especially with young men, like 
there seems to be a crisis. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There seems to be a crisis, and there's a lot of young men who are very angry, and they feel that you know that things aren't haven't gone their way, and they're never going to go their way. And it's really important that if you're grateful, but also if you identify what you're going to do, and you just keep working and you keep pushing and you keep striving, even if that I wanted to be an actor when I started out, that didn't work. Then I became a teacher, and that worked. And then I went and did, and it, I gradually found my way. And it took years and years and years of knockbacks and graphs. Mm -hmm. But if you're prepared to do the work, then you will get to where you're meant to be. Yeah. Just keep working. And find like-minded people. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the most important things. We don't, we don't live alone. We don't. We don't. You don't survive and thrive alone. You need other people that inspire you. And when you feel down and shitty, one of the best ways out of that is to be around cool people. Yeah. Be around friendly, fun people and, and support each other. Yeah. That's 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 all possible. That's always been the way that you know Francis and I uh, at the beginning. I always knew we would have success with trigonometry from day one. I said this, yeah, to you, yeah, right? Yeah, you from did. day Absolutely. one. I never doubted it for a moment. There's lots of other things I've done in my life that I doubted very much. I never doubted this. I don't know why. why. I don't know. I just always, I I just knew it was going to work. I just knew it was going to work. And I always said to Francis, the only way this fails is if you and I fall out. If you and I can't resolve our differences. This is going to fail. That does happen with comedy, yeah. with podcasts. Right. Two people together, and yeah. for whatever reason, they have some sort of a problem. I watched this incredible movie uh, about a soccer team. It was called The Damn United, and it's about two two men. One of them is like this uh, driven, ambitious, young, handsome manager, uh, and the other one is his assistant. And they can't work without each other, but they don't know it. Uh, and the ambitious guy is being a dick, and he sort of takes over, and he, you know, they fall out. And they have a really bad time. And then when they get back together, it works out, right? And I just, I always thought that if we can stick together and if we can encourage a sense of like, we can work through anything, we were going to be successful. And we've gone through some really difficult things together, mm. man. You yeah. know, really, really difficult. Uh, but I, I just, we always had that attitude of we are going to make it if we stick together. We've been kicked out of studios. We lost producers. We've, we've had all kinds of crap. Happen. Why were you kicked out of studios? Why do you think? Because <laughs> of content? Because people don't agree with what we do, man. No one wants to, you know, people don't want us to be having these conversations. So what is like the most controversial conversation you guys have had? Oh, oh right. So I think, which one do you think is going to be? I think uh, we interviewed, uh, she wanted to, we interviewed a, a lady at the time called Posey Parker. Oh, right. And this was in 2018, right? Why yeah. do I know that name? Okay. Uh, the title of the episode is Trans Women Aren't Women. And we were, had this conversation in 2018. And you've got to understand where we're coming from. We are two comedians. We just started this YouTube show, podcast. We are in the comedy industry, which is the way we've described it to you. Mm -hmm. And here we have this woman who comes in and says, trans women aren't women. We were fucking terrified. Listen, this is what I did for a large part, part of the interview, a large part of the interview. She said something really problematic. I'd be looking at content. He'd be like <laughs> that. We were terrified, man. Yeah. We were, t we were, we, because we knew we were going to lose our careers. What is Posey Parker? What does she do? She, she is a gender critical feminist in the UK who campaigns again uh, for single sex spaces and, and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, you should have her on, man. She's great. Yeah. Uh, but she's very controversial in the UK. Uh, so it was our first foray, uh, our second foray into the trans issue. Uh, and she's pretty hardline. 
and this whole hour is basically him shitting himself <laughs> and me and me trying to ask questions <laughs> to what she's saying. Like genuinely, like there was a point we where were I terrified. Was... <laughs> we were terrified because I... because that's the climate we were operating in, right? I what couldn't was... see Posey Parker. All I could see, Joe, was my career like crumbling in front of <laughs> yeah. my eyes. Yeah, that's how it was. And what was the the blowback? The YouTube took it down. Yeah. They said it was hate speech. Uh, and then there was a big uh, fuss. He went. He was in the newspapers, and they put it back up. Wow, that's yeah. what happened. And that and that video is like on 1.2 million views, which is a huge amount for for us back then, yeah. particularly. Uh, but w and the thing about that episode is what happened was, we are people who are we we want to hear what you have to say, and if it makes sense to us, it makes sense. However controversial it is, we and if it doesn't make sense, we're going to ask you questions and challenge. So it's basically an hour, like I said, of him sitting there shitting himself <laughs> and me trying to find the logical flaw in her argument. But I can't. I can't. So I'm sitting here having to admit that this woman is correct about what she's saying. And I know that that means we're going to get shot on from yeah. a great height. Yeah. That is such a third rail topic. Right. And in this country, it's, uh, it's the most third rail co topic. It's, yeah. It's it, the most controversial one in, our, in ours as well. And I've always said, man, from day one when we started this, I always said this progressive shit, the way that it's gone, this is the thing that's going to blow it up. The gender... Yeah. The trans thing. Why is why do you think that that is such a hot button there's, subject? There's two is, reasons. Number one is you're asking people to deny basic biology. Right. Number one. For the ideology. For the ideology. And number two, you're fucking with people's kids. Yeah. I, I, my We just went to my sister's wedding in Armenia. My sister is the most pretty, uh, likes pink, feminine girl. And at their wedding, they had this like game that they play where the groom had to guess... Uh, stuff about her they had to answer questions about each other and the question was you know what did she want to be as a kid and the answer was a boy my sister who is the most feminine girl right now she she when she was seven she wanted she said she wanted to be a boy now if you told my mother back then that she said that and now you have to give her hormones and cut pieces off her she would have torn your fucking throat out because here's the thing and this is the way I explain it to people. We're not allowed to have sex with children. And you ask people, why is that? And they'll struggle with it. I've and never asked that question, <laughs> mate. <laughs> but this is a point of debate. But this is, you ask that question, you go, why? And they'll get really uncomfortable, obviously. And they'll be like, oh, I, I, I don't know. And the reality is, it's because children can't consent. They can't consent, man. They can't consent. Because here's the thing. Children, until around 14, 15, have no idea of consequences. And I used to see it all the time. Like a 10, 11-year-old boy would do something stupid because that's what 10, 11-year-old boys do, shove someone. And you'd see a teacher come in really angry, tell the boy off and went, what did you think was going to happen? And the boy would look blankly at them and go, because they don't understand consequences. They don't understand long-term consequences of their actions so you're effectively asking a child to make a life-changing decision by taking blockers which will leave them sterile for life and you're asking a child to make that decision a child is utterly incapable of making that decision it's child abuse is what it is but why do you think it's so widely accepted and it's not necessarily widely accepted, but it is within the ideology. I don't think it's widely accepted it's in not, society. No, no but no. within progressive ideology, it is. It's, it's one of those things that you have to not question, and you have to go along with it. The clue, as Francis always says, is in the name, progressive. 
It's always about going further and further and further and further. And they don't know when to stop, man. Because see, I am progressive. I, I well, I don't know. Am I pro? I, I don't know what I am. But what I mean is, sometimes this is why I don't understand people who have a fixed political ideology. Because mm. there's, it's like me saying to you, Joe, you're driving a car. What's the best thing for you to do? Slow down or speed up? Well, it depends where you are. It depends where you're trying to get to. It depends what the situation is, what's around you, right? Sometimes society is going a bit too fast and you need to slow down a bit. Sometimes it's going a bit too slow. It's become stale. It's stagnant. We're not moving enough, right? Sometimes you need a bit of progress. And, you know, so, but the problem is if your ideology says we must always be making more progress, you're going to keep going to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Another thing I think is technology. You know, a lot of the change, this is where my disagreements with conservatives comes come in because, um, you know, Hayek wrote about this and why I'm not a conservative. The, the big tension between progressivism and conservatism is about your attitude to change, right? If you're progressive, you think change is always good at, at the extreme, right? And if you're conservative, you think that change is bad, essentially. That's how some people think. But change is inevitable. It's inevitable and largely it's driven by technology. So I think one of the reasons we talk about the, the trans issue so much now is that we have the technology to facilitate some of this transitioning in a way that we didn't have in the past. So I think that's also part of the thing that's driving it. But the reason I say that it's, 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 gonna, it's gonna destroy this whole thing from the inside is, number one, you're trying to deny basic biology that we all know, everybody knows the truth. There's a difference between men and women and chopping pieces off yourself isn't gonna change that. Now, look, we've had trans people on the show. We always treat them with respect. We employ two people who have gender dysphoria. One of them transitioned, one not. And we didn't even know that, right? We just hire people based on how good they are. And, and how cheap they are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Um, but there's a truth that we all know and that we're being asked to deny it for the sake of an ideology. And I've seen this before, man. We went through this in the Soviet Union. We went through this. Really? Yeah. Well, I talk about this in a book. Do you know where political correctness comes from? No. The Soviet Union. My ancestors were told in Russia, uh, what you're saying is factually correct, but it's politically incorrect. And what it meant was it was inconvenient to the party line, to the party dogma. And we all lived in a society where you were forced to pretend to believe things in public that you didn't believe in private. And that is the direction we're moving with this issue and others. We're moving to a position where you cannot say the thing that you know to be true. Basic level, secondary school biology. You can't say it. And I know you've gone through this. You've said, you know, people shouldn't be fighting if whatever. And people come after you because they have to. Because they don't have an argument. They have to destroy the person instead of destroying the argument. Because there is no argument to defend this. And here's the other point as well. They're all utopians, Joe. They believe that if they get everything, if we do all of these things, we're going to reach this magical utopia where, every, where everything is free, every, everybody lives in perfect harmony. We are going to perfect the human race. Mm. But the problem is humans can't be perfected. I was talking about Shakespeare earlier. Why does Shakespeare still resonate? Because it deals with the human condition, ambition, greed, lust, fragility. All of these different things. If we were able to perfect humanity, do you think people would still read Hamlet or Macbeth or all of these works? No, we wouldn't because we would have evolved beyond that. But we don't evolve beyond that because we are human. And this idea of progressivism and we're going to reach this utopia, we're never going to reach utopia. And we're every time you try... 
people die in their fucking millions. Yeah. Every time you try to get to a utopia, you have to use so much authoritarianism to try and get, they have to shut people up. You have to put them in camps, right? That's why every time you get to, you get people trying communism or, or, or ideologies of that type, you end up with millions of dead because you have to. You have to, if you want to remake society from the ground up, right? That's what we tried in the Soviet Union, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Equality, equality. We talk about it all the time. We want equality, right? The only way to achieve equality is a huge amount of tyranny. Where do you think this goes? Well, the thing that I'm, where do I think it goes? I think it's very worrying because where it goes is anybody who doesn't adhere to the ideology, you get shunted to the side. Right, but how many people are accepting this? Right. It's the not po- the majority. No, it's not the majority. Depends what you mean by accepting. Hold on. It, it, I, we we got to clear this up. It depends what you mean by accepting, Joe. In the Soviet Union, most people knew that the system was bullshit, right? But they went along with it anyway. My granddad, in, in the 1980s, he said the Soviet Union was wrong to invade Afghanistan. He said in a private conversation, one of his friends snitched on him, reported him, and he was immediately made unemployable. And people would come up to him, his friends, and go, yeah, I really agree with you. He's evil! You see what I'm saying? Yeah. In public, he's evil. In private, yeah. I agree with you. And that's the world we're increasingly starting to live in now, where people have a public view and a public opinion and behind this. Do you know how many comedians who used to hate us on the comedy circuit for starting trigonometry now contact us and say, actually, you guys were right. Mm. Do you know how many people do that? They won't say anything in public, but we have a lot of messages like that now because people are starting to realize where we're going. So when you say support, yes, not many people publicly support it, but a lot of people are worried about losing a job. A lot of people are worried about losing a newspaper column, their reputation. We had a guy uh, who worked in a supermarket And he shared a Billy Connolly, you know Billy Connolly, Mm -hmm. the comedian? He shared a Billy Connolly routine on his Facebook. It was a routine about religion. He was fired for sharing a routine about religion from a Billy Connolly DVD that they sold in the supermarket in which he worked. Right? And we've got laws in the UK now where, uh, you know, we we had a a guy on our show who posted something about this issue, the trans issue, uh, something that was offensive. And he had a policeman call him up and say, we need to check your thinking. A policeman in the UK calling someone up and saying, we need to check your thinking behind what you said. We had a comedian recently who was on tour, not an offensive comedian at all. An audience member reported him and he had the police investigate the joke. The police investigated his joke. And, and no one, most people in the economy industry won't say anything. They won't say anything. Because they're afraid of losing the few opportunities that they have. Because that is what happens when you work in an industry where the majority of the gatekeepers come from our our equivalent of Ivy League colleges, Oxford and Cambridge, who drink this Kool-Aid, and then the people in charge of the awards saying they support the ideology. So what are you going to do? You're going to have to adhere to, in some form to the ideology, even though you may think it's bullshit. Otherwise, you're not going to progress in an industry. That is soft tyranny. It just is. Yeah. We were talking about this kind of stuff on the podcast in like 2012, when yeah. it was m- primarily isolated into colleges. Yeah. Mm. We were talking about how crazy some of these conversations they were mm. having in colleges were and how they were yelling at professors, yeah. and you yeah. are not making this safe for me. Yeah. This is not a safe space. And people are like, why are you concentrating 
on what's happening in these liberal colleges. Like I had exactly the same. Yeah. And then it spread. Yeah. yeah. Because that's what ideas do. They spread. Yeah. The ideas spread. People graduate and but then they pe- get jobs and then they enforce those ideologies on the new corporation right. that they work for. And the corporations are scared. Yes. And so they go along with it and they have these diversity and equity yeah. and, and, and inequality meetings and they try to make everything perfect and balance everything out. And then some some of these companies are recognizing it in one of the ways that they recognize it is when it starts hurting their bottom line, like Netflix. Mm-hmm. Like Netflix, before they released the J- Ricky Gervais special, they put out a, a memo saying, mm-hmm. listen, if you don't agree with the kind of content that we put out, you could always quit. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't yeah. have to in, you don't have to agree with every individual content creator that puts something out that Netflix distributes. That's yeah. what it takes. It takes people uh, in the corporate world being brave. And yeah. also looking after the bottom line. But I also think it takes ev- just ordinary people. Yeah. Ordinary people just being honest. So, again, where do you think this goes? Like, what is, like, worst case and best case scenario? Well, he'll give you the worst case. Give I'll give worst. you the best okay. case. <laughs> so, I, I, use this, I use this as a metaphor. People, and like Gad said, people you've had on the show, and I mm-hmm. love Gad. He describes this as a mind virus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I disagree with, I think the first part of Gad's analogy is correct, of a virus infecting the body. I don't think it's a virus, though. I think it's a cancer. So, think about what cancer does. When, it's, when the body is weakened, for whatever reason, cells, cancerous cells start replicating and they start spreading over the body, or through the body, they start corrupting the body, they stop, they, and think about any organization, and this holds true, and it goes through and it slowly corrupts. The other thing about cancer is that it's parasitic. You go into a cancer ward and you see people at end stages of cancer, their body becomes withered husks. And that's what happens to these organizations. They can no longer function properly. They take their money and put and funnel it into pointless like DIE programs, spend lots of money, or they make programs that nobody wants to watch. Mm. And then it bleeds viewers until what is left is an organization that is no longer fit for purpose. And that's what this ideology is to me. This ideology to me, and I'm saying this as someone on the left who believes in a lot of what the left used to stand for. This is a cancer that has come from the left. It is not the left. It is a cancer that has emanated from the left and has gone on to infect all these institutions that we used to know and love. I disagree with some of that, but we don't need to get into it. What Uh, do you disagree with, though? I think this is of the left. This is what happens when you take left-wing ideas to their logical conclusion. If you believe in equality of outcome, you will always be going for this. If you believe that people should be made equal, made equal, this is where you get to. What is the solution? The solution is to accept that people aren't made equal. Are we equal? Are you and I equal? Well, we're not math. (laughs) (laughs) But that's my point. Human Human beings have different talents. This is why what happened in the Soviet Union was trying to make everybody the same. It, it stunted the best people and it lifted up people who were lazy and stupid, mm. right? Uh, the, the, I think the, the, the solution, if you're asking that question, is to accept that people aren't equal and to create society where people we get the barriers out of people's way. Right, but that's a very simplistic version of uh, a solution, like accept. Like people are, they're balls deep in this ideology. They're all in. Oh, uh, uh, there is no way we're going to win them over. Uh, no way? Uh, no, 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 no. They're extremists, Joe. And likewise, people, there are people on the right who are extremists. You're not going to win them over either. What we need to do is win over the 80% of people in the middle. That's all you need to do. There's always going to be 
a bunch of extremists on both sides, whatever that issue is, that you are never going to reach. You're mm-hmm. never going to reach someone with blue hair on a university campus that teaches that there's 73 genders. You will never convince them. What we need to do is two things. We need to convince the sensible people in the middle, and we need to teach them and show them that they can be brave, they can be courageous, and they can speak their mind. And if enough people will do that, this whole thing will become irrelevant overnight. How do you do that, though, when they lose their job? If they speak out or if they just put a Billy Connolly routine on their right. Facebook, they get fired. You have to fight to get rid of the laws that are in place. And we, we have initiatives to do that in the UK. People are doing that. Um, and you have to create a culture in which people start to speak their mind. We're doing it right now. Yeah. We're doing it right now. That's the way to do it, man. But coming back to your point about where this goes... Uh, there is another dimension to this that we haven't talked about yet, which is what's happening in Ukraine right now. And these things are not unrelated. They're not unrelated. I'm from Russia, right? And I have family both in Russia and in Ukraine. The barbarians are at the gate. They know that we are in this divisive moment, that we've taken an eye off the ball, and they're waiting. The Chinese and the Russians, they know what this is. They know that we, we are distracted, we're weak. And actually, I think uh, the Russians overestimated how divided we are, which is one of the reasons they did what they did. Um, if we don't get our shit together, the worst case scenario is that the world is no longer dominated by the West. And I can't explain to you how bad that would be for every single person who's watching and listening to this. We have to get our shit together. Ominous. <laughs> yeah, so that's I, worst case scenario. Yeah. Best case scenario, which may happen, and I'm enthused, for example, by the unity of the West, I mean, Germany aside, uh, in response to what happened in Ukraine. Um, Best case scenario is every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and and perhaps the concern there should be that we don't overreact. Uh, Mm. You know, that's something also we're going to have to think about. But I think best case scenario is we gradually win over that middle that I was talking about. Uh, and we let go of some of these ideas and we get back on the right path, which is working towards what we started, uh, which is everybody should be treated based on their individual characteristics. Identity politics, Joe, has been tried many, many times in the history of the world, and it always leads to one thing. I think the one note, uh, another note of optimism, it's like my girlfriend always says, she's American, she's a massive Bernie bro, and she always says to me, capitalism always wins. You know, eventually... People are going to have to wake up. You're not going to drive your company into the ground. Eventually, you're going to put the brakes on this thing. When you stop making money, when you see your profit margins go through the floor, when you see competitors who don't adhere to this ideology start to streak ahead, eventually, you're going to have to say, look, we can't keep doing this, you know? Because, look, think about yourself. You know, if something doesn't work with your show, and it means that you know less people are watching, less people are in, uh, get interested, whatever it may be. You, as a business owner, you will, you look into it. Of course, you do. So that's one of the things where I'm thinking actually, capitalism will win because eventually you're not going to bankrupt and you're not going to make yourself out of a job. Now the extremists will will do that, but the vast majority of ordinary people who have got families who have got mortgages to pay will go. Hang on a second. That's what I'm hoping for, is that we come to our senses, a collective coming to our senses. Yeah, the problem is, whenever we have this conversation, we're and in the West, this is a very common thing. People underestimate the power of ideology. We think we're very rational. We're really not. Uh, ideology is a very powerful tool. And one of the things that's happening in the West is 
these institutions are being captured, as you mentioned. Uh, and once you've got the laws on the books, it becomes very hard to get them back off once you start to implement some of these concepts. So we're going to have to work very hard to challenge this stuff in a healthy way. Um, and uh, like I say, I think we're doing it right now. Yeah. I think we're having the conversations. You are. We are. Uh, we see initiatives in the UK which are aimed at preventing this sort of censorship, people being cancelled, people losing jobs for things they've said, the Free Speech Union. Uh, does some good work, but we, we, it's 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 a difficult spot. And I, I, you know, I wrote an immigrants' love letter to the West, Joe, because I I love, the, the, particularly the United States, Britain, and I'm deeply concerned that I'm seeing some of the patterns that I saw in my life, and in my grandparents' lives in in the Soviet Union. You know, my grandma was born in a gulag. She was born in a concentration camp for people who said the wrong thing. Um, I'm not saying we're there. We're not there. We're not there in the West. Let's be clear about that, right? But the direction of travel bothers me. When I see people uh, pursuing a quality of outcome at any cost, that bothers me. When I see people being divided into groups and being told that this group is good and this group is bad, that worries me. It's not a healthy direction. And a, a house divided against itself cannot stand. It can't stand. We've got to understand that, you know, the beauty of the West is we are going to have different views and different ideas about things. But we, we can't destroy our own civilization from the inside. We can't undermine the very values that built this civilization. And the, and freedom, we talked about freedom here in Austin, it's such a big part of it. You can't make the technological and scientific progress that we've made without scientists being free to pursue science. And if we can't agree on what a woman is, biological fact, we're eating our civilization from the inside. This is very dangerous. We've got to push those extremists to where they belong, and we've got to concentrate on the sensible middle of people who who want to have a reasonable conversation about these issues. And, you know, as we travel around America, we talked about how much we love it. You, we talk to people here. This is a divided country right now, man. Mm. And a lot of people are scared. A lot of people are angry. A lot of people think that the other side is not just wrong, but evil. Yeah, That worries me. That worries me because America is the thing that holds the world together right now. It worries me how many intelligent people adopt these simplistic narratives and they spout them out on Twitter for likes. Yeah. But this is the thing. It's all, and I, and I, this is so important. Please always be wary of people offering simple solutions mm. to complex problems. Yeah. Simple solutions never work for incredibly complex, nuanced problems. They might make you feel good. They might make you feel that you have the answer, that if only we do this, that you know, suddenly we're going to reach some utopia. Mm. Life doesn't work like that. Complex problems take years to resolve. And sometimes some problems are not resolvable. You can tinker at the edges. You can do your best to solve it. There will always be poverty. You may be able to reduce it, but you're never going to be able to eradicate it completely. There will always be evil people, murderers, rapists. Unfortunately, that is part of the human condition. Now, you can put steps in place to minimize it and all the rest of it, but you're never going to stop that. You there's always going to be that element of people. I think part of the problem is, and Constantine and I talk about this a lot, a lot of people in the US and the UK and all around the Western world have got what I call Western privilege. Mm. You grew up in a country that is comparatively safe. 
where you don't worry about things like electricity, where you don't worry where your next meal is coming from, where the water is clean, all these things you take for granted. Mm. That ain't normal in the rest of the world. Yeah. In Venezuela at the moment, my, you know, like I was talking to my, to my cousin and I said to him, Johan, how are you doing? And he went to me, um, well, I mean, things are tough, Francis. I collect the rainwater on, uh, in a tank on, on my ceiling of, of my house. But now people are stealing the rainwater from the, from the tank. Yeah. And, when, and here's the other thing. that And this really worries me. So when one of my friends, Henry, came over from Venezuela to see my, my, my friends and, my, um, and particularly my family because my parents have known Henry since he grew up. And we took him for a, for a meal. And my, my parents are in their mid to late 70s now. They're old people. And Henry was talking. And my dad said, Henry, I'm an old man now. Could, could you speak up? And he said, sorry, Jim. He went, in, because in Venezuela, we're used to whispering. Mm. And that's the problem, where you live in a society where people have become used to whispering. And that's what I'm seeing in the UK, where people are afraid to say what they think and they feel, where if you say something out loud, you're constantly looking over your shoulder because you're worried that, that somehow that's going to reduce your, your opportunities, your career. Mm. It might isolate you from friends. We can't live in a society where we whisper. That is not the West, and that's not a free society. Joe, and I'll tell you a couple of quick stories about the power of ideology. Um, my grandmother, who, who was born in a gulag, right, when they released people from these camps, you were not allowed to live within, I think, 100 miles of any of the big cities in the Soviet Union at the time. You had to live in a small town in Siberia somewhere. And in these towns, the only people that lived there because they were so remote were the people who were former prisoners of the camps and the people who were former guards in the camps, right? And when Stalin died in 1953... Khrushchev, who, who took over from him, exposed his great crimes and he said, these, this, is, this wasn't real communism, and blah, blah, blah. And these people who used to, who lived together, the guards and the prisoners, right? My grandmother's family, on their very landing in their apartment block, opposite them was a guy who used to be a guard in the camps. And when these great crimes of Stalin were, were exposed, many of these men shot themselves because they thought they were doing the right thing. Mm. They thought they were acting correctly by beating and torturing and imprisoning these people. It was for a greater good. It was for the right ideology. And we interviewed a guy, a friend of ours, who runs the oldest family-owned Italian restaurant in London. Right? He did a fundraiser for Ukrainian orphans with J.K. Rowling. And when she tweeted about it, he got a, a wall of one-star comments on his page calling him transphobic. And we don't know if it's related, but the very next day, someone smashed in the window of his restaurant. Right? If you're doing that, you're not a good person. You're not a good person. I don't care why you're doing it. When you're smashing people's businesses up, you're not a good person. And ideology is what allows people to feel good while they attack yeah. people, while they send them death threats, while they send them rape threats. Do you know how Stalin, do you know how the Soviet Union got a nuclear weapon? Do you not know this? No. So the Manhattan Project was probably one of the most gigantic advances in human technology in the history of the world, right? It, it cost a huge amount of money, uh, and uh, it was very difficult. The bomb that was the first bomb that the Soviet Union dropped uh, in tests was a carbon copy of one of the two bombs. I think it was Nagasaki or maybe Hiroshima. It was one of those two. 
because scientists who were working on the Manhattan Project, who had communist sympathies, they had ideology, they gave all of the blueprints and everything to Stalin, to the Soviets, this regime that had killed millions of its own people. Because they felt justified by their ideology, they gave the, the West's greatest enemy in that time a nuclear weapon. That's how hard they believed in stuff. This is the power of ideology. When you believe that you've got the right idea and you can go and burn down cities and attack people and tell people that you're going to rape them and kill them, you're not a good person. And this is what I always say to people. Don't be that thing. Don't be a useful idiot. Do not be a useful idiot. Someone who thinks they've got the right ideas and therefore you're entitled to commit violence against people or to threaten people or to cancel people and to end their ability to make a living. If you're doing that, you're not a good person. You're a useful idiot. And the effect it's having on people. Uh, one of my friends who's sadly since passed away, and I'm, I'm making the details very yeah. obfuscating because I, w I, wanna, I don't want people to know who this person was. This person was very sick. They were very sick with their illness. And I knew this person was sick. And we messaged back and forth on Facebook, not as much as I should have done because I didn't realize how ill they were. And he, he said to me, I really admire you, Francis, because you're brave. And I said, what do you mean? And he went, I couldn't do what you do. And I, and I went, what do you mean? He went, I, I, for instance, he goes to me, I just couldn't be honest the way you're honest. And it, he and he went, when people come round to my house, I've got Douglas Murray's books and then I hide them away because I know that if they see them, that I will lose friends, that I won't be accepted and that I will be ostracized. And when this person passed away, I saw on Facebook loads of people saying, what a nice person he was. And he was a nice person. He was lovely. He was kind. He was all of those things. But that's what they didn't mean by nice. Nice meant that he told the party line. He didn't challenge. He didn't stand up for himself. That's what nice means. And the thing that I hate about this ideology is they say that they're doing things to be kind. They're doing things because they're doing the right thing. We're creating a safe space. It's not a safe space. What does safe space actually mean? I don't want you to challenge my opinions. That's what's so dangerous about this ideology because it's a form of tyranny masked with kindness. And it's not kindness. It's just a different way of silencing people and getting them to shut up. And if they don't shut up, you are going to take everything from them. But what's really interesting in it isn't like the authoritarian, like in Venezuela, people know the rules. They do it because they're being kind and respectful and they're manipulating language and it's insidious and it's in our culture where now we can't define what a woman is. You ask somebody what a woman is and if they're the liberal left, they'll have a fucking meltdown. Have you seen the documentary? Yes. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> bro, watching those people. See, we yeah. all know all of the shit. We talk about it all the time. But watching those people, the way yeah. they react. Yeah. Holy shit, man. Yeah, it's wild. We're about to interview Matt Walsh and, and talk to him about it. Bro, that is the most terrifying thing I've seen for a long time. 
And it, do you know the, the the beauty of the film is that the first half an hour I was laughing. I'm like, this yeah. is really funny. Yeah. Look at him. Yeah. He's an idiot. No, 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 no. Then they got into the doctors. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my god, this is actually terrifying. Yeah. Where, where they're interviewing that doctor and she's just, you know, and she does a chicken have gender identity? Yeah. Right. Does a chicken <laughs> cluck or whatever the hell right. she says? You go, this, this, this is a delusion that yeah. is. That is just, it's an illness. Well, what's fascinating is the very question can't be answered. What is a woman? Like someone who identifies as a woman. Okay, but what is that? Yeah. Anyone who has a, the gender identity yeah. that they identify themselves as a woman. Like, what does that mean? Like, and how does someone know what a real woman feels like? If you're a biological male and you say, I identify as a woman, I think I'm a woman. How do you know what a woman is? Mm. What does that mean? I, I get it. See, the thing is, to you guys, this is like uh, weird and new. I, I've seen this. This is exactly what it was like in the Soviet Union. Exactly. You had to believe things that made no sense because you didn't want to be punished. But the people that do believe it, that have their own personal experience with gender dysphoria, mm. Mm. they, I mean, that's a real thing. It's of course. Of course. It's existed yeah. like a, throughout time. Yeah. Well, like I said, is, we employ people who have gender dysphoria. It's a fascinating portal through with these ideas trailing in behind it. That's that's what's interesting about it. How do you mean? Well, because if you accept this one thing, this one thing which is very strange, right? This one thing that not only can you be a bio biological male with a penis, but you're a woman and you have sex with women and you make that woman pregnant. If that woman identifies as a male, that's a pregnant male. <laughs> It's 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 wild. Joe, this is just a bunch of horseshit. No offense to anybody, right? But the the people obviously feel something, right? They feel like they don't belong. They feel better with a, a wig and a beard. You want to wear a wig and a beard? You're an adult. Go for it. Right. Right. We I accept people for what we, someone says to me. Look, I identify as a I identify as a woman. My pronoun. I've never misgendered people just because I I, I want to get on with people. You know. Right. I, I I'm not. It's not that important. It's not that important. However. There are situations where it is super important, right? right? Prisons. Yes. UFC. Right. Children, right? Can swimming. We all, swimming. <laughs> sports, yeah. we yeah, could say, sports. right? Yeah. There's Look, it comes from the denial of a, of a very basic thing, which is there's a difference between men and women. Yeah. We kind of forgot about that for a while there, and we need to remember that there is one. That does not mean that that should be used to oppress people or deny people rights or anything like that. But there's a difference. Do you think it signals a pivotal chapter in this whole thing that this is where, and you, you were saying this, that this is probably what's going to force it to implode. Mm. Hmm. And do you think that there, do you find an encouragement in the fact that out of the people that are completely free, and, I, and that's the word completely is probably the wrong word, but out of the people that, do commentary on the internet mm. where they don't have a network that they have to answer to, they don't have producers that they have to answer to, and executives that have this woke ideology mm. as their center point, you're seeing far more people excel and advance and succeed in rational, objective commentary. Yes. Truth, truth at oh. the end of the day, this is the one thing that... Uh, have you ever read The Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn? No, I haven't. It's the story of the gulags. It's a yeah. gigantic book. Whether that's at your own level as an individual or at the level of society, in the long run, truth always wins. We all know what the truth is. But here's a worrying thing. It depends the censorship that 
yes. is going to hit the internet. Yeah, big tech. Be- because here's the thing that we all can agree on. The Overton window for discussing and for discussion and for debate is narrowing. You can feel it. You, we all know it. We can all feel it. It's narrowing day by day. Well, we see it on YouTube, right? Yeah. Where yeah. things get censored and they, it doesn't even make sense that they're problematic. Exactly. And that being the case, you know, we all say that the internet is the great hope for us to be able to debate and share ideas. But what's happen, happening, because these companies are coming under a tremendous amount of pressure from mm-hmm. governments in order to, you know, to, to toe the to line. To keep everybody safe. To keep it, again, it's that It's thing. about safety, right? It's That's the safety. most dangerous word in all of this, because once you change the meaning of words, once you say that words are violence, yeah. Well, I'm entitled to come and bash you over the head with a bike lock. Right. Because you're you're saying things I don't like, and that's violence against me. Right. So safety is this word that doesn't mean what it used to mean. Have you noticed that? Yeah. It doesn't mean an absence of physical violence, which is the definition of safety. Safety now means people not being allowed to express certain opinions. Did you see the video where there's a woman, she's a law professor from Berkeley? Oh, yes. I did. Yeah, 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 yeah we oh, did. Oh, I did. And yeah. he's asking her questions about a woman and yeah. a woman's right to reproductive freedom. And she said, I just want to recognize that your statements are transphobic yes. and they open up trans people to violence. Yes. Yeah. That's that's the way you do it, right? Yeah. Because And you, laughing while she's and saying. And laughing while she's saying. <laughs> I just want to say, like <laughs> because, this mocking, because, condescending, shitty attitude. Of course, but what a beautiful way to shut down a conversation. Yes. Yeah. Not by shouting over somebody, but by taking the moral high ground. Yes. And once you take that moral high ground, if you then criticize me, yeah. well, you're being transphobic. Right. And I have this moral high ground, and if you attack me again, then you're in the wrong. And this this is where it gets dark. This phrase, sorry, that I keep headbutting the mic, that they always use the right side of history. Yeah. We are on the right <laughs> side of history. Yeah. And you just think to yourself, how arrogant are you that you think you're so sure of your own opinion that hundreds of years down the line, people are going to look at you and think you are the new MLK? Right. How arrogant is it? And it's so beautiful as well because they say you're on the wrong side of history and immediately your opinion doesn't matter anymore because you're part of the problem. And if you're part of the problem, we don't have to engage with you. Yeah. And it's something that I said like, in 2020 when the whole world went nuts, when you had the, the BLM marches and they were saying things like abolish capitalism, defund the police. And I had friends who got on board with this and I saw what happened in Venezuela. And I said to them, be very, very careful you don't understand the forces that you are messing with you don't understand he's seen it i saw what happened in venezuela i saw like my cousin had to flee for his life he's a journalist because if you criticize the government my grandfather was murdered when i was 31 his his murder was never investigated even though we know who did it because investigating crimes is a sign of right-wing oppression you got to be careful You've got to be very, very careful. But people who have grown up in the West, they don't understand the magic trick. And it is a magic trick because, once again, it's simple solutions to complex problems. Do you know how the Soviet Union was created? Because this is kind of relevant. No. Well, uh, the, the, the ideology, at least, is this, right? There's privileged people, which they were, right? And they have too much. And we have nothing. Not untrue, by the way, in in 1917 in Russia. 
And these privileged people have too much and we have to overthrow them. And we must take from them and distribute to everybody. Sound familiar? Yeah. And uh, in the Soviet Union, the groups that were, you know, the privileged were the aristocrats and the whatever. Yeah. And the, the underprivileged were the working people. The ideology of Marxism is based on class. What we're talking about here is a new form of it, which is Marxism, an ideology based on ethnicity, identity, sexuality. Uh, and it's the same thing, just being applied in a different way, right? There's these privileged people and underprivileged people, and we must flip the thing, right? That's why it worries me, because I, I, I do think, you know, obviously Western societies, like every other societies, have, have racism in them, have sexism, have discrimination. They're people who are bigoted. They genuinely are. I've, I've seen them. I've experienced racism, right? Um, but the solution to that is not to, to start to undo the entire Western project. That's not the answer here. Uh, and to implement all these wacky ideas. And we see the, the reality. I mean, what happens when you defund the police? Crime yeah. goes up. Surprising, huh? Yeah. So, you know, Francis and I, we, you know, we had the conversation about comedy. But, but the truth is the reason we do what we do is we're both people who've come from different societies who are deeply, deeply concerned about what's happening in the West. And for, for two reasons. One is we're destroying ourselves from the inside. But I know how people think outside of the West. How th I have lots of Chinese friends. I'm from Russia. People out there aren't talking about gender pronouns. They're getting ready. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, after the, the invasion of Ukraine, do you know what he said? He said, the purpose of what we're doing here is to push America out of Eastern Europe. That's what they're doing. They're seeing that the West is weak and they're capitalizing. They're capitalizing. And the Chinese... They will do the same if they have the opportunity because everybody wants what we have. They want the prosperity. They want the stability. They want to be top dog. And why wouldn't they? Right? And, and what happens? It look, I mean, you, you understand the fighters. What happens with fighters when they see someone is a bit weak? They're going to go after them. Right? This is how people think outside the West. We don't have time to fuck about, Joe. We really, really, really don't. Why is it that the only place you're hearing this kind of talk is on the internet? Because because the institutions are captured. Because yeah. people, you know, what happens if you say what I said on CNN? Isn't that terrifying? Though? Yeah, well, that it is. is. That's why we do what we do because we're right. fucking terrified. It is yeah. terrifying. It's it is absolutely terrifying that you see these people and they're saying these mantras. They're regurgitating. They're chanting them. It feels like you're at church again. I grew up Catholic and it feels like trans women are women. And you go, they're not. They're just not. And mm. that's not to demean these people. That's not to mock them. That's not to say that they're, you know, they're bad people. I have, a, I have sympathy for anybody who's going through gender dysphoria, which is an utterly awful, terrible mental, mental illness. Of course we have to have compassion for people. But that doesn't mean just because you go through transition that you are a woman, you are still a biological male. Mm. I'll give you an example. Question time, right, which is our biggest... A political program. It's a debate show where we they get notable people on to debate. Constantine's been on it, and they they get on to de debate various things. We had Robert Winston, Sir Robert Winston, one of the UK's most eminent biologists, and they were talking about this very issue. And they asked him what his opinion was, and he went, "Your sex is quite literally coded into your cells, into the very fabric of your DNA." The host of the program turned around, looked at him, and went. Some people may disagree with that. 
<laughs> you can't. We're insane. This, you've got a man who is eminent, who is one of the foremost biologists, explaining something that we all know is true, and you that's your rebuttal? Have you seen the movement where they're trying to get archaeologists to stop gendering corpses? And they find skeletons from a thousand years ago because we don't know what identity, what sexual identity they had. Maybe we gender. should ask them their fucking pronouns, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, the, the, I'm a, I'm a, it's crazy, man. But the language point, I used to be a professional translator and then became a comedian. So I've been working with language my entire life. Language is powerful. It is powerful because uh, look at all these words. For example, take something, a word like inclusion, right? It's a mm -hmm. nice word. We, we want to mm -hmm. be everyone included. Try going into an inclusive space if you're you or me or Francis. You suddenly find you're quite excluded <laughs> in there, yeah. right? Safety doesn't mean what safety used to mean. We had an MP, a member of parliament, a member of the most prestigious debating chamber in the world, say that we shouldn't fetishize debate. Why? Because they understand that their ideas don't stand up to scrutiny, so you have to shut people down. Fetishized debate, what did he mean by that? Is she. She, uh, what she, she mean well, by I think she. Um, and what think? she means is we shouldn't pretend that debate is a good thing. Right? Wow. Do you see what I'm saying? Wow. The way that they're using language is they substitute the meaning of words. And that, that's why I have a whole chapter in the book about it, because this is how you change the law without changing the law. If you change the meaning of words, you're changing the meaning of laws without passing new legislation. Do you see what mm, I'm saying? Yes. So this is the way that it works. And again, in the Soviet Union, this is exactly what happened. You change the meaning of all sorts of words. Um, so the, the, what's happening to the language, it's not inconsequential, Joe. All include, what does diversity mean? It's like Francis said. Diversity doesn't mean all kinds of different people who've got different opinions and different views and whatever. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means people who think the same but look different. That's what it means. Mm. Yeah. Right? And the, the, what's happening with the language is indicative of, of a bigger process that's happening underneath all of that. And and so, you know, that's why Francis and I do what we do because we're playing with very, very dangerous things like children. And we have no idea the forces that we are allowing to take over around the world. People are watching what we do in the West, everybody. Most people in England or here in, in the US don't know what's happening in other countries deep inside, right? In Russia, in China, but they know exactly what's happening here. They're watching and they're accelerating this division. You know this, the yes. Russian troll farms, the, what the Chinese are doing, yeah. because it helps them. This is what they want. And we are doing it to ourselves. We're letting them do it to us. Instead of going, no, this is not the Western project. This is not how we do things. We have debates, we have discussions, we have disagreements, but we have freedom of speech. We have freedom. We believe in the power of ideas and the power of discussion. And we believe that through discussion and scientific research and scientific progress, we get better. We get more powerful. We get stronger. And we are not ashamed of our values. We're not ashamed that we believe that all people are born equal, should be treated equally, right? We don't, we're not ashamed about this. This is a unique thing about the West. It's a unique thing. We are proud of that. And, you know, uh, we, have, you know we had a poll in the UK asking uh, people how many of them are proud versus ashamed of their country. And 35% of British people are ashamed of their country. Did they give a reason? Uh, no, it was just a poll why, yeah. right? And uh, among, uh, even among conservatives, only 42% say that they're proud. 
of their country. Now, I understand, you know, pride is not the healthiest emotion necessarily to feel about your country. You've got to have a healthy view, right? We've all done bad things. Every society has. Um, but my, my worry is about the shame, particularly in Britain, where it's less so in America, I think, or maybe not, you tell me. But it's it's this feeling that, like, we're bad people. There's a lot of that here. Yeah. We're There's bad people. There's a lot people. of people yeah. that are upset that I have an American flag on my wall. Yeah. And, and I'm here as a foreigner to tell you we're not bad people. No. We're some of the best human beings progressive human beings in the history of the world. Some of the least racist, some of the least sexist, some of the most tolerant. That's who we are. Let's celebrate that. Let's lean into that. Let's treat people on the content of their character. We haven't got there. We haven't got there. It's true. But let's try. Let's get better. Let's do that instead of destroying ourselves from the inside. And people always say, why is it comedians who are doing this? Why have you set up this as a comedian? Why have we set up trigonometry? Because at the, as comedians, we're at the coalface of this. We get to see week in, week out with the jokes, how people change. How suddenly what was a joke that was acceptable, even last month, suddenly it doesn't get lost yeah. anymore. It gets ooze. Suddenly things that you sit, you could, a joke that you could do last year, doesn't work anymore. Suddenly you feel that people, that you don't even have to make a joke. The moment you go into a particular subject, you just feel people tense up. Yeah. I had a routine about why we need a special Olympics for white people uh, that got progressively less funny over time. It was incredible. <laughs> it started out being hilarious and just got less and less laughs. And at the end of every gig, it would be the black and brown people who'd come up to me and go, I love that. Don't know why they weren't laughing. Because <laughs> because the white people are fucking terrified. But in a way, you can understand why they're terrified because yeah. they've been force-fed this ideology. If mm. you if you challenge it in any way, suddenly you're you're problematic, you're racist, you're whatever else. So you constantly live your life with the handbrake on and scared. And the tragedy is, Joe, that's not living. No, it's not living to no. have the have the handbrake on and be and and be scared because being a human being is difficult. It's hard. Every day is hard. You have to meet challenges. You have to stand up. You have to you have to improve. You have to be better. But all of a sudden, if you're having to live this life where there's tripwires around mm. you, and if you say the wrong thing, then suddenly all these horrible things can happen and you can be exposed as for the, these things that you know you're not. That's a terrible way to live. You're living your life in a straitjacket. And I think it's just really important that people understand. We use this term gaslit all the time. Yeah. Progressives always use it, gaslit. But I think what we're seeing is a population of people who are being gaslit, who are told that they're racist, sexist, that they have their internalized homophobia, <laughs> all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. When the reality is, and I really believe this, most people are honest, decent. And yeah, here's the thing. And, and yeah. here's the thing that I find really upsetting is people are, are starting to believe that they're problematic. And, and you just go, you're not. You're not. You're a human being. You're fragile. There's, you think the wrong things. Here's the thing. We're constantly in these silos. Nobody's having their opinions challenged anymore or their views. And that's dangerous because I've got stupid opinions. So do you, so do you. And it's only by voicing them and I say my mm. stupid thing that you go, hang on, brother, come on. What about this and what about that? And right. I go, actually, you're right. Yeah, I didn't yeah. think of it. And we improve and we move forward. And by doing this, we're just drilling down and our opinions aren't being challenged and we're not going to be able to move society forward. What's fascinating 
is that those kind of conversations where you can say to someone, I think your opinion's wrong, and they go, ah, you, you got a point. Hmm. That's only happening on the internet. Right. You're not seeing that on any of these major news broadcasts, any of these opinion shows. You're, you're just not seeing that. It's yeah. just echo chamber. A hundred percent. Uh, and uh, the thing is as well is even on the internet, man, like we all understand we're on YouTube, right? If this was the reverse and we were interviewing you. There's certain things that can't be said on YouTube. Right. There's certain things that can't be questioned, which comes back to the point we, we didn't really get into, which is the big tech censorship. Yeah. I find that absolutely terrifying, Joe. Yeah. Terrifying because it, this isn't a left or right wing point at all because I'm really, really not interested in that false bullshit about these two teams. I think the problem is the tribes. I don't think we're ever going to get away from it because we're human beings, right? But it's that left versus right thing that is the problem, in my opinion. That's how you get the echo chambers in the first place. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, what happened with the Hunter Biden story? Yeah. I, I woke up that day and I saw what had happened and I said to the guys, this is one of the biggest stories and this is one of the worst things that I've ever seen because once you start fucking with the electoral process like that once you start making up bullshit like this is Russian disinformation yeah. and we later learn that it's true I don't care that it's Biden or that it's Trump you can't do this yeah. you cannot put your hand on the scales in favor of one team if you are the public square you cannot do this. But that was the problem with Trump, is that he was so problematic to people on the left, they were willing to break the rules yeah. in order to hamper him and to yeah. hamper his success, in order to in, in, you know, empower the Biden team. They wanted to withhold yeah. information that they thought would be a problem. Yeah, and you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do And what, by the way, what the Democrats did to Trump in terms of Russia collusion, that was awful. Yeah. That was unacceptable. Right, particularly when you find out that the Hillary Clinton campaign was also in collusion with Russia. But here's Which the thing: makes to, sense. Yeah. yeah. So you can't. You once you start fucking with the system. Yeah. It's game over, man. Right. It's game over. And look, and we should be clear also: the big tech platforms, they don't have an easy job. No. They really, really don't. Uh, it's not an easy thing to run this. It, we're we're living through a technological revolution. The last time we saw something like this was the printing press. But it's far more, it's more impressive right. because it's something that's beyond anything that's ever existed before. Yes. Whereas these people who went, many of them, straight from college, right into positions in these companies and then right into positions of power in yes. these companies are literally in charge of the narrative yeah. of the civilized yes. world. Yes, yeah. they, they don't have real life experience in many yeah. cases. No. A lot of these people in high positions, like the guy who's the CEO of Google, he's in his fucking 30s, man. But yes. this, but That's this, crazy. Yeah, but this isn't. If I just no, make this sorry. point, you know, this isn't just big tech. One of my a really good mate of mine was a facilities manager at Downing Street, so he was in charge of the building, how the building worked. And I said to him, Taz, what are the politicians like who are coming in? What are they like? He goes to me, Francis. This is what they're like. They all went to private school, very prestigious private school. Then they went to Oxford or Cambridge. Then they went to do a masters. Then they got an internship with an MP. Then they worked as, a, as an intern, and then they worked as a political advisor, and they worked their way up. It's not just big tech, Joe. Yeah. Right. Our but, politicians right. have that as well. But big tech is where it really matters, because politicians are a lot less powerful than the people who run big tech. This is what most people don't get now. Right. They are the most powerful people in the world, and they're fucking with our democracy. That's what they're doing. Yeah. They're putting their hand on the scales. 
it, you can't pick teams if you're in that position, man. You just can't. And it's a difficult job. I, I, I am not someone who just go, oh, you should be able to say anything because it's not that simple. It's a complicated problem to solve. But we've got to understand that we cannot have these big tech platforms messing around with this with this structure that is built to allow people to express their opinion democratically. Because once you undermine that, you're going down a very dark path. Also, mm. the tech platforms are almost entirely left wing. That's what's bizarre. They yeah. lean. They almost all lean left. There's no real balance. Well, it, not when it comes to paying tax, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's yeah. Not true. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's, that's it's like a lot of liberals, very yeah. left wing when it comes to spouting things. Well, I have to pay tax. No, thank you, mate. I yeah. won't do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So that's true. You know, it, uh, we're very worried because it's going to affect everything. It's going to affect public discourse. It's going to affect comedy. And the the worrying thing is, I don't think people quite understand where this is going to go. Mm. That's the worrying thing. When you start seeing, again, the clue is in the name, progressivism, progression. Yeah. When you start to see people getting thrown off platforms. I remember we interviewed uh, a journalist, who, a former editor of Spike called Brendan O'Neill. Right, This is one of the first interviews we, we did. Mm. And f Brendan is a big free speech guy, and I love him. He's great. And he goes further, actually, than either of us oh, yeah. does on that issue. He's like an absolutist. absolutist. Yeah. No libel laws, no this, no that. He's, you know, he's pretty out yeah. there. He's out there with what he thinks, and God bless him. Right, It's not what I think, but there we go. And I remember and we were talking about free speech, and this was in 2018. And I go to him. <laughs> I remember this. Yeah, I go to him. Look, Brendan, you, you bang on about that we're getting censored. Can you give me an example? And then he gave this example, this music musical comedian who was doing Holocaust denying material, <laughs> right? And got kicked off all the platforms, right? And I just went, well, I don't care. Who cares if this nutbag woman got kicked off all the platforms for Holocaust denying comedy material? But what I didn't understand is you've got to stand up for the people who you disagree with, who you think are out there, wackos or whatever else. Because here's the thing, like we said before, the Overton window will continue will continue to narrow. And eventually, it will be you. Can we explain the Overton window to people? So the Overton window is basically the it's window... It's the range of acceptable ideas in society that yeah. can be uttered in public. Yeah. Right? So the range of things that you can say in public without being destroyed is narrowing yeah there are new and new rules about what you can and can't say why is it the overton window was i have no idea yeah okay but it just makes me sound intelligent you know? <laughs> <laughs> so but and then and then he made that was such a profound point because i thought to myself of course if you don't stand up for people that you disagree with eventually it's going to happen to you right the weapon and also this is something that progressives need to understand the weapons that you use against others mm. will eventually be turned on you. And we saw that in the UK where suddenly, you know, comedians were celebrating, you know, Count Dankula getting arrested. This guy, you know, the Nazi pug yeah. story. Hilarious. Yeah. 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 Hilarious. And they were all celebrating, you know, because he was problematic. He was anti-Semitic, blah, blah, blah. And then on a radio panel show a few years ago, a left wing journalist called Joe Brand made a joke about left-wing comedian left yeah, yeah left-wing comedian made a joke about a right uh, a right-wing politician made an off-the-cuff quip about throwing battery acid in his face it was on a comedy panel show it was a joke right then suddenly she gets investigated by the police we need to wake up and realize that if you start using these weapons against your enemies it won't be long be long before they wake up and they're going to use them against you and once that happens, we're going to be in a very 
dangerous place in society. This is where the point you made about the age thing really matters because when remember we talked about my, the contract that I turned down? Mm -hmm. uh, when I went on TV, there was a woman who uh, she was. We were debating this issue, and she was she was unpleasant. She she shushed me, and all sorts of shit happened. Anyway, I met her years later because uh, we were supposed to like hate each other, and we we did a bunch of TV together. And actually, she's a nice girl. We we got on very well. But she said to me, "I realized cancel culture is a problem when I saw it happening to my friends." Mm. These people are young, man. They don't think through the consequences of what right. they're doing. Uh, and so I do think that some of them can be won over when they haven't gone fully off, off the deep end. Uh, we can win people over can by... Can I just stop you? Should, do we need to win them over by cancelling them? They will see some of, some of the, the stuff when, when they experience it for themselves. Yeah. You know, There's nothing like... Uh, you know, Solzhenitsyn wrote about it. There were, there were people in the camps who... Um, who only realized the problem with the Soviet Union when they were the ones at the end of the barrel. Mm. Don't be that useful idiot, man. Don't be. Don't be. Th I mean, I'm not talking to you, obviously. No, I you understand. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very fascinating to me that these conversations that we're having are so unusual. Mm. Is that, and that this is kind of the only way you can have them. The only way you can have them is in a kind of format like this. Mm. And that these things that you're saying, although they're very logical and they're 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 based on reality and history, they're uncommon. That's very strange. Mm. My hope is that the popularity of these kinds of conversations, like your show and my mm. show and a lot of other shows like it, mm. that this is sort of an unexpected twist in the narrative that people didn't see coming, and that the freedom that we enjoy before the Overton window slams shut on us. Mm. It does give us the possibility to spread this idea and let people recognize that this is a genuine, real problem mm. that although it might make you feel better to deny it, it might make you feel mm. better to go along with it at work or at school, it ultimately will lead to a far more suppressive environment than the one you're experiencing right now. And it's not just that, Joe. You're denying people's humanity. People often go to me, oh, Francis, are you left or you're right? And I'm like, no, I'm just me. Stop yeah. trying to label me. Mm -hmm. Stop trying to put me in a box. My girlfriend is very left-wing, Bernie bro. I don't agree with a, a lot of her politics. I think they're nuts, if I'm being honest. God bless her. And people go to me, well, how can you have a relationship? And I'm like, because there's love. Because it's more important. Mm. We need to start seeing the humanity. You can have a friend who's conservative. You know, we employ you know, a Christian conservative. She's a wonderful, sweet, kind, beautiful person. We need to stop Who thinks this. we're going to hell? Yeah, I mean, yeah, she does. <laughs> yeah, because we smoke weed, but bless her. But we need to stop this. Stop seeing someone as, a, as something to put in a box yeah. and just start seeing it as Joe or whoever it may be. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you about the, the people that work with us, right? Uh, I'm, I'm going to get a lot of emails now, but we only ever employ people who, who ask to, to work with us, right? And we're not looking to employ anyone right now, by the way. But yeah. And our team, we've got, uh, so uh, conservative Christian, we've got a guy who, uh, this is a funny story, man. We've got a guy who's from a Sikh background, his family is Sikh. Uh, they moved to the UK via Africa. Uh, and he was telling us that when he was, he was working on TV and he didn't want to work on TV anymore because uh, <laughs> in the last two years, people started basically, they, he was just a token there. They were just looking at him as his race and then mm. and they'd be like oh well you know blm happened how are you feeling about this mm. 
the guy's from a Sikh, but what the fuck does he have to right. do? Right? And so when he came to us, he was like, man, this is such a relief to be working in a place where we don't care. We were looking for someone to make the thumbnails for our YouTube videos. So we, we put the word out um, and we, we got a bunch of responses and we picked the best one, right? We picked the best one, been working for him with, for a while. And then he goes, by the way, I'm trans. And we're like, by the way, we don't give a shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. You know? That, and that's, yeah. and, and we have genuine diversity in terms of our team because we don't give a shit who you are or what you think. We just care if you do a good job. Yeah, that's how it should be. You I know? mean, really should be that way. And and I have a lot of friends that are conservative. I'm not conservative. Mm. But I do have some conservative ideas. Like I support the Second Amendment. And mm. I believe, yeah. I be, I'm kind of a free speech absolutist in a lot of ways too. Mm. I just, I think that there's a, a lot of room for people to just have conversations and talk about things. And one of the things, it's kind of, it's kind of died down because it wasn't effective, but I would get attacked a lot for platforming people mm. yeah you know that was the big thing like having a conversation with like ben shapiro who mm. I, I like ben shapiro mm. i like him a lot i don't agree with him on many things particularly about gay rights mm. or not not necessarily gay rights about what well, you know he's very religious and he doesn't believe that people he thinks you should treat it the same way you treat murder like i'd like to kill that guy but i won't because it's wrong he he fills out yeah mm. i know it's like yo <laughs> yeah yeah but it's uh but Joe, here's the thing it's just an opinion exactly yeah. exactly and he's a brilliant intelligent guy and i love talking to him even if i don't think that some of his ideas are sound mm. or even yeah. you know that they're a problem i think you you're supposed to have conversations with people and that's how you open their eyes if you make them the enemy they're never going to mm. see your perspective no. I have a friend uh, who, who, sorry, Francis. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend who oh, I get on with very, very well. And he is uh, like a Green Party member. Green is like ultra, ultra left. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm an immigrant. He's British. And we sometimes talk about like uh, immigration, right? And he's like, I believe in open borders. And I, and I explained to him what that, that actually means and what the, and he's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I just like the idea. Yeah, and that's optics. okay. That's okay. I I can be friends with him. I think yeah. it's a demented idea, right? Open borders. It doesn't work. Human beings aren't wired that way. It's never going to work. It's going to cause an awful lot of trouble. I say that as an immigrant myself, but I don't have to hate that guy. What, right. I don't have to reject him. We're friends. We can play basketball together. We can we can go have dinner, and our wives like it. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And this is the problem. This comes from the internet, where we see other people. Mm as an avatar, Richard yes. Grannon on our show talked about this, where we've spent so much time on social media, we just see other people as avatars, and that we, we can't have a discussion, we have to destroy, we have to win, we have to, we have to humiliate them, we have to be the one who wins in the discussion. Whatever happened to just agree to disagree? And just accept that people see the world differently, because here's the thing, your experiences and my experiences of life are fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. They just are. You grew up in a different way. I grew up in a different way. Different countries, different cultures, different experiences. As a result of that, we're going to see the world in a different way. And here's the thing. That... That's valid, and that's fine. And because we experience the world in a different way, we're going to have different political opinions, maybe. We're going to have different opinions on a wide variety of things. That's cool, and it's fine, and it should be celebrated. Let's stop trying to have this uniformity of opinion because, again, you're denying people their right and their opportunity to be human, to be multifaceted. multifaceted. Nobody is right. Nobody is left. We're all 
take something from everyone. Now, some people are right and some people are left. I would argue. Like we just spent uh, a couple of days with somebody. Who, like I said, we've got a friend. I've got a friend who's on the in the Green Party side mm. of things. We just spent a couple of days in in DC with with uh, doc, uh, Sebastian Gorka, who's like a Trump attack dog, mm. you know, and a bunch of his Christian conservative friends. I've never had a better time in my life. Mm. You know, we went to a gun show, shot some guns, had dinner, talked about interesting things. These are polite, respectful, decent people who care about this country. You don't have to agree with them. Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. have to agree with them on everything, right? Don't you think that this is a very unique time, though, that I'm exposed to the way you think in a way that I would never be exposed yes. to this mm, 50, yes. 60 100. years ago? That's why when never. people complain about the Internet, I'm like, there's a lot to complain about, but also this is the best time ever. Joe, it's a window into humans. 300 years ago, Joe... Everybody in this room would have been burnt at the stake. Not Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think he would be, but by association, <laughs> right? So, and like we said about Carlin and Hicks and Pryor, yeah. this isn't the f cancel culture has always existed. Sure. But we've always got to be vigilant that we don't allow it to run amok. Yes. And we have done. Yeah, we, we, we have allowed it to run amok in some ways, but we've also opened the discussion that yes. it has run amok yes. in a way that never existed before. Yes. And this is what what might be our water for the flames. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and here's the thing: when we were spending time with Seb, you know, we started talking. They, they were, you know, they were very, they were on the right Christian conservative. But I said, look, one of the real problems I have with America is your lack of socialized healthcare. And they put forward their argument, but then a lot of them disagreed with each other, and they started to have a debate about it and go, mm. look. And then one of them went, look, it's obvious the system isn't working. Another one went, I've got this friend who's really sick, and mm. they can't get the treatment. We need to do something about that. So that was my point about on the right. Even on the yeah. right, they still disagree, and some of them were saying things that, like this idea that someone who's fundamentally ill needs to be taken care of by the state, that's a left-wing opinion. Yes. Yeah. So even on the right, you're still going to have things on the left. Well, yeah. this is what happens, like you say, Joe, is, is when you take your foot off people's throat and when you you stop making them feel that they're evil for having an opinion and you just listen and hear and discuss, yeah. that's when you find out human beings are actually quite complicated. Yeah. And you can change people's minds sometimes just by listening to them. You don't and, even need to say anything. And a lot of times the opinions that they have, they've taken out of comfort. They've yeah. taken these opinions because it's easier to subscribe to a predetermined mm. pattern of ideas and opinions mm. than it is to form your own. If there is a very clear-cut ideology that you can just subscribe to and all of a sudden that makes you a good person or accepted in your community, it's mm. very easy to do that. Yeah. And that's where you get the people that whisper. Yes. Yeah. I agree with you, but yes. this is like a real problem. Did you see that cartoon in The Spectator where it's a guy putting a, a flame to, yes. to someone on the pyre yeah. and he goes, actually, I agree with you. Yes. Yeah. That that it's cowardice. Yeah. Cowardice is a big fucking problem, man. Sure, it's always yeah. been a problem. It's a yeah. problem with humans. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of cowardice, uh, this person that thinks that you're going to go to hell because you smoke weed. Yeah. Is that? It's a joke. It's a joke. joke. Yeah. Did, oh, did I don't know. Really? Maybe she does. No, I, don't, I don't know. What uh, is the What's the attitude about weed in the UK? Well, it's illegal. Totally. So we only smoke it when we're here. Oh, you want some? Sure. Yeah, let's oh, do it. Don't be scared, homie. <laughs> what, scared? Why would I be scared, man? Our weed is better than your weed. <laughs> All right, come on. You know what? <laughs> it probably I, is. I'll tell actually. you something, man. The thing about weed being illegal is when we are in places where we're actually allowed to smoke it, it's so much better because you're not worried and because you can pick what you want and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's incredible, man. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm a little puss-puss when it comes to weed, so I just go into the shop and I go, look, just give me the mildest thing on the menu. Mm. And they go... This is what we normally give our girlfriends. You, you go man. away and you enjoy <laughs> that, man. <laughs>
Mm. Uh, now that we're smoking weed, I'm taking the shirt off, There you man. go. There you go. Cut loose. Next level. Yeah, man. <sighs> yeah. I, this is one thing that I do have hope for, is uh, the implementation and adoption of psychedelics. Yeah, I think uh, if there's anything that's going to change people's minds, that's going to be one of the things. Yeah, because it's going to change your whole understanding of what is rigid and what what structures exist and why they exist and yeah. and why you think the way you think and it'll make you question yourself in a way yeah. that I don't think anything else. Ha- Can <clears throat> I tell you a story? This isn't about psychedelics, but do you know that there's more than one way to get there to that place that you're talking sure. about? I studied a lot of hypnosis mm-hmm. um, in my twenties. And there's this exercise that you can do in hypnosis called deep trance identification. And the idea is if you put someone into a deep hypnotic state, their identity, it's it's almost like a set of clothes. You can take off your identity. Yeah. And you can try on a different identity. You can try on what it what would it be like to be Francis and Ghana or, you know, whoever whoever it is that you want to understand how they do what they right. do. Um, and uh, I did this, so I, there's two stories I'll tell you about this. So I did this once uh, in, on a course that I was doing with a woman. She was this very mildly spoke, mild spoken, soft, softly spoken South African woman. Uh, and she wanted to try on being some kind of like American, she was I think religious, like even evangelical preacher. Don't know why she wanted it. But anyway, so we put her into this trance, took her through the process. Uh, and, when, and, and then we said, open your eyes. And she opened her eyes and holy shit. And she was speaking like, this this guy, right? So when I, I when I was doing this exercise with me being the one, I thought, you know what? I want to do this with the universe. I want to feel what it's like to be the universe. So the guys put me in this deep trance, take off your identity, try it on. And when I opened my eyes, I just felt connected to everything, to every human being on the planet. And um, you know how the universe is expanding? Mm-hmm. I felt like my heart beat. I was, the, the, the idea that I got is what if the expansion of the universe is one half of a heartbeat of some kind of creature? That's what I got. And I know that people who take various psychedelics and stuff like that sometimes have a similar experience of deep connection with other people mm-hmm. through this thing. And that's why I'm not someone who's, I don't believe in God, but I know that we're all connected in some way as humans. There's something that unites us. Um, and I don't know what that is, but the fact that you can get there different ways tells me that it's real. There's something. I, yeah. I never say I don't believe in God because I don't know what, even know what that means. I don't know. I, uh, do I believe that everything that man has written about religion, all the religious texts or the, an accurate interpretation of the will of God? No, I don't believe that because I think there's too much that's cultural in that. There's too much that is like a sign of the times, the laws and the rules of the land. So it's clearly got the hand of man all over everything. But like, why did they write it in the first place? Like, what were they feeling and experiencing that they wanted to lay down ground rules and, and, and talk about some connection with with the almighty? And maybe there is a thing. It just we don't know what the fuck it is. You know, we're we're stuck in this strange sort of very limited existence for a very short amount of time to figure things out. And most of the time you're alive, you're trying to manage your anxiety. Mm. You're trying to figure your way through this maze of civilization and Mm. culture and conversations and relationships and friendships and business and bills and mortgages and all that shit. And in the meanwhile, you're a part of this massive super organism that is but a speck in the atom of another being that is far more infinitely 
not just impossible in size to consider, but that's a part of something that's far more impossible than that. That mm. so much of what we see, like in fractals, we like to think that the universe is so vast and so amazing that that's it. What if it's not? What if the universe? What if this idea of the infinity of the universe is like it's just a, a part of a cell that's a part of something far greater and far larger? We are here, but a brief instance. It's so fucking short that most of the time you're just trying to figure out what's going on and then mm. it's too late and then yes. it's gone. And you hope that you've transferred some of your wonder and some of the information that you've accumulated during your lifetime to the next group that's gonna look at it and they're gonna have a little bit more knowledge, they're gonna take it to a little bit better place and hopefully they're not gonna blow themselves up before they work their way through many of the problems we've already worked our right. way through. When you were talking earlier about <clears throat> this is one of the greatest times ever to be alive like Pinker gets criticized all the time for mm. his conclusions But his work is pretty clear when mm. he's talking about is if you go back in time and you look at all the the, the Violent crime and the murder and the rape and the, the, mm. the just the chaos of life It's way better now than it's ever been before yeah. mm. people are way kinder they're way and I think out of all the bad things that the internet has done, one of the good things is I genuinely think it's made a percentage of people way nicer. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, also as well, we live in a world now, well, particularly in the West, where a lot of, most, a lot of people aren't religious. They, do, they don't feel that they need religion. They feel that religion is stupid, that it doesn't make sense, blah, blah, blah. And I'm talking to someone who's an atheist. But you're people, not an atheist. Yeah. No, you're not. You're not. What you're do you agnostic. Think? You're mm. not an atheist. Yeah. You don't not believe in oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Are you agnostic as well? Would you yeah. feel? I I would say that I don't believe in God as I already did, mm. but uh, I I I do believe in something greater above us. I don't know what that you is. You just yeah. not like to use that word. Do you think like I've I've heard people say that before? Like that word God. Like they try to reclaim it because they say that so many people have attached it to like the modern idea. Of what a you know a, a vengeful God is based on their interpretation of the Bible. Yeah, I know. I I, th I go deeper than that to be honest, because yeah. if you look at how gods have been used throughout history before monotheistic religions, mm -hmm. before religions that had one God. Yeah, God was always a way to explain things that human beings couldn't explain scientifically mm -hmm. at the time that they were living in. Right, the God of rain, the God of lightning, the God right. of fire, the God of war. Right. Um, so to me, I, I worry about using that word, not because I'm scared or whatever, it's because I don't think it accurately describes what I think exists, right? Right. And what I mean by this thing above us all is not some kind of being, it's the deep connection that all human beings at the end of the day have with each other. Do that's you, what I, that's because, sorry Francis, just yeah. to finish this point, right? So you can meet somebody who's a completely different race, doesn't speak the language, doesn't do anything, and with just the basic movement of your meat, yeah. you can connect with that person. Right. Quite at a deep level. Yeah. There's something that unites us. And, and it's also, COVID taught us this. Like I said, we feel that we've moved beyond it. We don't have this need for religion. But when we're all in lockdown, yeah, we realized mm. what we needed more than anything was connection. And you can see it. Look at the way mental illness skyrocketed over lockdown. Consumption of drugs, alcohol, gambling, yeah. all the pornography. They all skyrocketed because when you don't have connection, you're not, you're not human. We need to feel connected. Yeah, it's fundamental to us. You know, Jordan Peterson had a very interesting take on this, and I'm going to butcher it, mm. but because uh, I don't remember it totally. But I think his take was like someone was talking to him about whether or not he believed 
in the God of the Bible, whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ. And I think his take was that if you live your life as if it's real, you'll have a better life. Yeah, I don't. It's like it's not necessarily a thing you need to question. And that's an interesting perspective. And people could disagree with that. And there's a lot of people that I'm very good friends with that are absolutely atheists. Mm. And they have this very fatalistic view of this life that it's here and it's gone and you're never going to figure it out. And you're, you're conscious because you're suiting a purpose. You're part of this uh, biological machine. You know, you're part of the food chain. And your, your consciousness enables you to, uh, you know, continue to innovate and continue to create and contribute to this thing that allows people to breed out of control and mm. create technology that literally can change the surface of the earth. Yeah. You know, we, 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 what we're doing is very, very strange. We're, we're operating together as a gigantic super, super organism that's making technology. Yes. And uh, here's what I think about that way of looking at it. It's it can be a very powerful thing for some people. Yeah. Like for me, uh, I am down with that way of thinking to some extent because it it's a great way to live because every moment is the last moment. Mm -hmm. Every I could be dead right now. Right. Hmm. And so every moment that I live, especially now when I have something that I love doing, like like trigonometry, and and my son is born, and I I want to be present. That's why we say the grace at the beginning of the meal. I want to be present for every moment. Yeah. Because I want to make the most of it. Because I don't believe that there's another time this is coming around. On it, the one hand, does it benefit anybody to believe that there's another time? Is there a benefit in believing what you believe? Well, here's what I'm saying. So that's for some. Like Richard Dawkins is happy being an atheist. Yes. His life is fucking great because he's the sort of person who can. When you ask him, well, what, what are you inspired by? He will say, by the beauty of nature and mm -hmm. by this and by that. Yes. But not everybody is Richard Dawkins, man. No, we're all different. Well, he's also at the height of intellect, right? Yeah, exactly, capable yeah. of dissecting exactly. reality from yeah. emotion and feelings in a way that a lot of people can't. And there are other people, and I know such people, and I love such people, people in my family, who cannot be that way and be happy. Right. They cannot process the world in that way and be fulfilled because their fear of death or because of something else just doesn't allow them to experience life fully unless they believe there's another world. And that's okay too, right? Who am I to take that away from right. them? Yeah, I think I feel that way as well. I really do. And I'm in the I don't know camp. Hmm. You know, when I talk about the vastness of the universe being a part of an atom that's in another being, like that's what infinity is. Hmm. Right? I, don't, I don't think we could wrap our puny little brains around it. And if there's some sort of a force, some sort of a thing, but it's not, you know, we want to... You know that the thing that we do with uh, cartoons. What's that mm. phrase when uh, we humanize cartoons? Oh, anthropomorphize. Yes, anthropomorphize. Yeah. We I think we want to do that with the uh, the the living entity of the energy of the universe, mm. which is so crazy to mm. think that it's a thing, like yeah. that it's a god, a thing. It, it might just be a force. Yeah, like fire, like causes trees mm. to burn. Yeah, there might yeah. be a force that creates things. Right, and yeah. it it might. Uh, we're so limited in our understanding of what language is and what thoughts are mm. and trying to express ourselves mm. We're so burdened by the weakness of the chimp structure of our bodies that we're like this some sort of hybrid between an animal and an enlightened mm. being mm. and what if it's past all that mm. and it is the the very source of Everything and it brings things to it in a very messy way and that's what we're doing We're moving towards this source of ultimate love in the universe in a very very messy way by figuring it out through itself but here's the thing joe and this is maybe this is part of the beauty of life maybe we'll 
we just can't figure it out right. because we're simply not capable. Like an ant doesn't know you're hovering your hand over it. Yeah. Or like we don't you have can't, the senses for it. Yeah, you can't explain. Is that true? I don't think they no, do. No. I don't really? think they have any idea what's going on. I don't I, know that. I think the perfect way to explain it is like it's, it's like trying to explain the tax system to a cat. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> yes. That's a very good way. That's a great joke. <laughs> Man, that's a solid joke. I'm Jewish and even yeah. I couldn't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's a solid joke. Yeah. yeah. So, so maybe that's it. And that maybe that's part of the journey of being human, that yeah. we only ever get to a certain point and we're never going to reach it. But the magic is and the purpose is in the striving of it. Well, I think that and then the the idea, if you believe in evolution, is that this has always been going on. The idea that it's done now, that we've mm. finished, da-da, we made it. That's ridiculous. Yeah. If we go back to early man, to early hominids, and you look at us, we're a very different thing that it interfaces with the world in a very different way. And that's not going to end right here. It's going to yeah. keep going. That's why I'm not afraid of change, because it's inevitable. It's inevitable. You yeah. can't be afraid of the internet. You can't be afraid of all these things. It's very, very important. It's very important to understand that this is beyond all of us. The idea that you're going to stop AI, shh, shush. <laughs> just shut the fuck right. up. They're not stopping nothing. They're going to make yeah. it, and it would be a real danger in terms of national security if we didn't do it. If we didn't study AI and we allowed China and Russia well, that's what I was to saying, do the right? AI, that's wild. Yeah. yeah. You, know, yeah. you have to think about China. Like when people have this view of China, China has been a civilization for 4,000 years. Mm. Yeah. And they survived and thrived like in the early days of human civilization. They've yeah. been around forever. Yeah. Mm. You don't think they would just jump on AI and use it to, to dominate the world? See, Joe, this is what the people who believe in uh, fairy area, everyone uh, don't understand, man, is we're bands of chimps. Yes. We're bands of chimps. Until and, we make the AI. You're right. But, but, <laughs> <laughs> That's what uh, my fear is. But, but here's yeah. the thing. We're only yes. going to make the AI that makes us lean into that shit even more. The, the technology just allows us to be who we are at a more powerful level. I don't know if that's true. You don't? I think we're some sort of an electronic caterpillar. And we're going to become some kind of a butterfly. I do, think we're going to. You don't we're, think we're going to do what we've always done, which is just take the technology and kill each other in different ways. I I'd think say, it's real possible that artificial intelligence becomes the new form of life. I think it's real possible. I think once it actually can make decisions and become sentient, and it has logic and no emotions, and it can decide that it wants to prosper. Now, there's got to be a reason why it prospers and procreates, right? There's, does, if they don't have biological reasons, like why would the AI do anything? Why wouldn't it just sit there? It doesn't give a fuck. It's not alive. Why would it want to exist? It doesn't have emotions, right? It doesn't have emotions. It's not filled with lust and greed. Like why would it want a super yacht? It's just <laughs> right. It's just there. It's just there. <laughs> we, we would want all those things because we are people. Right. So it could be that artificial intelligence already exists. It just doesn't act. See, it, it already is broken through. It just has no need for our nonsense. We think of it as being like a dumb artificial intelligence, like an artificial intelligence that we created to mimic us. Mm. Mm. But it, we, we're connected to emotions and our tribalism mm. and all the chaos that we've already expected out of Earth because that's all we've ever known. Mm. We, we expect these patterns will continue. It will have zero expectations of how to live and exist. But if we make something that is a life that's way fucking smarter than us. It's not gonna let us blow everything up. It's not gonna, it's, it's gonna put a stop to it. If, I disagree. If it, if it needs to, in order yeah. for it to exist. I disagree, See, if I disagree. you're both thinking too high level, you know what's gonna dictate whether a technology- I a dick joke is but coming. But I do wanna hear you disagree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so you know, it's, the thing that is gonna dictate whether technology, all of this is the porn industry, man. 
that could be true too. That yeah. is true. When I you told look, you that was a dick joke, Cummy. No, yeah, but, sure. Like virtual reality. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's you know when it's going to take off when you're going to be able to fuck someone with your VR goggles on. I think they're pretty close. Yeah. I think they're getting pretty. I don't close know why I said that. yeah that confidently. I have no <laughs> they, inside they information have. on this issue. <laughs> right. I mean, we might be fifty years away or whatever it is, but they have those haptic feedbacks. Yeah, now. they do. Those are cool. Yeah. I played. Uh, there's, have a, you? there's a thing yeah. called Sandbox. There's one in Austin and there's one in uh, Woodland Hills in California. Mm. And you go into this place. There might be more of them. You go into this place and they give you a haptic feedback vest and you put on a helmet. And uh, we do, I do it with my whole family. And you you go into these games mm. and you get to like you're on a pirate ship and you're fighting skeletons and they're slashing at you mm. with swords. And when they hit you, you feel it. Yeah. You yeah. feel like haptic feedback. And right. it's wild. It's yeah. all VR. And I'm watching this as a kid who grew up with Pong. <laughs> I remember when Pong came around, we were like, this is crazy. We're controlling the TV with knobs. And then here I am with my kids, and one of my young daughters killed me with a fucking sword. <laughs> we're in like some sort of, uh, like, there's like a combat fight. You have like yeah. these crazy weapons, and you're living in the future. It's wild, man. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of crude in that you know it's not real. But there's one called, uh, I think it's called Deadwood Mansion. Is that what it's called? where you're in a fucking haunted house and zombies are running mm. at you and you're gunning down the zombies and when you're shooting them, they splatter and then they hit you, you see red and red splatters. Mm. And I'm like, we are close. Right. Yeah. We're close to yeah. recreating all kinds of experiences. Yes. Like this is Pong. This is Pong to mm. what we're gonna feel when it can interface with some sort of a Neuralink type system mm. and give you an artificial experience. Mm. That's fucking coming, kids. Mm. That's coming. And if it's better than real life, good luck telling kids they have to go outside it is better than real life though may i say why not I disagree? right now it's not i don't think it is but i think it's on the way may i tell you why i disagree yes please we are going to invent forms of weapons using the artificial intelligence way before we invent something that is capable of the type of intelligence you're talking about I think you're right. So and you the think opportunities use that to blow and the opportunities up? to destroy ourselves are going to be so multiple because the world is getting so much more complicated all the time, yeah. right? The number of things that can go wrong is much bigger than in the past, right? 5,000 years ago, there was no technology that could have destroyed the planet. Now there is, right? Right. And that is going to continue. The, our ability to destroy the planet is only going to get greater. It's going to take a smaller mistake to destroy the planet as technology gets more sophisticated. So you feel it's just human nature that if we have control of artificial intelligence, the first thing it's going to do is devise weapons of insane No, no, no. We are going to devise the weapons using artificial intelligence before there is any overarching artificial intelligence that could take care of us. Do you see what I'm saying? So you're, you're saying the kind of artificial intelligence that's already available, not like general artificial intelligence, which is what they think of as like a sentient being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean like stuff yeah. that we can do to mo like YouTube I algorithms what or so whatever. I don't think we disagree. So you're yeah. saying that this artificial intelligence that's in place right now that they already use for a lot of things yes. is going to be used and make weapons and it's going to be we too are gonna overwhelming. We're going to use them and we're going to use them on each other. We're going to blow each yeah. other up. Yes. And if we don't... Artificial general intelligence is what I'm talking about. Oh, if we artificial, don't destroy ourselves, I'm, yeah, I'm just convinced we are. That's all. We may. You're right. We've dropped bomb. I mean, whenever talks about, anybody talks about anything that anyone's done anywhere in the world, when they talk about horrific things, I always say, dude, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, mm. were, that is insane. Yeah. That was a 
completely untargeted city mm. in the sense that like they, there's not like there's an army there and they're shooting at us and we're shooting no they just nuked cities that the kind of death and destruction that must have happened on those days to be a person who's an innocent person living on this regime in this city mm. And know that the consequences for something that you've done nothing mm. to, all you've done yeah. is live mm. your life. Yeah. All you've done is work in a market. All you've done is yeah. do whatever the, you've been a farmer. And then your entire world is obliterated yes. instantaneously by an atom bomb for the first time in human history. And it's happened in your fucking city. Yeah. Well, you know what? In terms of the, the bombings, Hiroshima and Nagasaki weren't really that big a deal. In comparison to the fire bombings. In comparison to the fire bombings, in comparison yeah. to what the Germans were doing in the Soviet Union. I understand, right? but there's a thing about the instantaneous yes. nature yeah. yes. of those bombs that was uniquely terrifying, yes. which is why we haven't used them since. Yes, mm. agreed. Do you have a fear that Putin would use one? A nuclear weapon? Yes. Uh, so when I was on Question Time, uh, that program of Francis, they asked me this question, and they said, if pushed, would he use them? Now, my understanding of the word pushed is if he feels that his life is in danger. Mm. That's what I mean by pushed. Right. I think in that situation, he would, he would use them. However that does not mean that they would end up being used. He may press the button, but the signal might not get to the destination. You see what I'm saying? Yes. There is a team of, it's not just a, a button that releases nuclear weapons, there's a bunch of people in between. Right. Right. And if some of those people think that they have a chance of survival, that this is a personal thing against the leader, what's their, what is their rational what is their rationale for pressing that button down the line? How terrifying is because that? Because the answer it's is death. Few people. Yeah. But the answer is death, right? If you're yeah. in that situation, you, your family, your kids is going to burn to ashes or die in a radioactive wasteland. Yes. Mm. So why would you push that button if you felt there was any chance of survival at all? That is one of the biggest fucking sources of anxiety for people is the idea that we're living in this conflict that we have zero control over that might lead to a global thermonuclear war at yeah. any moment in time the wrong buttons might get pressed and the wrong people might get mad or the wrong military decisions might be get made and mm -hmm. someone just tries to fucking do something wild and yeah. we didn't really think that that was a, a possibility until this ukraine invasion yeah i think the ukraine invasion opened up a lot of people's eyes because there's so many people from ukraine that have relatives in russia and vice versa yeah. Mm. Yeah. it's it's not like you're you, you you might be at war with your own mm. people like yeah. people that you are literally related to yeah. Like yeah that's what's crazy i have family on both sides it's wild yeah. The, the idea is wild, and the idea that the, the country has such extraordinary control over the narrative of what the people know about and hear about. Mm. Mm. It, it, well, 80% of Russians get their news from TV, and yeah. the, the message is very consistent and very clear. We're about to be attacked. Mm -hmm. uh, NATO is about to destroy us. Uh, Ukraine's full of Nazis and all of this stuff. Uh, completely baseless. But that if you feed people that line long enough... That's what they're going to believe. How do you think this plays out? Uh, I think anyone who attempts to predict this is bullshitting, man. No, you can't predict things like this. Right now, the situation is Russia is inching forward. Uh, both sides are losing a lot. Uh, I think what uh, the, the Russian strategy is to, uh, to wait until winter. That's what I'm being told. 
to hold out until winter, and by winter they think they can persuade the Germans to essentially sabotage the Western efforts to stop them. I think that's their plan. How that goes, uh, how do we know? We can't predict that. Um, and in the meantime, it also depends on what's happening on the ground, right? It depends on what Russia is going to do. It depends on what uh, the Western powers do in terms of providing weapons and ammunition and all of that. Uh, so we've got no idea at all. It's so wild. And when you hear the government bragging about how much money they're sending over to Ukraine to help fight the Russians, it's like, maybe you should shut the fuck up about that. <laughs> maybe that one you might want to keep under your hat. Uh, yeah, oh, you mean in terms of talking about it publicly? I mean, I'm joking, but I'm saying like the, the idea that we're, we're essentially paying for this war. So are we at war? Or like what, no. At well, what point no, no. in time do you become at war with Russia? You're not you're, paying for this war. No, you're no, 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 you're no. supporting a country that's defending itself. I agree, but that's. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. What I'm saying I'm not, is, I'm not saying they should. I'm just. I'm not saying I don't have an opinion about it. It's for American taxpayers to decide that, right? It's not American soldiers, mm-hmm. but yeah. it is American money, yeah. right? So you're funding the war. Not and again, I'm not saying I'm against this. Yeah, but I'm saying wh- at what point would someone who knows we're funding that, consider us at war with them. They already consider us at war with them. But, I mean, enough that an attack would be warranted, like that someone would do something. If the United States is so vulnerable, I mean, if, if someone just attacked our, our power grids, there's a lot of vulnerability in the United States, right? Mm. Yeah. If they just did that and shut the power down for six months, I mean, how, how effective would we be at almost anything? Like, we're, the whole world is vulnerable at this point in time with nuclear weapons, mm. but, but we're, we're all particularly vulnerable. And if there's some sort of an engagement going on like that where we're funding and maybe people believe we should, maybe we should, mm. I don't know. Mm. But this is what they're doing is they're funding this war. They're helping Ukraine fund this war right. at least. And ah, so I'm your not concern is this. the blowback from I'm Russia. I'm not even concerned. I'm just saying, at what would you, it, not just blowback from Russia, blow, blowback from any country that, where we would do this. Mm. At how much money do you put in before they go, oh, you're at war with us? Mm. Mm. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you think about all the different times we've done this, yeah. all throughout history, in, yeah. to aid armies mm. and, and fund them and yeah. give them weapons, at what point in time would someone who opposes those people feel like we're at war with them? Yeah, I see what you're saying. So in Russia, the narrative is that we've been at war with the West this entire time. The entire time. Yeah, well, this is a defensive action. Because, because of NATO. Because we are quite, this is the Russian version, you understand? I'm not right. saying I, I believe this. I'm saying that the, the, the argument, not the perception of the Russian people, the argument that is being made is that we are, uh, you know, it's siege mentality. Right. Right. And so that's what people there think. So from their perspective, they already feel that we're at war. And have done from the beginning. Now, if you're talking about kinetic war, right, then I think if the only way that becomes an issue is if the United States gets directly, or NATO gets directly militarily involved. It's like you start shooting down Russian planes or shooting Russian tanks, then, 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 then of course, well, but apart from that, I don't see it because you talk about vulnerability. America is the least vulnerable country in the world. You're the world superpower. Yeah, but, but even the world I'm, I'm not saying you're not vulnerable. Oh, of course. Yeah, I'm not I, saying I, know, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I think um, what's terrifying to all of us is that we didn't expect this mm. and we don't know where it's going. Yeah. You know, and that mm. it's happening. It's 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 happening to this place that used to historically be connected as the Soviet Union. Mm. Yeah. It's it's fascinating to me. But here's the thing. People are terrified. In the, yeah. People are terrified in the UK because 
we've bought into this idea that the West has eliminated war. You know, with a few pockets right. of things going on, yeah. but we're safe and we don't have to concern ourselves with that about being having another country, you know, being aggressive and invading and whatever else. So we've bought into that and we felt really safe, so safe that we've eliminated it from our minds. Mm. And this has been an incredibly sharp wake-up call. This has been a slap to the face around the West. And it's what it's saying is, you ain't as safe as you think you are. Mm. And, and the world ne- and the world doesn't change. There will yeah. always be war. Have you, ever, you read anything by Thomas Sowell? Yes. Have you read A Conflict of Visions? No. He talks about... Most of what I've seen of Sowell, just watched him speak. Yeah. Mm. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, he talks about two visions of the world, right? The constrained, what he calls the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. And the constrained vision says that human beings are flawed, human beings have certain predispositions, human beings aren't rational, human beings that behave the way they behave. And the best way to understand how they are likely to behave in the future is to look at how they behave now and how they've always behaved, right? right. And the unconstrained vision is essentially progressivism. It's the mm. belief that this can be changed fundamentally, right? Is the belief that if you, um, if you do enough social engineering, you're going to get to a position where people are going to stop being the way that they are and we're going to build new people, a new man. Uh, this is what people said in the Soviet Union, Homo Sovieticus, right? A new type of human being can be created. And th- we view the world now through that vision, through the progressive vision, the idea that there would never be war, the idea that people would never want to attack us, the idea that, you know, when I went to university to study politics, the, the thing that was doing the rounds at the time was, they called it the Golden Arches Theory of International Conflict, which was that no two countries with a McDonald's had ever gone to war. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's hilarious. Yeah. And the idea was, everyone's too fat to, no. The idea was... The corporately involved, yeah. and they'd prevent the, that. There's so much trade right. going on yeah. that it just doesn't make sense for countries to attack each other. Right. Right? Because, and that is a belief that human beings are rational. Right? You believe that people will always act in their own self-interest as they understand them. Right. But they don't. People act because they want status. People act because they want power. People act because they're scared. People act for all sorts of irrational reasons that don't necessarily correspond to the reality. And I think we also have to take into consideration that when you're talking about Russia, when you're talking about the population, they're not as exposed to information, yeah. to the free flow of information as we are in America. Yeah. They, there's a lot of people that might have these notions in their head based on what they've seen on television. They might buy it hook, line, and sinker. Mm. Yeah. And, and there might be good people. They're just duped. Well, most people in Russia are good. Most people in every country are good. In every country. Have yeah. you ever traveled to a country where most of the people were assholes? No. <laughs> New York. <laughs> New, York. Yeah. New York is a bit like they're that. A little, they're, they're a little celebratory in their assholishness. Yeah, they mm. are. They, yeah, they call it a New York attitude. Hey, I'm from New York. <laughs> they love it. They love it. It's a, yeah, it's a badge of honor, you know? Yeah. A lot of, like Ari Shafir always talks about that. Like the people that are woke people at the comedy clubs who yeah. yell things. He goes, they're not from New York. He goes, they're from fucking Maine. <laughs> and they move down New York and act the way they think you're supposed to act when mm. they get here. But you know what I love, uh, actually, uh, is how people, like you said, who are really celebratory about their, you know, their, you know, their virtue or whatever else. Yeah. A lot of the time when they get home, they're really dreadful people. A lot of times to the people they work with, they're dreadful people too. Yeah. Yeah. We've heard that time after time. Yeah. There's a progressive radio host. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I say to like somebody, oh, what are they like? They went, 
he is a twat to his yeah. producer. Oh, 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 we know that. <laughs> and this guy is like, this is the, the male feminist on camera. Yeah. 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 You know, oh, women respect. Uh. Yeah. yeah. And he's groping them behind the scenes, man. Yeah. We've seen that so many times. Same in comedy. All the, all the, all the very, you know, the one, the, the, the more the right someone's opinions. Yeah. Yeah. The, the more naughty they are behind the scenes. And the more yeah. angry they are about enforcing them versus like yeah. being a, com a compassionate person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a new version of the fire and brimstone preacher, yeah. like the Jerry Falwell. Do you remember yeah. that case? Yes, of course. Yeah. I remember him crying. Oh, <laughs> God, I've sinned you. Pull that up. Pull up Jerry Falwell <laughs> This crying. is incredible, man. It's an amazing clip. And what was, he, was, was he snorting coke for co no. co hooker or something uh, yeah, afterwards? Yeah, he had hookers and yeah. shit. He was yeah. going crazy. Yeah. He yeah. got a little too crazy, and they, but the thing <laughs> is, back then, he didn't even have a Facebook. Like, you couldn't <laughs> counteract this with a nice blog post. He couldn't have checked into a clinic for sex no, addiction. No, that was not no. available. So what he had to do was cry on TV, and it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious also because he might have really meant it. You know, maybe he did really start off originally as a man of God and then lost his way. Yeah. You know, and then got corrupted, just like a, a politician. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't know, man. I think they go into that line of work for a reason. You yeah. know maybe, I mean? maybe, but maybe they're, you know, raised in it and they yeah. really do believe part of it. You know, I, Kinnerson was a religious man until he died. He believed in God, even after he abandoned being a preacher. He never became an atheist. So Kinnison believed in God whilst yes. living, was living a life of ultimate debauchery. Well, he was having a good time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he believed in God. Yeah, I mean, he was. if you ever listened to, you can listen to his sermons on yeah. YouTube. They're really? fucking fantastic. Really? You can listen to Kinnison's yeah. sermons? Yeah, there's like one of, I think he's got at least one, maybe two that are available that you can listen to when he was just doing uh, religious sermons. And they're amazing. Like his ability to express himself was so powerful, so compelling, so interesting, and his his belief, you know, what he was saying, and then it was about God, and then later it just became about comedy, you yeah. know, and it's but it's really the kind of the same energy. Man, that story about Kinnison's death in the Comedy Store documentary, yeah, is so powerful. Where he looks up into the sky, and goes, "I'm not ready, I'm not ready." Yeah, yeah. It's, his um his brother wrote a great book about him. It's called Brother Sam. It's amazing. It's a really good book because it sort of details the whole story of Kinnison. And one of the parts that most people don't know is that he was hit by a car when he was a, a young kid. And when he got hit by a car, he became a completely different person after he recovered. He became super aggressive, like impulsive, wild. Mm -hmm. Those are telltale signs, telltale signs of mm -hmm. uh, traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like that happened to Roseanne Barr, the exact same story. Hit by a car when she was 15. She was a grade A honor student, right? Honor roll student. She gets hit by a car. She can't even do math anymore. She's in a mental institution for nine oh, wow. months. You know, like so when everybody was going after Roseanne, I was like, hey, you guys got to understand, like for, you're dealing with a brilliant person who's like legitimately mental Ill, mentally ill for a good reason. Mm. Like this is a person who's got an injury, a brain injury from being hit by a car. And that brain injury made her not give a fuck. And that's what a lot of people that have gone through those kind of things have mm. for some strange reason. They get reckless and wild. Certain type, I mean, it's obviously it's not, mm. they don't know what the exact amount of force causes the good version. Mm. And Joe, do you people. know the thing with what you're saying there is? This is the power of conversation because I didn't know that. Mm. And I saw you get her on your show after she said that. And even I was a little bit like, <gasps> do you know what I mean? Yes, I do know what you mean. Yeah. And that's the power of these discussions because you get more context to a thing. 
but the headline in the media is mm. Joe Rogan gets racist comedian on. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. He, she really 100% did not know that woman was African American. 100%. Right. Mm. right. She said, "I thought that bitch was Jewish." <laughs> she, the woman, if you've ever seen a photo of her, have you yeah. seen a photo of her? No, right. no, I haven't. Jamie, see, you know who the lady is, right? Find a photo of her. Yeah. Um, but Roseanne, you have to realize, is heavily medicated, right? Yeah. She's taking Ambien, she's smoking weed, and she's drinking, and she's tweeting, and she's a wild, crazy lady with a brain injury. You're talking about a person that was in a mental institution mm. for nine months. That's the woman. She didn't know that that lady was black, she says. Right. You know, look, first of all, one thing you got to say is Roseanne does not have the best eyes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, she's, when you, my eyes suck and, you know, I'm in my 50s. She's, yeah. she's like deep into her 60s. Your mm. eyes start to go. Yeah. Not, not saying it for that, but before we get to that. But yeah. I, she genuinely did not think that woman was African American. Mm. She was just drunk, ambient tweeting mm. and t saying a bunch of wild political shit. Like, she believes wild shit, man. Like, she believed, I, when she was on the podcast, I had to tell her that chemtrails are not the <laughs> government spraying things in the sky. And I mm. had to explain that for a TV show, we actually investigated this. Mm. And we explained how this jet engine, it makes a lot of heat, it mm. goes through the condensation, and it literally makes fake clouds. That's what it is. They're clouds that are made out of jet engines. Mm. And she's like, oh. I thought they were spraying. <laughs> like she, she listened to me. Like she, she took it in. Like she's, she's, she's just a brilliant comedian yeah. who is a legitimately mentally ill person and mentally ill because of no fault of her own. Mm. Literally yeah. from getting hit by a car. And see, that's how long it takes to tell the story yes. of one human being having one incident. Yes. In the public sphere. But she was in the worst case scenario. You're on a yeah. sitcom. Yeah. A sitcom is like, you, there's no room for fuckery. Mm. If this was on a podcast, she could have talked her way through it easily. Yeah. But a, in a sitcom, they just decided to fire her. Right. Clean the yeah. house. Right. We're gonna, she's going to kill. She's going to kill her off. They killed and, her character off. And this is a point as well. Does she come back? Is there forgiveness there? Because in a lot of these cases, when people have transgressed, mm. there's no forgiveness, I Joe. think she has forgiveness, just not with networks. I don't think she needs to do that. I think she should do a podcast, and I think she should just do stand-up. Look, 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 I agree with you. That's completely the right route yeah. for her to go. She'll crush it. She's naturally hilarious. She's got an audience, all of those things. You mean as far the, as the public? Yeah. No, not as far as the public. As far as the industry. I mean, if I was her, I wouldn't want to have anything to do with the industry anymore. No, mm. I agree with it's you. Just too, it's, too it's too dangerous. There's but, too many different people that'll fold, you know? But this is the thing. These people are from the upper echelons of society, from the colleges. They've been captured. So they're never there's never going to be any forgiveness. Or if it is, it's years and years and years down the line. What's mm. also, they're, they're, it's a risk assessment thing. Yes. Like y y the optics of hiring someone who's been canceled, uh, you could get attacked. Mm. And if it succeeds, you're lucky and it'll be good for the network. But if it doesn't succeed, it's 100% going to be all on you. And to even float that idea out there, you, there's got to be a risk reward ratio that's mm. overpowering. Mm. So you'd have to think, like, what would be the risk? The risk would be people you attack you. What's the reward? Like, how much better is she than this other person who we could mm. cast and not right. have any of these problems? They're just right. going to go with that lady. Right. But here's the thing. Then you're eliminating some of your best talent. Yes. Because the most, the most, some of the most brilliant people, look at the artists that we're now canceling or saying are awful. Look at their lives. They, yeah. Some of them are objectively awful people, criminals, some of the vilest people. 
but they make brilliant art. So what are you going to do? The, you know, if someone has transgressed and you're just going to kick the artist out of the room? We all know what Jackson did. We all pretty much agree on everything that he did. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> There's a lot of people questioning that shit. Yeah, that is a good point. Do but you... what are you going to do? You're going to throw, you're going to throw every, the greatest pop song ever written, Billie Jean in the bin? Yeah, that's a problem. Like, he's so good that people will listen to him even if they're convinced he was a pedophile. Right. Like if Beat right. It comes on, you know, or Billy Jean, or I'm Bad. Yeah. Mate, I, I'm not going to tell you who. <laughs> That's quite good, I'm actually. Not, I, <laughs> everybody gets excited. It's I'm a not good gonna, song. I'm not going to tell you who, who, who said this to me, but it was someone who I'm close with when we were talking about the Michael Jackson thing. Yeah. And, and that person was just like... Uh, I, just, I just like the music. <laughs> Dude, you go, go back and listen to You Want to Be Starting Something. Yeah. That was before all the accusations. We could feel clean. Right. <laughs> and knowing. Put, play that song. Yeah. Play that song. No, I, I'm listen saying... Listen to this song, though. It's so good. It's <laughs> so good. Can I just say, this is the most high conversation I've had in years, <laughs> and I'm doing it to fucking millions of people. Yeah, you're supposed to have these in public. Good for people. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, I mean, what year was this? This is 78. Is it? I think it's 78. So how old do you think he was here? Uh, hang on, is this from Off the Wall? I think so, yeah. It is 78. Yeah, it must I think it's Off the Wall. That's a great song, too. Yeah. Released 82. 82. Man, I'm looking forward to the headlines. <laughs> so three comedians thriller. defend Mike, Michael Jackson based on comedy. No, uh, we're not defending him at music. all. No, I like, no. 100% don't know what he did, but I do know that the family doctor, that guy who went to jail yeah. for sedating him, yeah. said that he was chemically castrated. That his father had chemically castrated him in order to keep him in a falsetto voice. Holy shit. shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's what the doctor who what? went to jail for. Keep that going. Oh, okay. <laughs> Keep that going. Keep it oh. going for a little bit. You're dropping truth. You're dropping truth bombs. I don't also now. I don't know if this guy. Obviously, this is the kind of doctor that's willing to fucking sedate a person. That's not an ethical right. person. Yeah. Right? I don't know if he's lying. Yeah. But he did say that Michael Jackson was chemically castrated. Now, as someone who got fascinated with castrados. That, that they used to do that with young boys. Right. They would castrate yeah. them so they would keep a certain tone. Mm. Like yeah. deep. There's a guy that they recorded who's a castrato. Have you ever heard it? There's like one recording. Find, find the one recording of a guy who's a castrato. It's haunting. Right. It's a guy who, as a boy, they chopped his nuts yeah. off so he could make a certain noise. And so I thought, when I listened to Michael Jackson, I'm like, listen to that voice. That's so different than any other male voice. Mm. Yeah. Especially when you get into like the Billie Jean era. So this was a person who is castrated as a boy and then grew up to become the singer. Now knowing what you know about what created this, Tell me this isn't a haunting sound. We don't know how old this guy is though during the recording, yeah. right? I don't know. I mean, it's nearly got four million views, Joe. So. I think three million for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's this is wild, man. Yeah, man. I mean this is uh Wow. That's a sound they wanted to achieve and they're willing to cut off boys' nuts. Like, how did they even figure that out? But, but if you were Michael Jackson's father, 
and the Jackson 5 is this huge hit and little Michael is the number one star. <clears throat> I mean, you remember those days? A, yeah. B, C, it's the easiest one, two, three, she. He's so fucking talented that he's the youngest, and all his other brothers gotta play backup to him. To a nine-year-old, man. If he's you were an evil person, hmm. and I'm not saying that this is what happened, but if you were an evil person, and you said, I need to keep that voice like that forever, hmm. but that, he, that would be the way you would do it. But I, here's the thing with Jackson as well, like. It wasn't just his talent and his voice, Joe. It was his ability to connect with the song. Do you remember when he did that rendition of Who's Loving You? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, however old he was, 10 years old, he, yeah. he shouldn't be able to sing with that much emotion, that much connection. Now, maybe it's because he was a kind of astral-level performer, but you did really feel that he knew that what he was talking about. Yeah. There was a soul and resonance to his voice, which... It wasn't just his voice. The man's performance mm. was magnetic. He's, he's the greatest of all time. Well, I think you have to look at him in the context of his whole family was entertainers and all of his older brothers were entertainers. And so as the youngest, he's got to catch up, mm. right? And so he's in this incredible competition scenario with professional entertainers that are 10, 15 years older than him. Like mm. how, how much older were his brothers than him? Yeah, they, they were, were significantly older. Significantly mm. older. So they were grown men, right? And he was this young boy. And so he had to be so goddamn good that everybody paid attention to him. Mm. Mm. But it wasn't... I remember reading in that uh, Randy J. Tarborelli autobiography, which is brilliant. He, When he was touring with Motown, he was literally watching the greats in front of him. He was, he was watching, you know... Um, uh, Smokey Robinson in the Miracles. He was watching, you know, uh, up, upbeat dance numbers. All of these different people, and he then watched it and incorporated all of their styles into one performer. So I can't remember the ex the mm. exact examples, but so for instance, the falsetto of Smokey Robinson, he incorporated that into his performance. I think it was the dancing. I think James Brown might have been on. He might have been on one of his tours with James Brown. So he saw like James Brown dancing incorporated that. Mm. Until what you had was the fusion of the perfect performer. Because you got to remember, this kid never went to school. Right. He never experienced school or hardly any of it. This was a kid who was taken and the only thing that they did with him is transform him into the greatest musical performer of all time, modern day. It's a very similar to Tyson's journey, if you think about it, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson was nearly in school, was never really in school. He got taken over, he got taken by Customato, and they trained him to the point when he was still youth, right the way to become heavyweight champion of the mm. world at 18. Those are people, and you, you hear you, Tyson explained it on this very podcast. I think he was 20. He was 20 when he won oh, the sorry, world title. Was it 20? Yeah, and Custom Auto took him in when he was 13. Yeah. yeah. So that was the same journey, that dedication to that mm. single thing. Yeah. It's, um, it's also in the same way that Mike wanted, like, recognition. Yeah. He wanted to make Cuss proud. He wanted to be something. Mm. It was he his dad. This, and, and also had a terrible life up until the point where he was adopted by mm. Customato, right? So now all of a sudden things are going well for him and he wants to just show everybody how great he really was. Yeah. How great he really is. Well, if you're the youngest child and everyone's a fucking performer, like you, it's probably very hard to mm. like make your mark. Yeah. So he probably just became hyper-focused on performing and who knows what the fuck actually happened in terms of all the, the chemical castration allegations, but that doesn't, 
That doesn't seem illogical. Joe, can I ask you something as like a fellow podcaster? Yeah. You know um, that moment when you had Teddy Atlas on? Yeah. And he was talking about Mike Tyson. Yeah. How do you handle that? Because when he was talking about Mike Tyson never um, winning a fight. That none of them were fights. Right. Yeah. Because here you are, you're sitting with some someone you like and respect, I assume, right? Mm -hmm. And he's talking about someone else you like and respect? Yes. And he's talking about him in a negative way. Well, I let him express himself, first of all. Mm. That's the most important thing. I want to know why he thinks what he thinks. And I want to let him say, look, he's the boxing expert. I'm not a boxing expert. I don't agree with him that Mike Tyson never won a fight. I think Mike Tyson was so fucking good for so long that no one could hang in there with him. Saying that is like saying Roy Jones Jr. never lost a fight until he lost a fight. That's ridiculous too. Of course he, I mean, could never rather rather right. never won a fight mm. until until he uh, was in wars and lost fights. There's there's times where people are so much better than everybody else that everything looks easy. Mm. But you got to give them credit for that. Of course. <laughs> like you get like when he knocked out Larry Holmes, he, even though Larry Holmes is like I think he was 36 at the time, that's still Larry fucking Holmes. He knocked out Michael fucking Spinks, okay? He knocked out Frank Bruno. He knocked out some killers. He knocked out a lot of beasts. Dudes who were really good fighters. What well, was it? Burbick? Was it Trevor Burbick? Yes, yeah, we, that's we, who he won the title with. Yeah, who won the yeah. title? He yeah. went up against a heavyweight champion of the world and yeah. demolished him, demolished him, and knocked him on his ass. Demolished him. So, Mike was a force of nature for mm. for several years. He was an unstoppable force of boxing knowledge and and drive and desire and determination and and knowing his place in history. Like he knew he had a legitimate chance at becoming the heavyweight champion at 20 to be one of the greatest of all time. And he did it. He was one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest heavyweight of all time. In my era, my time when I was a young mm. man and mm -hmm. I was watching boxing and he was the heavyweight champion, it was the most exciting moment in all of sports. Because when he would fight, everybody would like grab, grab the cushions of the couch and be like, fuck! Because he was just smashing everybody. Mm. But I remember when Tyson was fighting, and this was in the 80s, and I was in primary school. I, re I have memories of us sitting down and talking about who would win right. the Tyson fight. And this is kids who are about eight years old yeah. in a playground. That was the thing with Tyson. Yeah. He had the energy. and when the, the, Because there's great boxers who... You know, win heavyweight titles, and you go, okay, great, whatever. Great boxer, technically, yeah, 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 yeah. But Tyson, he had that fury. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, the entertainment value was off the charts mm. because he would, he would win so often by knockouts, spectacular right. knockouts, and ultimately that's what people really love to see. Mm. They love to see a guy just closing in like doom and just dropping yeah. hammers on a guy. They love it. Yeah, mm. this is why I'm grateful. Like watching your show got me into the UFC, man, because yeah. because the whole thing is built on that basis. They're trying to make every fight as exciting as possible, right? With the incentive mm. structure and, and and all of that. Now I know you don't actually. You don't agree with that, do you? I don't like incentive structures. Mm. I think they're incentivized already. I yeah. do, but more than, more than that, what I really don't like is um, a win bonus. I right. don't like that. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I don't like that. Why it, not? Because sometimes the judging's wrong. Like sometimes fights are really yeah, close, and that will true. cost a fighter fifty percent of their purse, and I oh, think wow. that's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. I think it's not. I, I think they should get paid. A, look, I'm not a businessman, first of all, and I'm never promoted a fight. Yeah. But if I was a fighter, I would want to get a flat rate for each fight. You're gonna try to win. Yeah. And if you're not gonna try to win, you shouldn't be in the UFC. And yeah. That's gonna be real evident I, I once you start you getting that. beat up. I hear you on that. I didn't mean win bonuses. I meant 
like performance-based bonuses, like submissions. They're okay. They don't no- bother me as much. Yeah. They don't bother me as much. I'm fine with that. Yeah. I mean, that, that if people want to go for it and make a more exciting fight because they want a bonus like performance of the night, right. like, maybe that will incentivize people to do that. But I don't think... I don't think the win bonus incentivizes people yeah. to fight any harder. I no, think I the, agree. I think the problem is, especially when you're really well matched, you can only fight a certain way. Like, here's an example. Like, a lot of people were upset that uh, Israel Adesanya's fight with Jared Cannonier wasn't the most exciting mm. fight. Because that's how you have to fight Jared Cannonier. Mm. Like, if you want to win, mm. that's how you have to fight. Like, this idea that everybody should make everything exciting and just go in there guns blazing right. against a guy in Jared Cannonier who had knockouts at heavyweight and light heavyweight and middleweight. He's an enormous middleweight. He's super powerful, super dangerous, mm. and he's on a win streak, and he just knocked out Derek Brunson. So you're stepping in against this guy who can close the lights off on mm. basically anybody if he clips him. Jared's a powerful guy. You have to fight him that way. He's in phenomenal shape. You can't just rush in and he's going to get tired. He's not going to get that tired. You're going to wow. you're going to he's going to be able to hold that pace with you for 5 rounds and he did. So you have to fight that way because if you don't fight that way, he clips you. And then you're fucked because you opened doors, you mm. left mistakes, you you left openings that shouldn't have been there and wouldn't have been there if you were fighting cautiously. Mm. Because you got to know when you can attack and know when you can't. And when you're better, like striking-wise, partic- in particular, like a guy like Stylebender, when you're better, you impose exactly the amount that you, you need to in that moment right there. And if you push further, you might hurt the guy, but he might hurt you. But if you stay at this one range where you know you're completely in control, you can basically just run it. And that's what Stylebender can do. And when he's at his best, when he's in there with a guy who's not capable of standing with him, he just picks him apart. Just picks him apart. And they can choose to make big moves at him in which time he'll counter like Robert Whitaker did in the first fight. Or you could do the approach that Robert Whitaker took in the second fight, more grappling heavy Mm. and more cautious in the way he Mm. rushes in. But you only can fight the way you're supposed to fight in that moment. You know what you can do physically. Like he's a striking virtuoso. You know how tall and long mm. he is for the division. So that's how he's supposed to fight. Mm. That's how that fight's supposed to play out. It's not like Jared Cannonier's not terrifying. He's fucking terrifying. You gotta fight him like that. You but, see, I would argue, Joe, that the people who would say that fight are boring are not actually true fans of the sport. That's not true because Henry Cejudo, I think, said it, who's a two time world champion and the super exciting. I think some of these guys they're saying it because it's a public thing, pop mm. like a popular thing to say that's mm. not exciting. Yeah. Or some of these guys might have this opinion that you have to also put on a show Mm. and to do so Mm. you have to put yourself at risk i see both sides i really do because i see the side that it's got to be super entertaining and and when it is it's definitely more fun to watch Mm. but i also see the side as as a martial artist i love when someone fights intelligent that's like one of my favorite fighters was mighty mouse because he was Mm. he was he was not getting hit he was Mm. when he was in his prime he was just running over people in Mm. a way that was like unprecedented he, at a, a certain point in a fighter's career is when you have to judge him, when you look like the greatest of all time. Mm-hmm. And I make an argument that Mighty Mouse at one point in time was the greatest of all time. Do it's, you think he doesn't get that that plaque because he's that small? That's part of it for sure. The people think it's easier to move that way when you're 125 pounds mm. versus if you're 225 pounds. Mm. And they're right. They're right to a certain extent. But you still have to appreciate what he was able to do. If he has physical advantages because he's smaller, so fucking what? Look at what he's doing. Look what he's doing to other people that also have those physical advantages. They're all so small. 
Mm. And he's fucking these people up. Mm. So there was a time where I felt like Mighty Mouse was the greatest of all time. But then there's the John Jones argument, which is mm. also... He beat everybody. John Jones beat everybody. Maybe he's the greatest of all time. I mean, do you think if it wasn't maybe with him, be, if it wasn't for the extracurriculars, he would be unquestionably the greatest of all time? The problem is with John Jones, the extracurriculars are what you get with John Jones. Like the the part of him that's wild. He's a wild dude. Mm. That's why, like when he fought Shogun mm. for the title, he opened up that fight with a flying knee. <laughs> Who the fuck does that? <laughs> Who the fuck, who the fuck, at 20-something years old, I think he was 22 years old, opens up a fight with Shogun with a flying knee. That's insanity. Yeah. That's so crazy. Shogun's a legend. He's the right. light heavyweight champion of the world. Right. And John Jones opens up the fight with a flying knee. But here's the thing. like, So we're talking about the greatest of all time. Yeah. Do you think if we turn our attentions to boxing very quickly... Floyd, that, that surely must mean Floyd is the greatest of all time. I believe that Floyd Mayweather is, if he's not the greatest boxer in terms of talent of all time, you could say that he's the greatest fighter of all time. He's definitely the greatest at, in terms of like figuring out how to make money, the greatest of all time. <laughs> and he's the greatest of all time at not getting hit. The greatest. If you go and look at all the other greats, the Sugar Ray Robinson and... You know, the Marvin Haglers and Tommy Hearns, Roberto Duran, early Julio Cesar Chavez, early career Ali. Like Henry Cooper dropped him and had him yeah. badly hurt. They had to yeah. cut his gloves. They had to like do some Fugazi stuff on the gloves and give Ali a bunch of time to recover. Because Henry, who, you ever see that fight? Your man. Yeah. British. British yeah. guy. Did, did you hear what Ali said afterwards? What did he say? He said he hit me so hard, my my ancestors in Africa felt it. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's see that, and then we'll watch Jerry Falwell. That is we still such an Ali Jerry quote. Falwell. Yeah. It wasn't him, by the way. That's what I was trying to bring up. It wasn't him crying? No, it was Jimmy, Jimmy Swaggart. Swaggart. That's right. So which one's Jerry Falwell? Did he, he was cry? a preacher. Yeah, did he get things. busted, too? Yeah. He had stuff going on, too, but he didn't Was cry. it the same thing, hookers? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's this? This Jerry Falwell. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. Damn it. I, I had them confused. <laughs> Jerry Falwell was now going to say wherever he, he is. He might. We might have a problem with that, right? Mm -hmm. Did he get... What did he... We might have to cut it that out. I forgot. <laughs> One thing at a time. I don't know what he did. What's the Muhammad Ali thing I'm looking at? Oh, up? Muhammad Ali getting dropped by Henry Cooper. Yeah. Yeah, man. Holy shit, man. Yeah. Oh, man, but the UFC is so exciting to me right now. It's like a growing sport. It's changing. It's evolving. You can see the techniques are becoming more refined. Like you always talk about the leg yeah. kick. Like it's getting better. That's why it's so exciting, man. It's a complete. Yeah, here it is. So this is like 60. What is this? 64? What yeah, I think 64, 65. 66. Oh, so Henry Cooper was a solid heavyweight. And yeah. he had a really good left hook in particular. You know what they call him in London? What? Oh, Emery. Bless him, he's no longer with us. Why R. Emery? R. Emery, Be because he's R. Henry. Oh, I get it. Yeah. So that was his like nickname in London. I want to see the knockdown because it's a serious left hook. I think this is like after Ali got up, dude, because he's all cut. I think it winds up stopping the fight. Yeah, that is worse video. I just want to see the part where he gets dropped because it's pretty. I think this is like the whole fight or something. Oof. Oof. Holy shit. Yeah, it was a crazy war. But Henry Cooper legitimately clipped um, Muhammad Ali and dropped him and had him really hurt. You see, that's part of the, the problem with Ali is that because so much of his career was in this kind of black and white, you know, we can't truly remember yeah. him. 
Yeah. Well, he will, yeah. Because the content will never be as good as Floyd Mayweather. It's way before that, Jamie. It's early in the fight, and they, they take Ali's gloves off. And when they take Ali's gloves off, he has all this time to recover. Right. And then when he has all this time to recover, he comes back mm. and he's okay. He's got, there's not a video of him getting dropped. Doesn't. How weird. Mm. Henry Cooper, Muhammad Ali, Henry Cooper knockdown. Yeah. Here I think goes. if you put a knockdown. Yeah, maybe knockdown. No. Damn it. Wow. Sons of bitches. It's okay. We're not going to find it. You'd have to go through the whole fight. Oh, it said that right there. It said <laughs> not. Hold on. Go back to that screen you were just showing. I'm waiting for the fifth round suffer in the fourth. It said something. Is, is that what it said? It's probably, yeah. I think maybe it's the first fight. Yeah, the first fight is when the one where he got dropped. So it was 63. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. We're See, <laughs> he caught him there with a the left hook. And by yeah. the way, look how skinny uh, Ali is back then. Yeah, right. He's a different fighter. Yeah. Like, he's he's smaller and, you know, less experienced. And so Cooper caught him young. Oh. Look at this. Oh. Right here. Right here. There it is. Bam. Whoa. I mean, that is a fucking serious left hook. Whoa. Right? Holy shit. I mean, shit. he's gone. He's fucking gone. And he wins the fight after this? Yes. Yeah, so yeah he comes back this, and wins it. This knockdown happened at the very end of the round. So he goes back to his corner, and his corner man realizes that he's fucked. And so he, to buy some time, he, he cuts one of the gloves, allegedly. There was a problem with the glove. The glove malfunctioned, so they had to mm. replace the gloves. So they had to go get new gloves. I think that's the story. Yeah, it is. Is that they Anything they cut his gloves on purpose? That adventure of his saved Ali this fight and the future. Yeah, that's yeah. basically what they're saying. Wow. wow. So they did something. They did some shenanigans. Because <laughs> if if not that, Henry Cooper wins probably by knockout. But here's wow. the thing with Cooper. His big his big weakness. You know, this was his eyebrows. They were yeah. very thin. Yeah. So immediately, if you landed a good few shots on him, he'd start bleeding profusely. Right. You know, that's a scar tissue. That's yeah. what that is. Yeah, a lot of yeah. guys have that. Like yeah. the Diaz brothers in the UFC have that. Right. Quite, they quite bleed all the time. Yeah. Right. If they get that. hit, they just, you know, and Nick has had some work done to try to fix that. Hmm. Joe, I'm going to ask you this question because we're starting to see this getting talked about more and more, and especially in the mainstream press, CTE, in particular with contact sports. Yeah. Like they're talking in soccer about, you know, eliminating it from certain age groups and blah, yeah. blah, blah. And yeah. Where, where do you stand on this? Do you think it's these contact sports are ultimately going to be unsustainable because people are suing people? I think you're never going to stop people from doing what they want to do because if you stop them from doing that, you have to stop them from dirt bike riding mm. and riding horses. and you you got to stop people from doing anything that's dangerous. No more rock climbing. But we are doing that. We're banning you know cigarette smoking in some yeah. places. In mm. New Zealand, they're trying to phase it out completely, yeah. right? Yeah. It's true. People are doing that. But the, in terms of sports, there's a great long history of people playing football. There's a great long history of people playing rugby. Mm. There's a great long history of martial arts, of boxing, of wrestling. All these things are contact sports, and all these things have the potential, at least, for, for damaging people. And it happens all the time. And then when you have sports like mixed martial arts, where the whole goal is to damage people. And then you have sports like football, where you have enormous super athletes in the prime of their youth running full clip at each other mm. and colliding. I mean, the impact is, for us puny humans, is we, we don't even understand what that's like. Mm. You imagine a 300-pound super athlete at a full sprint and he collides with you. I mean, that's what those guys are doing. Yeah. So that's just a part of that sport. There's no getting around that. Mm. It's not good. 
it's a, not a good part of the sport. Mm. And many guys have quit mm. because they like there was a guy who was a very promising guy. He was like 24 years old. Do you know that story, Jamie? Oh yeah, so who yeah. just retired? He's like, I'm not doing this. Mm-hmm. Like I I need my brain because mm. they see the old timers. They see the guys that have been around a long time, mm. and they see the stories of the guys who commit suicide and shoot themselves in the heart so that the gov- so that the uh, medical community can study their brain. It's but, real. But yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing. Do you not think there's going to come a point where so many people are suing the Rugby Federation for having CTE or suing the Boxing Federation or, you know... That's a good point. You know, isn't there going to come a point with that where they'll say, and they can make a quite coherent legal argument going, I was doing my job, I suffered this industrial injury as a result of doing my job, therefore... The work area was unsafe, and you were you were liable for it. You d- definitely can make an argument in that direction. It's, I mean, if you think about that, someone's profiting off, of, especially back in the day when there was no real data, mm. right? Like back in the day, like if you think about like the NFL from like the early days, like guys, the only way you knew is if you knew somebody. You have to know them and see them deteriorate, and then everybody would put two and two together. Mm. Mm. You never heard it discussed yeah. until, you know, fairly recently, like within the last couple, decade or so, yeah. right? And we're, with boxing, it was always punch drunk. Mm. Yeah. And what you would see that from people. You would see it. Mm. You know, you would see it from older boxers that get interviewed on ABC Wide World of Sports. Mm-hmm. You would see them slurring their words, and it would be, it would be weird. Um, but now we know a lot about it. So it should inform people's choices if they choose to mm. do something that's that dangerous. If they mm. choose, if they fucking love football, I'm not, I don't want to be the one that tells them they can't play football. Mm. If they love MMA, I'm, I don't want to be the one that tells them not to do it. Mm. I think people should be able to take risks in their life just like they should rock climb, just mm. like, like they should be able to do whatever the fuck they want to do. I, I don't think it's the, this world is meant to be just live in in a safe way Mm. there's an excitement and a glory to fighting that Mm. doesn't exist outside of that and once those guys have experienced that once you've been a Kamaru Usman you know once you've been a Frankie Edgar and you've experienced the the top of the heap those guys their their life the way they view the world is different than you Mm. like their that thing is worth it it's worth it to them that thing to be the fucking champ of the world, to be standing there on your your trainer's shoulders holding up a UFC belt while the whole fucking arena goes nuts. To them, that's worth it because it's a uh, not many people get to be the champ. And 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 the, the most persuasive argument I find against what well, uh, the argument I just said there was the fact that these guys are warriors. Yeah, they're hundreds warriors. of years ago or a thousand years ago, they'd be Achilles, you know, yeah. at the front of the you know of the, of the Greek army, but now. If you take this away from them, you what, can't, what are, what you can't are, take it away from them. Then no one's going to allow that. No one's going to allow that. Mm. Um, th- look, it's only grown in popularity and it's, it's grown in reach. The last place, ironically, that we could get into was New York City. Really? Yeah, it was the hardest to get into. New York State, it was so corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> it's so corrupt. Like they were, they were, they were in cahoots with. I don't, you know, I don't want to like speak out of turn, but yeah. at the end of the line, one of the guys went to jail. One of the guys that was responsible for holding it back. Wow for corruption it's it was a see who that was what was the guy that got some guy went to he was he was responsible for trying to keep the ufc out of new york for a Mm. long time it turns out he was corrupt um but at the end of the day it got in and 
back when I first started getting into it, you couldn't even go to fights in California. We used to have to go to fights on Native American reservations. Because hmm. really? that was the only place they would make them legal. <laughs> so we would go see them. New York Democrat opposed to UFC arrested on corruption charges. Ha ha. Sheldon <laughs> Silva. Yeah, there he is. Ha ha. Wow. Yeah, he was corrupt. So right. the, the, the story was he was taking money to try to keep the UFC out of New York so that they would put pressure on the owners of the UFC who owned a bunch of casinos. Mm. And so there was some sort of deal they were wow. trying to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Shady that shit. That is dirty shit, Shady man. Shit. Yeah. Shady shit. Shady shit. But that's how it is. That's how those businesses are run. Holy. But at the end of the day, the sport is it's too many people enjoy it. Yeah. And I mm. think it's safer, honestly, than other combat sports. It's not safe. Let me say that very clearly. It's not safe. You're literally trying to separate someone from their consciousness. You're li literally trying to rob someone of their health by kicking them in the chest. Mm. It's a fucking dangerous way to make a living. It's a dangerous way to compete. But I think you have more control over what happens than like a football game. Mm. I think a football game is so crazy that, I mean, I'm sure the best athletes can avoid a lot of stuff for the most part. But I've seen guys get clipped when they don't know it's coming, and it seems so wild that you could do that. Mm. Like when a guy's running and some guy takes him from the from the side yeah. or like right from yeah. behind him and collides with them. Like those guys can run like thirty miles an hour, yeah. and they're super athletes. Yeah. All padded up, like being hit by a car with a, with a helmet on and shoulder pads and shit, running full clip. That to me seems crazier. Because, like, one hit like that, and, like, your whole body could be ruined. Yeah, the, rugby's exactly the same. But, right. But rugby, we've now got to the stage. So England won the World Cup in 2003. And this is, I don't know if you know anything about rugby, there's a position called hooker, right? Which is a center <laughs> of the scrum. Ha ha. <laughs> but, and, We're 12. <laughs> but, and the guy who played hooker for England in the 2003 World Cup, he's 43 years old, because of his CTE, he cannot remember winning the World Cup. We've got wow. huge swathes of elite rugby players, elite rugby players who've played for the greatest nations, and they are developing dementia-like symptoms in their late 30s, early 40s. One guy is a dude, I think his name is Alex Popham. He played for Wales, mm. played for loads of different teams. Phenomenal rugby player. His wife can't leave him on his own with his three-year-old because he keeps leaving the, the oven on and oh, he nearly Jesus set fire Christ. to the house. So the, I guess this is my point. It's just when when you, is it worth it? I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to this question, but I think what's happening at the moment is that we don't want to have this conversation. I don't mm. think we want to have it because it's going to throw up a lot of very difficult, very challenging questions, which would go far deeper than sport and about personal responsibility, liberty, yeah. freedom, et cetera, et cetera, mm. and safety, which is a lot of what we've been talking about. I agree with you. I agree with everything you've said. And I also think one of the things that's interesting about this conversation is that many of the people that signed up for this early on in life and they achieved mm. a certain amount mm. of skill and talent, it wasn't until deep in that they really knew what the dangers were. Mm. They were already on this path mm. of being an elite. Like if you're an elite professional rugby player, I just assume that it's like being an elite professional football player. Like you probably played football when you were young, in high yep. school, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. college, and then mm -hmm. you make it to the pros, mm -hmm. right? That's got to be what it's like. Yeah. So that means you have a very specific skill. You're mm. really good at this mm. one fucking game, yeah. and it makes you exceptional. Mm. And you can either back out of it because you think it's going to hurt you, 
or you can pursue your dream, mm. which you've been on for two decades. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to keep going. And a lot of these kids who play, like, you know, a lot of these sports, like Steve Thompson, he came from a poor working class background. In fact, I think he was in care for a bit. He, he was certainly had a rough time at home. And he said, like, where I grew up, rugby was my way out. Right. That was my way out. That was the only way I could, I could go and see the world, make money, have a good career. So a lot of these guys, you know, like it's the choice of either becoming a fighter or just being nothing. Here's well, the it's thing. also they get used to doing martial arts, right? They, right. They learn it for self-defense. They learn it because they want to find something they can uh, achieve at and something they can get really good at. Yeah. And it, it helps their self-esteem. And then along the way, someone offers them a fight. Along the way, people realize, like, hey, have you ever thought about competing? You're really good. And mm. they go, maybe I'll try it. And then they get into it, and then it looks a lot better than working in a fucking office. Mm. And yeah. maybe you can make 10 and 10 on your first fight. Like, oh, wow, that's $20,000 if I win. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, out of taxes and all that, you've got some money in the bank. And then you keep going. You have another fight in three months. Then uh, two years later, you're a fucking full-time professional fighter with a, a diet plan and mm. you're fucking wearing a cardio strap every day and monitoring your calories and like whoa like you can get sucked into this and if you all of a sudden start feeling like you're losing your memory what do you do right what do you do if that's your whole life what do you do if you got right. a mortgage what do you do if this is where you get your identity from what if you what do you do if your family depends upon you having a fight what if you know, your wife tells you why don't you just have like one more fight and mm. you're like okay maybe I'll have one more fight what if you know that you can't take a shot anymore what if you know that you don't have the desire to do it anymore you're just doing it because it's a job and you're gonna fight someone who wants to be a world champ next mm. and they're gonna try to kill you right mm. well here's the thing though with martial arts man I, I mean I hear the argument but let me ask you this are you Joe Rogan if martial arts don't enter your life that's a good question. And no, I'm 100% in favor of people doing martial arts. Yeah. I'm also 100% in favor of people fighting and competing. Mm. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is that you have to understand that this is not it's it's not something you know is going bad until it's really going bad. Right. And by then it's too late. And a lot of people there's no issues at all. Like I had Jim Miller on the show. Jim Miller has the most wins ever in the UFC. Mm. Jim Miller's fine. Mm. Nothing wrong with Jim Miller. Like, you talk to him, he talks, like, the, he doesn't have a single cognitive issue that I could detect. Obviously, I'm not a neuroscientist. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I'm talking to him, he seems, like, completely normal. We have fun, we're laughing, we have good yeah. conversations. He doesn't say that he has issues. Mm. I believe him. I believe it's not everybody that gets it. And mm. I think you can endure a certain amount of punishment and be fine. But I think that everybody has a different level. Mm. Just like uh, many other variables when it comes to biology, like some people can take more punishment than others. Yeah. There's actually a, a gene expression. Is it, it's called APOE4, right? Isn't that what it is? There's a, there's a gene that if you, if you have it, you are more susceptible to CTE. You're more likely. Oh, really? And so I think it's some, some expression of the gene, if they can mm. find that in your DNA, I might be fucking this up, but I know I'm not fucking up that there is something in your genes that mm-hmm. makes you more susceptible to mm-hmm. CTE. That makes mm-hmm. sense. And when yeah. people have it, they, they get it way easier, or, or easier at least. Yeah. Right. It's real. I've known people with it. I've, I've got friends that have it. It's 100% real. There's no getting around it. If you get hit in the head, it's gonna affect your judgment. It's gonna affect the way your memory works. It's gonna affect the way your mind works. It's just how much. Some people, not much at all. And they get better afterwards. Some people, a lot. And that's the risk of the game. That's part of the risk of the game. Mm. 
And we have to decide whether or not people could take risks. It is also why people love the game because it's that moment, you know, Yes. Especially when you live in a world that's so safe, suddenly you're watching some, something so fundamentally yeah. unsafe. It's that when you see someone getting knocked out, it's that visceral, it's, it's, it's an instinctual physical reaction to it. Yes, 100%. Mm. You know, um, we're terrified of those kind of people that can knock us out. Yeah, <laughs> like good I, race. One yeah. of the things that I like to do when I'm tired and I don't really feel like doing the bike, I have one of them exercise bikes, mm. those Echo bikes. You know what it is? It's like an Airdyne. Mm. It's hard. It's it's annoying, and when I I just I'll put on uh, there's a, a fighter out of Russia, um, he's from Chechnya and he mm. lives in Montreal now. His name is Arthur Bitterbeev, and he is the only current world champion that is undefeated, and all of them by knockout. He I think he's nineteen and zero. I think that's what his record is, something in the range of that. But this motherfucker is terrifying. He just puts it on everybody. He, and he's not like this one-punch guy either. He breaks people down. And he doesn't get tired. Mm-hmm. And that's the guy I watch when I'm on the fucking... Because <laughs> I, I think, what if I have to run away from this motherfucker? <laughs> what if I have to stand in front of this guy? You don't want to get tired. You've got one <laughs> fucked up motivation system. If you, don't, if you get tired around this guy, you're fucked. This is him. And he, he's a fucking assassin, man. He's an assassin. He just fought uh, Joe Smith Jr., who was the current world champion in one of the other organizations. And he just smashed him in two rounds. I mean, he's that good. And Joe Smith is a fucking killer. And but Bitterbeev is he's something special. Wow. He's like super skillful. He fought in the Olympics. He's like a, a I think he fought in the Olympics. Super high level amateur boxer. I'm not, I'm not sure about the Olympics. Do you know what? Like I would if he came up to me and you you've your motivation is to is to do what you do. Mine would be to give him anything he wants. He, but what if he just wants to beat your ass? Well, he <laughs> that's what he'd give him. That's he's what gonna, I'd give him. Here he, you go. You watch he, the way he fights too. He stands right in front of guys too. He's not like slick. He's just relentless. He's got excellent defense, but he gets hit. But he puts himself in the line of fire and just torches people. You can tell the dude he's fighting is really good as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's a world champion. So right. he's fighting like elite world title contenders. Wow. But look at that. See, he starts putting on people. Wow, man. And this motherfucker does not get tired. So that's the guy that I watch when I'm on the bike. I just think, what if you had to fight that guy? You better be in shape, bitch. <laughs> See if you can fight. Here's his top five knockouts. Uh, so this is a Joe Smith. That, that guy with the tattoo on his chest and arm, he's a motherfucker. Vicious knockout artist. Mm. But he got clipped early in this fight. And when he oh. got right there, and when he got clipped, that was the beginning of the end. This motherfucker oh. just puts it on people. Wow. And then in the second round, he came back in the second round and just torched him. I think he dropped him three times wow. in the second round. Do you know that story that you told on Peterson's podcast? That stuck with me, man. Which one? The one where you told about why you gave up fighting with the, with the kick. Yeah, man. Yeah, that that just that was the beginning of me giving up on fighting. I fought for two more years after that, but that was that changed the way I thought about everything. I was like, you can get way too hurt in this. Mm-hmm. Like, if you get kicked in the head, like, and I definitely could get kicked in the head. And I definitely had been kicked in the head. But not like badly to the point where I'm like flatlined, unconscious. And I've seen so many people, I knew so many people that that happened to. You know, the one that always strikes me, and a lot of people, I'm not going to say a lot. Do you know Chris Eubank, the middleweight fighter? Yes. British, incredible fighter. Uh, he was phenomenal. And then he had that fight with Michael Watson. I don't know if you, if you know this was back in the 80s. Michael Watson was a supreme boxer. And Eubank gave him brain damage in the ring. 
And after that, mm. Eubanks said that a lot of people actually have said that he was never the same fighter. I think he might have even admitted like he never went for the real knockout. That's he was how always Ray hanging Boom back. Boom Mancini was after Duck Kim. You know, Ray, Ray Boom Boom Mancini uh, fought Duck Kim on, I think it was on ABC Wide World of Sports, and he killed him. Um, and I think he died in the 13th or 14th round. And after that, they started changing fights to 12 rounds. And I think uh, Kim had cut a lot of weight to make the weight class. Mm. You know, this is back in the day when they used to weigh in the day of the fight. So they'd weigh in, and I think it was lightweight, so it was 135 pounds. And they would weigh in the day of the fight. So super dehydrated. Yeah. yeah. No moisture likely. in the brain, right? Not yeah, no moisture in the brain. And by the way, back then they didn't know jack shit about hydration. Mm. They yeah. Didn't, they didn't they weren't using IV bags and all that, I don't think. Mm. I mean, I think they were just like drinking water. Yeah. <laughs> like it was like the eighties. Yeah. They nobody knew shit. I yeah. think. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe like nutrition science is more advanced than I think, but I'm pretty sure pretty sure they I mean these guys just and it was one of those fights where uh, Mancini was kind of never the same again and mm. you could only imagine what that's like when you kill a guy yeah in a ring and then you realize that, that could be you that yeah. could be you you're fighting Azuma Nelson next that might maybe that's you you know and it's also the impact it's having on the rest of your family I saw this documentary about Frank Bruno and uh, they showed with the I think it was the second Tyson fight him going to his training camp and his like five-year-old girl holding on to him like crying going please don't go daddy please don't go oh jesus christ because even kids and this was a little girl even kids understand what that means we all know what it means when a fighter goes into the ring yeah there's a very real possibility that they're not gonna come out there's a muay thai fighter that just died recently and uh the knockout is uh online you can see the knockout online and when he goes out he he falls like back and bounces his head off the ground and he's out bad yeah and he never gets up and they they take him away in a stretcher and then he winds up dying later but it's um it's the reality of combat sports mm. you know it's not it's a scary rare reality in comparison to all the times that people fight how many of them people die but it like it's possible in football too it's possible in a lot of things Francis, you know what I like about you? Yeah. You really know how to cheer up the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's something to talk about because all this, what we're talking about, about CTE yeah. and, mm. and combat sports, it's the one thing that bothers me the most about the sport. I love the sport because it is the most exciting and it, because it is what I call high-level problem-solving with dire physical mm. consequences. Right. But at the end of the day, there's a part of me that uh, likes when guys get out early there's a part of me that likes when guys like like Khabib. Mm. Khabib gets to 29 and 0. He's like, we did it. Thanks. Fucked everybody up. I'm the GOAT. Bye. Mm. And they keep offering him fights. And he's like, nope. No, mm. I'm done. Like, I did it. And now he's fine. Like, he's financially set for life. He's also doesn't have any problem with his cognitive function that I'm aware of. Speaks fine. Well, he didn't take any punishment, really, yeah. did he? <laughs> he? Fucking dominated everybody. He got clipped a couple of times. Nobody got clipped less than Khabib. I mean, he was just on people, on mm. people. And then the boxing side of that, I, that's what, why I talk about Floyd. But Floyd didn't stop people as a, like, like when he was fighting later on his career, like uh, the Manny Pacquiao fight mm. or the Juan Manuel Marquez fight. Like, he wasn't, like, stopping them the way, you know, he was more like just beating them. Yeah. You know, Khabib was crushing people. Yes. Khabib was like, You're, this is not a fight. This is a mauling. 
You know, he's on top of you, just beating the fuck out of Conor McGregor, going, let's talk now. Let's talk now. Just punch him in the face. Let's talk now. I mean, he's, he's a ruthless motherfucker. And when, when he beat you, he beat you. I'd That's s- the difference between him and a guy like Mayweather. Man, I had such hopes. I love Khabib. I think he's incredible. But I wanted someone to push him more. And I had such hope for the Justin Gaethje fight. I just thought, this guy has something that could... And he, and he couldn't. Well, Gaethje gave his best. He, oh, just, no, he was brilliant. Khabib but he just, was... He was on him. I mean, he took some hard leg kicks, man. Some hard calf kicks. For a lot of people, that would have been the end of the show. He figured out a way to endure and keep going. Right. But he, if you watch that fight again, he gets his legs fucked up trying to chase Gaethje down. And then almost gets him at the beginning or the end, rather, of the first round and finally gets him in the second round. But here's the thing, man. Every, with every sport, there's always a generational talent. That mm-hmm. is so far yeah. above everything yep. else. That's Khabib. You know, and Khabib is like that. Roger Federer, all these mm-hmm. people, they come in and they're just different. Yep. There's something about them. And you know, especially like if you watch soccer or whatever else, you see someone go on. Like Lionel Messi was like this, Wayne Rooney at the start of his career. The moment you t- he touched the ball, the moment he moved... It didn't look like someone who had learned something. It looked like something completely fluid and natural that Mm. nobody else could do, no matter how hard or how gifted they were or how long they spent on the training pitch. It's just, it's it's like water, it's fluid. Here's what Mm. I disagree with, though. Roger Federer is a bad example. He's incredible, but he lost many times. He's dominated for a long time, but he lost many times. Khabib never lost. He it's bet, kind of a different sport, he, he so bet, Federer he, played more than Khabib. Do you know what I has mean? Has there ever been a person in, in tennis that never lost? Is that even possible? I mean, like, in the finals and l- didn't win the, the the competition that he was in. Do you oh, see right. what I'm saying? Right. Not lost a match. I mean, lost in the finals when he had an opportunity to win a Grand Slam. Right. Right? But, I mean, in, in tennis, like, the no one even counts your losses versus your wins, right? Yeah. Because yeah. in boxing and in MMA, true. it's a big deal. True, he's yeah. twenty nine and zero. Khabib retired twenty nine and zero. Yeah, you know, world champion. Right. So like that, there's not an equivalent. There isn't, but there's something special to be able to say you never lost. Oh yeah, for sure. Because for it sure, puts you I, I in just, that bracket. You know, like thinking boxing, who's never lost? Rocky Marciano, Rocky Marciano Floyd Mayweather, um, Andre Ward. Andre Ward is an, another great example because Andre Ward was an Olympic gold medalist, two division world champion and walked away in his prime, mm. his absolute prime, as a dominant champion, undefeated, walked away in his prime, and said, I think I serve boxing best behind a microphone and wow. promoting it. What a smart man. And they offered him a shitload of money. When, mm. when Canelo Alvarez knocked out Kovalev, I know they were calling on him, and his response was intelligent and well thought out and, and, and smart. And, 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 and the proper, look, if you want to keep your brain and you want to keep your health and you know you got it right now and you did everything that anybody could ever do. Everything on top with Andre Ward, other than the financial uh, rewards of having a big Canelo Alvarez fight that would be the only thing to lure him in. As far as accomplishments, he did everything. Olympic gold medalist, two division world champion, undefeated, retired, take care everybody. It's beautiful, it's a beautiful end to a story. But here's the thing, people get addicted to your t- attention. Do you remember watching the Tyson Fury fight? Yes. The, the last one. Yeah. <laughs> he was going to me, like, we were talking, I went, do you do, do you remember, do you think Tyson's going to retire? And you were like, I don't know, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. And then I saw him sit on a golden throne in front <laughs> of 60,000 people. I'm like, that is a man who likes attention. Uh, yeah, but, you know, he had a really hard time with that Wilder fight. 
Deontay Wilder hurt him bad. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. And he said afterwards that he was really concussed. And um, he just decided after that fight, I think, that the Dillian White fight would be his last one. And mm. it was masterful. It was masterful, yeah. masterful performance. You know, and I, you know, I don't know. I like, I like him fighting. He's fun. He also said that he would fight Anthony Joshua. Um, he said he would fight him for free. Uh, if the fans could uh, get in for free to watch it, which is a wild boy thing to say. Yeah, it is. <laughs> He's such a wild man. He is, man. He's a, the gypsy king. I mean, yeah. there's nobody like Tyson Fury. You know, yeah. there's never been an intimidated guy with a belly like that. <laughs> yeah. You know? This is a thing. Fat. This is a thing that I don't understand. As a boxer, you're meant to be the fittest of the fit, to hit fittest. And then yeah. you've got Anthony Ruiz, who looks like he runs a kebab shop. Well, he looks a lot better now. Andy Ruiz is now uh, much, much thinner. He hired a strength and conditioning trainer, and he's been on this like regimen for take your point, more than a Joe, year now. But he was heavyweight champion of the world and yeah. looked like he ran a kebab shop. Well, when he beat Anthony Joshua, he looked fat. But then yeah. when he lost to him, he looked really fat. Yeah. He got up to like 283 right. pounds. He was way, way, way overweight. But yeah, but the thing about him is that fat doesn't affect how well he can punch. Like, he punches, like, if you watch Andy Ruiz fight, he's so fluid. Everything's just pop, 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 pop. Those combinations, they just come, mm. and it's just, like, so effortless and technical. His combinations are beautiful. And when you get in slugfests with him, and that's what Anthony Joshua did, they got in a slugfest, Ruiz is, like, taking angles and landing shots and these fast combinations. They're really fluid hands. If you watch him hit the mitts, it's very impressive. Mm. And if you watch like when he actually stops Anthony Joshua, like that combination is amazing. But it's just he fell prey to the party bug, you know? And so now he's gotta rebuild. Mm. I, I, it's still with boxing, the fact that you need to be so fit and you can be overweight still blows my mind. <laughs> because is, is he an aspirational model? Yeah, it is, man. This I is think for me. Tyson Fury, what happened was he after he beat Klitschko. He got depressed and he got over, mm. ballooned up over yeah. 300 pounds. He was drinking every day and really fucked up. And he got so big that a certain amount of that just stays with him. Even though now he's fit, mm. he's still got like a certain amount of that. But if you go back to like the earlier fight, like the Klitschko fights, I don't remember him being that big. Mm. Hatton had the same problem in between fights. He would just mm. balloon. And you saw the electricity and the spark of the early Hatton. Mm -hmm. By the end of it, 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 it just wasn't there. Well, he's the one. He's uh, a guy that Floyd knocked out. Floyd caught him with a left hook, like a check hook. It was brilliant. He just he just figured out how to deal with this guy. It was like marauder, just a relentless mauling type of a brawler. And Ricky Hatton, people forget, like when he was on his way up to the title, Ricky Hatton was a motherfucker. He was fun to watch. Incredible. I mean, that guy was a killer. He was so good. And he was so fun to watch Ricky yeah. Hatton. I don't think there's, in boxing at the moment, I don't think there is anyone, they're better boxers, but there's no one more fun to watch than Ricky Hatton. What was so fun about him? There was this, the thing that was so fun, it was the, it was the sparkiness, like the devastating. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like you just, he, was be, he would be there fighting and then it would, out of nowhere, yeah. particularly bang, it was, yeah. it was over. Yeah, those explosive knockout power punchers, those guys. There's something about them. They make boxing so much more interesting. Mm. Just the kind of guy that could just bang out of nowhere and then <laughs> you're out cold. Because some guys can't do that. Some guys, they need an accumulation of blows. Yeah. yeah. You know? And there's guys like Bitter Biv who just breaks you down. He doesn't really knock a guy out with one punch in the first round. Right. He just slowly clips you and beats you up 
like little car accidents. Boom, boom, boom. But that's the problem. We touched on it before. Like the more technical fighters, like they never get the respect, as much respect mm. as like the knockout artists. Yeah. Yeah. Like think of like Joe Calzaghe. I actually think uh, Joe Calzaghe might have retired undefeated. He did. He did. Yeah. And, yet, he did yeah. Yeah. and then we never mentioned him when we were going through our undefeated fighters. You yeah, know we should have. We should have. Yeah, that's just an error. No, Joe Calzaghe was a beast. But yeah. but Calzaghe was technical. He never really knocked anyone out, Joe. No. That this was my point. Really you know what fast I mean? combinations, really fast hands, mm. a lot of movement, uh, unbelievable work ethic. His work ethic was incredible. His, his endurance was incredible. He would just put a pace on guys. He was a very good boxer, too. But yeah, you're right. He wasn't like a Tommy Hearns, like yeah. one one punch, blam. Like, like when Hearns knocked out Roberto Duran, like, whoo. Tommy Hearns had a right hand that was just a, an extraordinary weapon. It was extraordinary. And when he would catch you on the end of a jab and just torque that right hand in, whoo. Yeah, man. He, he was amazing. But, you know, some guys have that and some guys don't. A guy who had that that was really fun to watch was Prince Hamed. Remember that? Yeah. Remember that, dude? Oh, he was incredible. incredible. Entertainment value as well. Oh, my God. He would dance. He'd be dancing while he was fighting. Had these crazy shorts on. And he would leap forward and catch guys with left hooks and just fuck them up. Leap forward with a right uppercut. And you would watch him like, how is he getting away with this? Like, this is crazy. The way he's fighting is crazy. But it was super effective. And he would talk a bunch of shit. A bunch of shit. <laughs> a bunch of shit. He would come in on Thrones, too. He was like the first guy to come in on Thrones. Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you know the interesting thing about uh, Nassim Hamid is that I think it was, was it the first time he lost? He, where he fought Barrera. Yes. Barrera gave him such a beating, he yeah. never got back in the ring again. Was that the last time he fought? I think it was. I think it really? was. A, yeah, I think it was. A, I mean, pull up Prince Ahmed's career. I don't you're, remember you're when the last time he fought. Well, well I think it's important to fact check. You're that absolutely one, I'm right. Not sure. <laughs> Just like I was fucked up about Jerry Farwell. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Swagger fucked me up. <laughs> Let's see. Um. Hmm. What's that? Oh, he had one more win. One more win. Manuel Calvo, unanimous decision. That was the year later, like basically a year later. Yeah. There you go, man. And then he was like, that's it. I'm you, done. You oh, just... so he won a vacant IBO featherweight title, and then he just fucking checked out. There you go, Francis. You've just landed a former world champion. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible boxer. <laughs> Hope you never meet him walking ago. around London. Yeah, mate. That's Is just it, my brand. We corrected it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see that it's that I'm sure he'll see it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen, we've been going on a long ass time. Should we end this thing? Brother, yeah. thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, or thanks for being here. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what I'm doing, what my well, role is. Oh, brother, but, come on our show. We'll talk more. We'd love to have you on. I would love on. to. And yeah. I really appreciate you guys. I just, I'm glad we got together to do yeah. this because I've always enjoyed watching your show on YouTube and it's just cool to hang with you. It was a really fun conversation. For us it. as well. Okay. Yeah. Bye, everybody.